What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. The Black Museum. Affiliated stations present Escape. All of fantasy. Welcome, weirdos. I'm Darren Marlar with another Retro Radio, old-time radio in the dark marathon presented by the Weird Darkness Podcast. In each episode, I bring you shows from the golden age of radio, but still in the genre of weird darkness. I have stories of the macabre and horror, mysteries and crime, and even some dark science fiction. If you're new here, welcome to the show, and be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And if you're already a member of this weirdo family, Please take a moment and invite someone else to listen in with you. Spreading the word about the show helps it to grow. If you're here because you're already a fan of nostalgic audio and print, you'll want to email WeirdDarkness at RadioArchives.com. When you do that, you'll get an instant reply with links to download full-length pulp audiobooks, pulp ebooks, and old-time radio shows for free. That's WeirdDarkness at RadioArchives.com. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness as we listen to tonight's retro radio, old-time radio in the dark marathon. Suspense. This is the man in black, here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. In our starring Hollywood cast tonight are Mr. John Sutton, who appears as a young English doctor, Jim Norwood, who knew a great deal more than he admitted concerning the strange events which we are about to relate. And Mr. George Zuko, who plays the village curate, the Reverend Arthur Morley. Our story... And it bears none but a coincidental resemblance to H.G. Wells' famous short novel, The Invisible Man, is by John Dixon Carr and is called The Man Without a Body, tonight's tale of suspense. 
If you have been with us on these Tuesday nights, you will know that suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion and dangerous adventure. In this series are tales calculated to intrigue you. And so it is with The Man Without a Body and the performances of John Sutton and George Zuko. We again hope to keep you in... Suspense. A lonely beach of low white sand hills edged by the surf of the North Sea. And back from the beach, drowsing as it has drowsed for ten centuries, lies the village of Aldbridge in Suffolk. There is the seawall now defaced by air raid shelters. And there are the rolling grain fields, the thatched white cottages, the spire of St. Luke's Church above the oak trees, ancient and bell-haunted, Lost among hedgerows, this village could never cause consternation in London newspaper offices. And yet, on that warm night nearly four years ago... This time it's really happened. A man without a body, completely invisible. Copy, boy. Copy, boy. Look at this dispatch. Reign of terror in Suffolk Village. Has another of H.G. Wells' romances come true? An invisible man? I can't believe it. Uh, what's the matter with that village? They all gone scatty? Mr. George Wellman, builder, states that as he was returning home along the main road from Bury St. Edmunds... He distinctly saw a man's hat without any head under it, moving towards him about six feet above the ground. Oh, George must have been full of beer. We can't use this story. Coffee boy! Even more surprising evidence was given by the Reverend Arthur Morley, vicar of St. Luke's Church. Who? The parson? You don't think he was full of beer? One question above all agitates the village. Who is Professor Ansmith? Who is this elderly American, said to be an inventor, who has settled at Aldbridge and leased a part of the house belonging to the local doctor? Out of some terrifying workshop, to strike like a maniac... Where least expected, has there at last emerged... A real, invisible man? The Church of St. Luke, Aldbridge, on that same Sunday evening. The evening service is over now, though an echo bell still lingers. In the vestry at the rear of the church, where white surplices hang like ghosts, the Reverend Arthur Morley sits with his daughter Janice... It is a stone room of painted windows, now many-colored in the sunset. And here, as the drowsy summer light turns to dusk. Janice, I don't believe it. I know, Father. I saw it with my own eyes, yet I don't believe it. You don't think we were dreaming, do you? No, Father. We weren't dreaming. If this goes on, the whole village will be in a frenzy. But what can I do? We could go to Professor Ansmith. And ask him straight out. Ask him whether he's responsible for these... Yes. I wonder, Janice. A man isn't hurting anybody, you know. You couldn't ask for a quieter person or a better neighbor. And yet... What's that? Father, you are upset. It's only Mr. Emmett coming down from the belfry. Emmett? Oh, yes, of course. Is that you, Mr. Emmett? Uh, it's me, all right, sir. And very much in the flesh. Did you think I was the invisible man? Mr. Emmett, I forbid you to mention that subject. Very good, sir. But there's others begging your pardon that do mention it. Oh, yes, yes. Forgive me. I spoke too sharply. Oh, that's all right, sir. No harm done. No bones broken. Mind you not that I hold with this talk about invisible men. It ain't natural, I say. It ain't hardly Christian. 
I'm a greengrocer by trade, and I believe in what I can weigh and feel and... What's the matter, Mr. Emmett? Is anything wrong? Excuse me, sir. And you too, miss. Do you see anybody in this room except us? No, of course not. Why? Because I, I could have sworn something brushed past me just now. You're imagining things, Mr. Emmett. Yes, sir, I, I dare say, There's but... nobody uh, hidden in the belfry tower, I hope. No, sir. I had a look-see. And what's more, there's not going to be anybody up there once I've locked the door. Now, let the blighter try and get in. Oh, please, Mr. Emmett. And you too, Father. You're talking about this invisible man as though... So he actually existed. There's something funny going on, miss. You can't deny that. No, none of us can deny it. And what's more, sir, it's getting pretty dark in here. Hadn't you and Miss Janice better get along to the vicarage while I lock up? No, we can't go just yet, Mr. Emmett. We're expecting Dr. Norwood. Dr. Jim Norwood, sir? What does he say about all this? Oh, you might ask him yourself, Mr. Emmett. I think that's probably him now. Come in. The vestry door's not locked. Oh, hello, Padre. Hello, Janice. I'm sorry I'm late. Oh, hello, Jim. You seem a good deal out of breath. I am out of breath, Janice, because there's blue blazes to pay down in the village. Not more trouble. Yes, I'm afraid so. They're holding a mass meeting at the Coach and Horses, and they're ready to murder Professor Ann Smith. If this invisible man cuts any more capers, we may see a real old-fashioned lynching in an English village. Now, look here, my boy. This has got to stop. I know that, Padre, but how are we going to stop it? Sit down there, Jim, across the table from me. Yes, sir. First of all... What do you know about this Professor Ann Smith? Nothing, sir. Nothing at all. But you rent part of your house to him. Oh, my dear Padre, that house is twice as big as I can possibly manage. I was only too glad to get a tenant. He gave you references, I imagine? Yes, but I didn't bother to check him. He's a quiet old boy. Pays his rent on the dot. Never does anything except read and go for long walks. Are you quite sure of that, Jim? The village has war nerves, that's all. With the camouflage aerodrome in the neighborhood, they're apt to imagine anything. True, perhaps, but... That talk about dynamos humming in the old boy's room and blue lights flashing is rubbish out of a sensational film. They imagine the whole thing. Finally, this crazy story about an invisible man playing the gramophone, why, it's that's... It's a... not a crazy story, Jim. Janice and I saw it happen. You what? Last night, about half past nine, Janice and I were out for a walk in the lane that runs past your house. On the way, we met Willie Kendrick, and he joined us. Well, sir? Listen, Jim. On that side of the house, there's a little square room with two windows and no furniture except a round table and a couple of chairs. Do you know the one we mean? Yes, of course. Professor Ansmith uses it. What about the room? It wasn't quite blackout time. The windows were up, the curtains weren't drawn, and the room was brightly lighted. On the table stood an old-fashioned gramophone with a horn and a crank handle. Beside it lay a pair of white cotton gloves, like... like gardener's gloves. The gramophone was playing away for dear life, but there was nobody in the room. Janice thought that was a bit odd, a gramophone going full tilt with nobody there, and called my attention to it. Just then, the gramophone started to run down. We could hear the record slow and go off key. As it did so... Well, sir, go on. As it did so, those white gloves got up off the table. Got up off the table? Got up off the table, took hold of the gramophone, and wound it up again. <laughs> Mr. Emmett, what on earth are you doing? Uh, I dropped some candlesticks. So I see. Please pick them up again. Yes, sir. Padre, are you serious? Perfectly serious. A pair of gloves without any hands inside them? Yes. 
But what did they do exactly? The left-hand glove steadied the gramophone. The right-hand glove wound it up. Then they both hung in the air, beating time to the music. It should have been funny. I can only assure you it was not funny. Well, what happened then? Oh, Jim, it was horrible. Willie Kendrick let out a yell and ran down the lane between the apple trees as though the devil were after him. I can't say I blame him. Father and I just stood there and... and... Stared is the word, my dear. Yes, stared. I can't forget any of it. The three-legged table and the whirling record and the blue flowers on the wallpaper. But there was nobody there. We could see past the table and under the table and all over the room. And there was nobody there. Except the man without any body. Confound the man without any body. Father... Suppose it is true. As a clergyman, my dear, I prefer to remain agnostic. This thing's a trick. Yes, but how's it done, and why? That's the whole point, Jim. What worries me is the effect on our people here. We call ourselves intelligent, and yet, look at us. Even Mr. Emmett there. Hey, hey, what's that about me, sir? A few minutes ago, you thought something brushed past you when you were coming down the stairs from the bell tower. Now, didn't you? Well, uh, yes, sir. You see what I mean, Jim? But I didn't really think so, sir. Not really. It was imagination, just like the doctor said. Because I searched that tower. I locked the door afterwards. Exactly. But the mere force of suggestion, nothing more, might lead you to believe. That's not suggestion, Father. Sir, I'll take my Bible oath. There's nobody in that belfry. Bells can't ring by themselves, old man. There's somebody pulling the rope up there, and we're going to find out who it is. Now, one moment, all of you. What's wrong, Padre? You're as white as a ghost. This blasphemous mockery, it seems, extends even to the church. Very well. You will stay with the Janice, my boy. Emmett and I will collar this invisible man. Why can't I go, too? I don't believe in this, but I should prefer to have someone with the Janice. You're not afraid, Mr. Emmett? If, If it's alive, sir, I'm not afraid of it. And if it's dead, well, well, you're not afraid of it. The tower door's open, sir. I'm ready. Don't do it, Father. Don't go. You can't help them, Janice. Sit down here. Take it easy. Jim Norwood, what's wrong with you? Wrong with me? You've got an odd look, too. And the light's fading. And the surpluses look like ghosts. And in another minute, that fell would drive me mad. Suppose he has got in. Who? The invisible man. Oh, don't talk rot. As there are sounds that the ear cannot hear, so there are colors that the eye cannot see. I read that somewhere. He hasn't hurt anybody yet. But suppose he turns nasty and does hurt somebody. He can't hurt anybody. How do you know? Janice, listen to me. Take my hand. Oh, but Jim... I want to tell you a few things you won't understand. I don't ask you to understand. I just ask you to remember. Well, what is it? The first is a question... If you were a government official and wanted to find an expert on camouflage, where would you go? An expert on camouflage? Yes. And the second point is this. I studied medicine in Germany. Oh, I know that, but that's One quite... night on a bet, I hid backstage at the Winter Garden Theater in Berlin. I saw the whole show from backstage and... And I learned a great deal. Jim Norwood, what on earth are you talking George about? George Wellman and I have talked the whole thing over. In a way, Janice, there is an invisible man. I can tell you who he is... And how he works. But there's no danger, do you understand? There's no danger at all. Jim, what was that? I don't know. You do know. I can see it in your face. You do know. I think somebody's fallen. Fallen? From the top of the belfry. Oh, Father! Stay here, Janice. You can't do any good. Let go! 
go on my arm. I'm going after it. No, you're not. I didn't think what the danger might be. Besides, there's somebody coming down the stairs now. Stay just where you are and don't move until... Oh, Father. Father, are you all right? Steady, sir. Take it easy now. I'm perfectly all right, yes. But you'd better go into the churchyard and see to him, he... He fell? No, Dennis, he did not fall. He was thrown. Oh. Thrown? By whom? There's no time to argue now. You're a doctor. Go out and see to him. Well, is he in... I don't know. Go. Yes, sir. For I will work a deed in your days which ye will not believe, though it be told you. Janice, this is incredible. Why? You heard the bell ring. I saw it ring. Without anybody there? I was as close to that bell as I am to you now. No hand held the rope. There were no strings or wires or any tricks to make it move. Yet it clanged back and forth alone in the tower. And I thought I heard someone laugh. Laugh? Oh, don't take that too seriously. We were both overwrought and the noise of the bell was deafening. What about Mr. Emmett? Emmett yelled some words I couldn't hear and lunged for the bell. Then something caught him. Something caught him and gave him a sledgehammer blow in the back. That bell is nothing but open arches. You heard him scream. I saw his face just before he went over. Lock the door to the tower, Father. Lock it. I can't lock it. Emmett has the key. But why should I lock it? Because he's still in there. He? He hadn't done any harm before, but he's done harm now. There's no telling what might happen if he gets loose. You mean? I mean Professor Ann Smith's protege, whoever he is. The man without a body. Under the red sunset, some quarter of a mile away, a grass-carpeted lane winds between rows of apple trees. The lane is dusky. Though lights shine into it from the windows of a large stone house. Dr. Norwood's house beyond the apple trees. Up and down. Up and down a shadowy figure is pacing. An elderly figure. A dejected figure. Tall and frail as a shadow among shadows. Muttering to itself. Shaking its head. Now and then raising one fist in bewilderment or anguish. Sometimes the light gleams on large spectacles and a kindly mouth. Up and down. Endlessly up and down strides Professor Hansmith. I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. How can I convince them that I'm not guilty? Who's there? I saw you dodge behind that tree. S stand out, sir. Uh, did you call me Professor Hansmith? Yes, I did call you. Who are you? You probably won't recognize me, Professor Ainsley. Nevertheless, my friend, may I ask what your name is? Uh, my name is Wellman, Professor. George Wellman. Wellman, Wellman. I've heard that name. Maybe you have. I'm a builder by trade and a great friend of Dr. Norwood's. Wait one moment. Aren't you the young man whose firm is putting up these air raid shelters along the seawall? And making such an unholy din with your riveting machines? That's me. And come to think of it, aren't you the one who first started this alarm about an invisible man? Yes, because I met him. You did not meet him, sir. This whole thesis is scientific nonsense. And I won't have it. Uh, you won't have what? I'm an old man, Mr. Wellman. I never did anybody the least harm. As God is my judge, I know nothing whatever about this, this... What's that? It looks like the vicar's car, Professor. You'd better stand back. This is a pretty narrow lane. Smith, 
Yes, Professor Ansmith. Yes, Mr. Morley, I hear you. Well, we thought you'd better drive over here straight away. I, I think you've met my daughter. And, of course, you know Dr. Norwood. Yes, but there's no time for any social formalities. Get into your house, Professor Ansmith. Get in quickly and close the shutters. But why should I do that? Because there's a mob coming, sir, and we can't stop them. Hurry, do hurry. A mob coming here? Why? Haven't you heard the news? I've heard nothing, my friend. The only person I've seen has been that young man there who chews a toothpick and hides behind the trees. George Wellman? What on earth are you doing here? Uh, watching, Janice. Watching and waiting, just as usual. Listen to me, Professor Ansmith. Henry Emmett, the head verger at St. Luke's, was thrown from the belfry window not 20 minutes ago. Not by me, sir, I assure you. I had nothing to do with no, it. No, not by you, but apparently by the invisible man. Oh, Father in heaven, will this never stop? Not till we catch the fellow. No. Be quiet, Mr. Bowman, please. Uh, I, I'm sorry, Padre, I take it back. I myself can testify that no visible person laid hands on Emmett. He was struck, struck as though with a gigantic fist. What's the matter, Professor Ansmith? Is anything wrong? No, 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 no. I, I, I was just thinking. Is Emmett dead? Fortunately, no. I'm glad of that, my friend, for a certain person's sake. He's not even seriously hurt. The bell tower isn't high and a tree broke the force of his fall. But he's badly shaken up. And that crowd of the coach and horses means trouble. If you haven't anything to say to us, if you haven't a word of explanation to utter... Listen, Padre, don't you hear anything? Yes, I thought I heard voices. Can't be that crowd from the village. We're too far ahead of them. It's a crowd, all right. And they've been here for hours. But where? I don't see anybody. Jim, look, behind the trees. Look behind the trees. Look be beyond the hedgerows. Look for any place where a watcher can hide. And may I ask what they're doing here? They're watching you, Professor Ansmith. More of your spies, you mean. You can call them anything you please. They're getting impatient and they want a showdown. If I as much as hold my hand up like this... What's that? Don't throw stones at the windows, you fool! You're only breaking the doctor's window! Gentlemen, I can't have any more of this. Be quiet, all of you, and listen to me. Well, sir, we're listening. I'm a peaceful man. I like to live in peace with my neighbors. I have nothing to do with this so-called reign of terror... But you don't believe that, do you? No. Then I must expose a fraud. Now, don't blame me if I expose the trickster, too. I have made preparations to show you the invisible man. The man without a body. Quiet, everybody! Mr. Morley, I believe you and your daughter walked through this lane last night uh, while I was away at the Berry St. Edmunds. I don't know about your being away, sir. My daughter and I were certainly here, yes. Good, good. Miss Janice Morley. Yes, Professor Ansmith. Will you look toward your right, please, at the house? What do you see? It's the same room. What room? The room with the little round table and the gramophone. It's a three-legged table, you notice. Yes, of course. But there's nobody in the room. No, nobody at all. Are conditions exactly as they were last night? Yes, except there aren't any gloves on the table. No, but the invisible man is there. Oh. A living presence, ready to act and breathe and even kill. Even kill? With your permission, I shall now address him. Hello in there. Hello in there. Hello 
If anybody answers him, Father, I'm going to scream. Quiet, Janice, quiet. Father, look. The gloves are appearing on the table. I call out to him and I speak as follows. Hold the phonograph with your left glove. That's it. Turn the handle with your right. One turn, two, three, four. That's enough. Touch the spring with your left hand. Push the record. Lower the needle with your right and... <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the invisible man. My friend, aim at the table. Why at the table? Because then they'll see the trick. I don't follow you. What trick? The trick of the looking glasses. There. You see now, my friend? I think I do. The legs of the table form a triangle with its point towards you. Panels of looking glass are fitted in the two sides facing you. What do you know about that? You think you can see under the table, but what you actually see are the side walls of the room reflected in those two mirrors. Oh, wait a minute. You mean... I mean that my old servant, hidden behind the mirrors, has just been working the gloves to a panel in the tabletop. It's a very old trick, first shown by Colonel Stadare at the London Polytechnic. And that's what happened last night? Yes. And you had nothing to do with it? Nothing, whatever. Nor had my servant. Then who did do it and why? What is the explanation of all this? Well, I can't tell you why. That's what beats me. But I can tell you everything else. This invisible man who's been scaring us all silly? My dear young lady, there's no invisible man. There never has been. I might believe that, Professor Ansmith, if I hadn't seen a church bell ringing where there was no hand to ring it. And poor old Emmett flung out of the tower as though a giant hand had got hold of him. You're not saying that was done with the looking glasses? No, my friend, not at all. That was really clever. Strings? Wires? Ropes? No, they weren't necessary. But the thing's impossible. Oh, no. <clears throat> the same principle was used by my old friend J.N. Maskelyne to make mechanical figures work. Psycho played whist, and Zoe drew pictures. I myself, I... Here. Go on, sir. You yourself. What are you going to say? Uh, the secret I was about to say remains unknown even today. You were right, in a way, when you tell us that Emmett acted as though a giant had got hold of him. A giant had got hold of him. At least, a gigantic force. Oh, before we all go completely mad, would you mind telling us what this gigantic force was? Not at all. It was compressed air. Compressed air? But don't you see it even yet, any of you? No. A compressed air pipe with a thousand pounds pressure behind it was run up into the tower facing the bell. It could be operated from the ground outside. The pressure was turned on and off in bursts. It made that heavy bell swing like a toy. Emmett, don't you remember? Emmett rushed forwards towards the bell. And the air pressure? The air pressure struck him like a sledgehammer and flung him headlong out of the tower. There's your miracle, gentlemen. 
That's all there was to it. Sir, I can't doubt what you say. It's too circumstantial and too right. But, but what, my friend? The compressed air tanks. The mechanical apparatus to work this trick. Well, what about it? Well, where did it come from? Such things don't grow on bushes. No, but they do grow on riveting machines. Riveting machines? Yes, such as the riveting machine they're using on the air raid shelters along the seawall. Would you care to tell us, Dr. James Norwood, why you and your friend Wellman have been playing all these tricks? Jim Norwood, is this true? Why, of course it's true, Mr. Morley. Don't be so gullible. Jim and George Wellman doing all this? I don't believe it. Take a look at their faces, young lady. Did you ever see a guiltier-looking pair? So we look guilty, do we? Frankly, you do. We played the whole game and convinced the village there was an invisible man. Is that it? Yes. You worked the glove trick in your own house. And Wellman worked the air trick with his own equipment. Everything else was nothing but a pack of lies and a lot of atmosphere. Playing conjurers and making a blasted hash of it. Is that all, Professor Ann Smith? Well, remember, you brought this on yourselves. I didn't want to expose you. No, Professor. I bet you didn't. Easy, George. Take it easy. Jim, is this true? Before you start pitching into me, Janice, let me have my word first. Do you remember what I said to you at the church tonight? At the church? Yes, I asked you to remember something, even if you didn't understand it. All right. Can you remember what it was? Oh, Jim, please. You're only trying to evade this. Oh, I, I'm so confused now, I don't remember anything. All I can think of is this horrible business and what's behind it. Father can't believe his ears, and I'm not much better. We've practically idolized you. All we want you to do is answer a straight question. Jim, are these accusations true? Yes, they are true. Doubtless he had a good reason, Janice. Doubtless he had a good reason. Yes, we had a good reason. The very best reason in the world. You had a good reason for scaring people half to death and trying to kill poor old Henry Emmett? We didn't mean any harm against Emmett. That was an accident. But you dare to defend yourself now? Yes, just that. Before we go home, Father, shall we apologize to Professor Ann Smith? I hope he'll try to think better of English hospitality. Good, Janice, good. I hope he will, too. You hope he will. Listen, Janice, before you act on any belief, you have to be absolutely sure in your own mind. George and I had to prove something, and now I'm glad to say we have proved it. Oh, I can't stand this any longer. If you have anything to say, go on and say it straight out. What was it you had to prove? We had to prove to our own satisfaction that this pretended American who calls himself Professor Ann Smith... Pretended American? Who calls himself Professor Ann Smith? We had to prove that this pretended American was no other than Karl Heinrich von Keist, the celebrated oh. stage magician from the Winter Garden Theater in Berlin. What? Whose real job is to find the camouflage aerodrome near Berry St. Edmund. No. He explained his own tricks very nicely, George. We'll swear out a warrant in the morning. And so closes The Man Without a Body, starring John Sutton and George Zuko. Tonight's tale of... Suspense. This is your narrator, The Man in Black, who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us again next Tuesday, when the distinguished actress, Miss Agnes Moorhead, 
will be heard in one of her many brilliant characterizations. Starring with Miss Moorhead will be Miss Ellen Drew, who as Carol Linden tells the amazing story of Uncle Henry's Rosebush. The producer of these broadcasts is William Spear, with Ted Bliss, the director, Bernard Herman and Lucian Mahowick, conductor and composer, and John Dixon Carr, the author, collaborated on tonight's Suspense. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Suspense. This is the man in black here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. Heading our star Hollywood cast tonight is Mr. Warren William, and with him is Mr. Eric Blore. No fewer than nine times have these two gentlemen appeared together in screen thrillers based on the adventures of one of the most celebrated characters of modern crime fiction. This familiar character will speak to you now for the first time on the air, as with the story called Murder Goes for a Swim and the performances of Warren William as Michael Lanyard and Eric Blore as Jameson. We again hope to keep you in... Suspense. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Allow me to introduce myself. Nowadays, meeting me on the street, you'd most likely recognize me as Michael Lanyard, an author of sorts. But 
if you will not be too free with the information, because I've been at some pains to allow bygones to be bygones, I was once known rather well by quite a different name. And there are still times when I find myself obliged, or should I say forced, to return to that character, to resort to the somewhat questionable talents of the lone wolf. As a matter of fact, my presence here this evening is prompted by an uncontrollable desire to reminisce a little. Eh, Jameson? Oh, quite right, Mr. Lanyard. And if you'll pardon the gentleman's gentleman for saying so, sir, playing nip and tuck with the police, meeting lovely ladies, you pilfering an occasional gem, I living, so to speak, from hand to pocket. Ha <laughs> ha. Those were the days, sir. <laughs> yes, those were the days. Absconding at times. Perhaps a touch of embezzlement here and there. Now, now, hold on, Jameson. If we're going to reminisce in public, I suggest we confine our recollections to our later period, when the lone wolf had become a gentleman of leisure and used his talents in the interests of law and order. In that case, sir, I suggest you relate the episode of our little experience at that horrible party we attended at that Long Island estate. Remember, sir? Of course, Jameson, the Rutherford Barnes estate. If I remember correctly, the occasion was some sort of charity bazaar. We were invited uh, for the weekend. The phone rang just as we were about to leave the apartment. Mr. Lanyard, this is Betty Lawson. You've never heard of me before, but I know you've been invited to spend the weekend with Mr. Rutherford Barnes. Please, you must accept the invitation. Come down immediately, right now. It's just a little after two o'clock. And if you're not too late, the lone wolf may be able to prevent... A murder. Jameson and I arrived at the Barnes estate a bare two hours after we'd received the mysterious telephone message. I was introduced to all kinds of people... First, the famous gossip columnist, Ralph Clinton. Well, Mr. Lanyard, this is indeed a surprise. And I might say a pleasant addition to our little gathering. Something always happens when you're lone wolfing around. Oh, I know, I know, you've reformed. But a fellow can hope for a little excitement, can't he? See you later, old man. Then I met a very, very beautiful young lady. Oh, Mr. Lanyard, we haven't met yet. I'm Cynthia Waring. I've read all your stories and admired the ingenious way you solve those baffling mysteries. I think you're wonderful. And, of course, there was our host himself, Mr. Rutherford Barnes, who had recently announced his engagement to Miss Waring. I believe you've met just about everyone, Lanyard. That is, everyone except Bill Hodges. He's the firebrand of our little congregation. He's probably wandering around walking off the effects of the last ten cocktails. Just make yourself comfortable. Strangely enough, I failed to meet a Miss Betty Larson, the frightened young lady who had phoned. Anyway, the afternoon wore on through the beauty contest at which I was elected to preside as judge, and at which Miss Cynthia Waring, looking very pretty in a big picture hat and hoop skirt, was the winner. After it was over, Jameson and I managed to break away from the rest of the guests, and to escape the heat of the afternoon, we prepared ourselves for a cooling dip in the pool. I say, Mr. Lanyard... We've been to some pretty big and fancy places in our day, but this one is really something. This Rutherford Barnes person must be 
really an important person. You're quite right, Jameson. Rutherford Barnes is listed in Who's Who as the gentleman who made a fortune out of sardines. <laughs> Just think, an entire estate built of sardines. Uncanny, isn't it, Oh, sir? Jameson. Forgive me, sir. No more puns, I promise. Well, I should hope so. I say, this pool is constructed just like a miniature lake. Lilies and all that sort of thing floating on top. Mm, quite naturally, if you're going down for the third time, you just take a lily with you. Oh, what a jolly thought. <laughs> well, here goes. Watch this beautiful swan dive. <sighs> I say... This is most unusual. There's a sort of a sort of a mermaid lying on the bottom of the pool. And she's very pretty, sir. <laughs> Last night it was a barmaid, today it's a mermaid. No, but, but really, sir. <laughs> well, I'm the judge in the beauty contest. I'd better go down and have a look. Don't be away too long, sir. Remember, there are lots of warmer women in the world. Uh, Jameson, quick. Here, give me a hand. Good heavens. It's a girl. Quick, here, lift her out of here. Hurry. I'm, do I'm doing my best. I'll just stand. Here, now, let's put her down I'll, here. You hold, her, hold her there, hold, sir. Yes, Jameson, I, uh, uh, I'm afraid uh, she's dead. Uh, well, well, what do you make of it, sir? What, was it an accident? Well, I don't know. There's, uh, there's a pretty uh, nasty bump on the side of her head. Well, perhaps she slipped and, and hit her head as she fell. Perhaps. But her bathing suit, not quite the style you'd put on to take a swim. Possibly she was in the beauty contest. Of course, that's it. The uh, program listed ten contestants, yet only nine girls competed. Meaning what, Mr. Lanyard? Meaning, Jameson, that this poor kid was the tenth contestant. And if my hunch is correct, her name is Betty Larson. The girl with the telephone message? Precisely. And if her call was on the level, we did arrive too late, and she was murdered. <laughs> Mr. Lanyard! Mr. Lanyard! It's Mr. Barnes and Miss Waring. Take off your robe and cover up the body, Jameson. Yes, sir. Well, Lanyard, we've been looking all over for you, haven't we, Cynthia, dear? Yes, of course. And I'm glad we found you, Mr. Lanyard. I've been wanting to thank you for awarding me the prize in the beauty contest this afternoon. I really didn't think that... <gasps> Mr. Lanyard! There, at the edge of the pool! Yes, it's a girl, and I'm afraid she's drowned. Drowned? Oh, how horrible. Oh, but how did it happen? It... Who is she? I think she's Betty Larson. What do you think, Mr. Barnes? Here, look. <gasps> oh, oh, good heavens. Oh. Yes. Yes, that is Betty Larson. I, oh, I had no idea. Well, then you do know the girl, Mr. Barnes. Why, yes. As a matter of fact, only recently I recommended her for a job. She's the local telephone operator. And the village beauty. Mr. Barnes and Miss Larson were childhood sweethearts. Uh, Mr. Barnes, tell me, do any of the other guests know this girl? Ralph Clinton, for instance. Could our famous uh, columnist have possibly known Miss Larson? Well, if not in person, most certainly by telephone. You see, for the last few weeks, Miss Larson handled my personal calls. I see. Did she ever mention the fact that there might be a murder? Murder? Well, you see, I received rather strange message. Now, look here, Lanyard. If you're insinuating that Miss Larson was murdered, you're all wrong perfectly obvious. She slipped and fell into the deep end of the pool. She can't swim. We couldn't hear her cry for help over the noise of the party, so the poor girl drowned. As simple as that, eh? Why, of course. 
And I'd appreciate it if you'd be kind enough not to mention this accident to any of the other guests. There's no need to disrupt the entire weekend. I'll notify the sheriff and call the coroner, and they'll take care of everything. I think it might be a good idea, Mr. Lanyard, since you seem so certain that a murder's been committed that you and your man remain on the premises. Our famous lone wolf may have a little explaining of his own to do. Come along, Cynthia. at sea, Mr. Lanyard. The sheriff seems to think the whole thing was an accident, that this Miss Betty Larson person dived into the pool and that's how she hit her head. I doubt that, Jemison. According to Barnes, the girl couldn't swim. Hey, oh, I think we have company. Hey, yeah? If you see Mr. Barnes around, I want to see him. I think he's over at the other side of the house, getting things ready for the bazaar. Bazaar. They don't care how they celebrate a murder, do they? If I'm not mistaken, you're Mr. Bill Hodges, eh? Yeah. Betty Larson and I were going to get married. Everything was great until she starts going around with this society bunch. I got a few things to settle with that society crowd. Especially that keyhole peeper, Ralph Clinton. You seem quite positive, Hodges, that your girl was murdered. Well, I... What do you think it was, an accident? That girl could swim like a fish. Nothing could happen to her in the water. Hey, but Barnes says she couldn't swim a stroke. I said she could swim like a fish. But Barnes says... Did you hear me, you little runt? Oh, amazing how that girl could swim. Now look here, Hodges. What makes you think Ralph Clinton had anything to do with this? Do you know you're practically accusing him of murder? Listen, Betty stood me up twice last week. I followed her in my car, and she met Clinton both times. He was going to put her in this contest, and she was a cinch to win. He promised her. Then look what happens to her. She's dead. Murdered, I tell you. Well, here comes Clinton now. Maybe you'd better tell him about it. Oh, there you are, Hodges. I understand you've been looking for me. Yeah, I have. And now I'm going to fix that pretty face of yours. Wait a second. Here, you can't do that. Here, Jemison, help me break this up. I will as soon as they stop punching me. Hey, don't be a fool, Hodges. Stop it. Stop it, I say. All right. All right, let go of me. Let go. Oh, thanks, Mr. Lanyon. This man's a maniac. Okay. But I'm warning you, Clinton. I'll see you again. When you ain't got your friends around. Personally, I... I don't know whether the girl was killed or not, but... If she was, our friends there, Hodges, will... Have a lot of explaining to do. You mean you've got something on him, Mr. Clinton? Well, when I was discussing the contest with Betty Larson a few days ago... She told me that Hodges had warned her not to enter it. It seems he was afraid that if she won... It might go to her head and she'd walk out on him. As a matter of fact, he told her to stay away from here. Well, there's going to be a coroner's inquest in the morning. And I suggest that you tell this to the sheriff as soon as he returns. Oh, why, uh, tell that to the sheriff? Oh, oh no, no, I, I'd rather hate to do that. You you see, Lanyard, someone in my position, I, uh, I can't afford to get involved. After all, it's uh, my business to report scandal and uh, not get mixed up in it. But look here, you... Oh, I tell you what, uh, uh, give me a chance to uh, think it over and... Uh, I'll, uh, I'll see you at the treasure hunt tonight. Oh, dear. Two o'clock in the morning, Mr. Lanyard. What a ghastly hour to go tramping over the ground... Must we participate in this treasure hunt? Of course, it's all a part of the weekend. Come in. Oh, it's the witching hour, Mr. Lanyard. 
Here's your envelope with the clues for the treasure hunt. You'd better hurry. Everybody's ahead of you. Thank you, Mr. Clinton. We'll catch up. Fine. This ought to be very interesting. Seeing the lone wolf stalking down his prey. You know very well, Clinton. Oh, sure. I forgot. You're not the lone wolf anymore. You're just nice, innocent Mr. Lanyard. Well, good hunting. See you later. Well, here you are, Jameson. This is our clue. Go ahead, read it. Under the oak and under the cover, where have met many a lover, light a match and look deep down, find your clue and win your crown. I say, isn't that lovely? Can you decipher it? Oh, of course, sir. It means, uh, uh, well, it means, uh, well... Exactly, uh, Jameson, the old well. That's where we'll find the next clue. Come on, let's get going. <laughs> The well is down this path. It's right near the stables. Uh, you mean when we get to the well, we find another clue? That's right, and at the end is when we reach the treasure. Oh, the treasure. I say, what is this treasure? Well, Jameson, it's unimportant what the treasure is. It might be a bag of jelly beans. It all sounds very silly to me, sir. There's the well over there. And look here. Got a, got a wooden cover on it. Exactly like it said on the poem. Well, what do we do now? Uh, now, wait a minute. Um, oh, yes, under the cover. Light a match and look deep down. Here, I'll, uh, I'll take this lid off um, and, and put it here. Now, uh, you light a match, Jameson. Right, sir. Our second clue must be somewhere inside the well. Right, heard just a moment. Ah, there's the clue. A piece of paper pinned on the wall inside the well with a big pin. Oh, dash it all. Match went out. I'll light another one. Oh, Jameson, hold it. Hold it, the inside of this well smells like gasoline. Yes, it does. Yes, it does smell like it's full of... Full of... Get away, Jameson. Blow, blow that match out. Uh, are you all right, Mr. Lanyard? Yes, and no thanks to you. Oh, I couldn't help it, sir. If you ask me, we walked right into a trap. And quite obviously. Here, oh. let me help you up. Oh, thank you, sir. Oh, if I'd had any idea... Ouch! Well, now what's the matter? Oh, I've, I've been stabbed. Well, let me see. Oh, steady, Jameson. I'll pull it out. Oh, be careful, sir. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh! There we are. And very interesting. What is it, sir? Oh, it's that big pin. You could have been hurt quite badly. Well, if you ask me... Uh, uh, come along, Jameson. Uh, uh, we've got work to do. playing this little pleasure hunt game of yours, but it's no fun when the prize is two bodies, especially if they happen to be our two bodies. Well, surely it was only an accident. I wish I could believe that, Miss Waring. But there's no rhyme or reason for what's been happening. If the accident at the well was another attempt at murder, then... Well, then... Then all our lives could be in danger. Steady, Cynthia, darling. I've 
Presume you have some idea of who the murderer might be, Mr. Lanyard. <laughs> you flatter me, Mr. Barnes. I would think you had surely lined up one or two likely suspects, Mr. Lone Wolf. Why don't you tell them about our friend, Mr. Clinton, sir? Clinton? Well, oh, well, there are some mighty interesting aspects to that road company, Winchell. He was meeting Betty Larson secretly. At least that's what Hodges says. I can believe that. Clinton would stoop to anything. I didn't want to have him around, but Cynthia felt that we should cater to him for the sake of publicity for the bazaar. Hodges also insists that Clinton arranged for Miss Larson to enter the beauty contest, and that Clinton promised her that she would win. And uh, there's the little incident at the well. Clinton is in this thing right up to his his clues. Help! Mr. Barnes! Somebody come out here! Hurry! That sounds like Hodges. He's right out there at the side of the house. Well, come on. We can go through these French windows. Here, in the bushes, you'd better hurry. What is it, Hodges? What's wrong? I don't know. Don't ask me. I don't know anything about it. Great heavens, look at Clinton. Oh, I can't stand it. I can't stand it. What awful things are going on. <laughs> I don't know how it happened. I was just coming down the path. There in the bushes, he was lying He's right He's done for, all right, Mr. Lanyard. Shot. Murdered. Murdered? You did this, Hodges. You said you'd get even with Clinton. Now you've done it. I tell you, I don't know anything about it. I was just walking down along the path. I don't know anything about it. It's all right, Hodges. You'll have an opportunity to prove your innocence. Don't you have some theory about all this, Mr. Lanyard? There, there, Miss Waring. I think I can promise you at least that there won't be any more murders. Hold the flashlight a little higher, Jameson, on the clock on the mantelpiece. Yes, sir. Just as you say, sir. But aren't we taking a bit of a risk, Mr. Lanyard? Leaving the estate without checking with the sheriff? Shh, quiet, Jameson. If I don't find what I'm looking for here in Clinton's apartment, I'm afraid we'll have a lot of explaining to do. I'd just as soon we didn't go back. There's been two murders already, and they say things come in threes. Hmm, how interesting. Uh, Jameson, uh, why do you think I've got you flashing the light on that clock on the mantelpiece? Well, sir, well, I'm a bit rusty. I, I think it might be safe to say, well, well, it would be safe. Exactly, Jameson. You never fail the safe behind the clock on the mantelpiece. I say, I was right. Ingenious, eh, Miss Lanyon? You have your moments. Well, it's a long time since I've operated in this fashion, but uh, we'll see, Jameson. If you don't mind, sir, this is like old times. I do mind, Jameson, but unfortunately, certain situations are born of necessity. Then allow me to compliment you, sir. You haven't lost the old touch. No, I'm not so sure. Ah, there we are. Uh, not much of a haul, if you ask me. Nothing but a stack of letters and a notebook. Let's have a look. All that trouble just for a bundle of papers. Just a waste of good time and talent. Well, it could have been a pound of butter or a gas coupon or a back axle or... Oh, ha. I say, what's so interesting? Did you find a clue to the murders? Just the motive, Jameson. Just the motive. <laughs> Look here, you can't keep me here, Sheriff. All I did was find Clinton. You can't hang a guy for that. Keep your shirt on, Hodges. Nobody moves out of this room till Lanyard shows up. 
If he doesn't come in five minutes, I'm going to put out a call and have him pulled in. Seems to me that Mr. Lanyard has admitted his guilt by disappearing. Well, whatever the case may be, I think you should allow me to go. After all, this is my house, and I do have guests. They might think it rather strange if their host isn't around. Look, Mr. Barnes, party or no party, there's been a couple of murders committed around this joint, and everybody in this room is under suspicion. Really, Sheriff? If you're going to keep us here and allow Mr. Lanyard to stick... Good evening, Sheriff. Jameson, say good evening to the Sheriff. He's been very patient, I hope. Good evening, sir. I mean, Constable. I mean, Sheriff. All right, you two. You'd better make it good. Running away from the scene of the crime won't sit so well in court. Please accept my apologies, Sheriff. Well, now that you're here, Mr. Lanyard, perhaps we can clear up this nasty mess. Yes, I presume you've been spending your time checking up on the murders, Mr. Lanyard. That's right. And I've uncovered a few details which uh, I'm sure will prove most interesting, Miss Waring. You're wasting time, Lanyard. Somebody in this room has been running around committing murders. And I'm going to find out who it is or die Or die trying. Who said that? Oh, if it's all the same to you, Sheriff, I think I'll join the other guests. Now, isn't that thoughtful of you? Get away from that door before you tempt me to bring the murder score up to three. Do as he says, Jameson. After all, you don't want to miss all the fun. In just a minute, you're going to have the pleasure of meeting the murderer. Yes, that's just what I'm afraid of, sir. All right, Lanyard. Let's have it. Very well, Sheriff. First, allow me to review events from the beginning. Just as Jameson and I were leaving for Mr. Barnes's residence, we received a rather unusual telephone message. It was Betty Larson. That was about 2 p.m., wouldn't you say, Jameson? <clears throat> Five minutes after two, to be exact, sir. Thank you. We arrived at Mr. Barnes's estate by 3.30. At 5, Jameson and I went for a swim in the pool. It was then we found Miss Larson. At what time did the coroner examine her, Sheriff? I, uh, around seven in the evening. But what difference does it make? The poor girl had been dead for ten hours. All the difference in the world, my dear fellow. Simple arithmetic will show you that it was impossible for Miss Larson to call me at two o'clock. At two o'clock, she'd already been dead for five hours. Hodges, you did it. You paid someone to make that call. You're crazy. I had nothing to do with it. Pipe down, Hodges. Go on, Lanyard. Sheriff, uh, what do you think was used to murder Miss Larson? Well, I... Could this have been the weapon? The pin. The pin, the one I fell on when the well exploded. Yes, Jameson. Let me paint a rather gruesome picture for you, Sheriff. Miss Larson is called down to the edge of the swimming pool. Someone who poses as a friend suggests that she try on a hat. In trying it on, our murderer, pretending to assist, neatly jabs Miss Larson and thrusts the pin through the base of her brain. Oh, how horrible. Uh, could I examine the pin, please? Oh, of course, Mr. Barnes. What? Why, it's a hat pin. Well, Cynthia, it's the one you had in the large hat you wore in that beauty contest. Uh, Cynthia, it was you. All right, stand back, all of you. Look here, sister, you can't get away with this. Shut up! And listen, all of you. I assure you, I know how to handle this gun, and I'm not afraid to use it. Cynthia, stand I... Stand back, Archie. I don't get you, Cynthia. What earthly reason would you have for killing Betty? She wanted to be your friend. <laughs> That's a last. Listen, little boy, Blue. A telephone operator sometimes hears too much for her own good. How do you think she got all those fine furs? From some boyfriend? No, she was too daffy about you, so she decided to try her hand at blackmail. Blackmail? That's right. Only she pushed me just a bit too far. Why, Get you... Get back, all of you! You, prune face! Who? Who, me? I don't mean your brother. Open the door. Come on, open it! Yes. Yes, then. Now stand back, all of you. Very amusing picture. That's right, Mr. Lanyard. Step forward just a little. I'd like to thank you for spoiling a most delightful weekend. 
Here's a little something to remember me by. Jameson, uh, are you all right? Yes, I, I, I think so, sir. Well, thank heaven. Yeah, you did a good job, Jameson. You not only saved Mr. Lanyard from getting shot, but when you fell against this door, you also managed to not miss wearing colder than a doornail. Oh, it was nothing, really. And as for you, sister, maybe these bracelets will keep you out of trouble. Because when you come to, you're going to find yourself booked for murder. Double murder, Sheriff. Dig the bullet out of the wall over there, and you'll find it will match the one found in Clinton's body. Well, what do you know? Come on, Hodges, give me a hand. Okay, Sheriff. I can't believe it. Wait, Cynthia and I had so many plans together. It's hard to believe that, that she could be responsible for those horrible murders. I'm afraid she was. Mr. Barnes, this is Mr. Clinton's notebook. Several cancel checks and a few letters. Look them over, and you'll discover that your dream girl, Miss Cynthia Waring, has quite a number of aliases, and in certain circles has a reputation for landing the biggest fish in the pool. Then, after she's collected enough money, she tosses them back. You were her next victim, Mr. Barnes. And as for the unfortunate Mr. Clinton, being a newspaper man and gossip columnist, he ferreted out her little scheme and, in turn, was blackmailing Miss Waring. <laughs> Well, ladies and gentlemen, I guess that just about puts the cap on that story of our little adventure at the estate of Rutherford Barnes. Miss uh, Cynthia Waring was a very shrewd and fast-thinking young lady. She got one victim with a gun. She almost got Jameson and me at the old well when the gasoline exploded, all of which began with the first and most ingenious of the murders, the particularly cold-blooded murder of Betty Larson with that hat pin. And, uh, Jameson, of course, we have you to thank for having discovered that most important bit of evidence, the uh, pin itself. Ah, yes, Mr. Lanyard. <laughs> and I must say, I got quite a lift out of that myself when I discovered it. Uh, now, now, Jameson, remember your promise. Uh, Suffice it to say, you discovered the pin the hard way, I admit. Oh, yes, sir. There's no doubt about that. The criminal would never have been stuck in the final analysis if I hadn't sat down and got myself stuck. That will be, or that will be all, Jameson. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. So closes Murder Goes for a Swim, starring Warren William with Eric Blore. The first appearance of the lone wolf on the air. And tonight's tale of... Suspense. This is your narrator, the man in black, who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us again next week when Laird Kriegar will star in the suspense play, The Last Letter of Dr. Bronson, with a cast of four distinguished Hollywood players, Helen Vinson, Harold Huber, Ian Wolfe, and Theodore von Else. The producer of these broadcasts is William Spear, who, with Robert Louis Cheon, the guest director... Bernard Herman and Lucy Ann Marowick, conductor and composer, 
collaborated on tonight's Suspense. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Suspense. This is the Man in Black, here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. Heading our starring Hollywood cast tonight is Mr. Laird Kriegar, who will be seen shortly in the 20th Century Fox production of one of the great suspense stories of all time, The Lodger. Tonight, Mr. Kriegar appears as a cynical gentleman who made an unusual bet with death. With Mr. Kriegar as a cast of the screen's most distinguished and characteristic players, Miss Helen Vinson, Mr. Walter Kingsford, Mr. George Coloris, Mr. Harold Huber, and Mr. Ian Wolfe, here to bring us the suspense play called The Last Letter of Dr. Bronson. And so with the performance of Laird Kriegar as he writes for us this last letter of Dr. Bronson, and with the performances of, in the order of their appearance, Walter Kingsford, Ian Wolfe, Harold Huber, Helen Vinson, and George Coloris, we again hope to keep you in. Suspense.
My dear Dr. Mosher, forgive me if I dash this letter off rather hurriedly. There are but a very few minutes remaining for me. The few minutes between now and midnight. You have always protested my fascination with the subject of death. It irked you to hear me discuss the latest electrocution or hanging. I remember your sarcasm the day you found me staring down from the top of the Empire State Building, speculating on the thoughts of a man about to leap from that pinnacle. You alone, Moshe, know how this fascination led to my latest experiment. I should say, my last experiment. I promised you a complete account of it all. Here is that account. First of all, let me recall a conversation which we held here in my study a little over a year ago. There you go again, Bronson. Death and murder. Really, you're unhealthy. Please, you're... answer my question, Moshe. Why do men behave as they do? What keeps them from breaking loose? Why, why don't they kill one another as animals do? Why, because, uh, because they aren't animals. But my dear Moshe, being neither vegetable nor mineral, they must be animals. But what I mean that is... That you uh... do not know the answer. I do. So? I have been studying the question for some time, and I've concluded that there are five basic checks which serve to restrain man from murdering his fellow man. Oh, really, Bronson? The obvious corollary is that murder occurs only when some stronger drive overrides these five basic checks. Oh, you make it sound very simple. It is simple. And what are these five basic checks? Well, I'm not prepared to reveal the outcome of my study as yet. I must put my theory to the test. Uh, that would seem to be a difficult undertaking. Difficult, yes, but intriguing. Oh, well, I take it you're about to embark upon another of your experiments. Correct. Bronson, why must you keep on? These studies invariably bring you some physical, or what is more dangerous, some nervous disaster. And in turn, your handsome bill for putting me in shape to conduct the next. Sooner or later, you will experiment yourself into a position beyond my power to aid you. Oh, let it be later, then. Meanwhile, I shall continue to pursue my sole interest in life. And how do you propose to conduct this, uh, this restraint from murder experiment? Well, a murder is composed of four elements. The murderer, the motive, the opportunity, and the victim. My first step will be to select five men, each of whom will be restrained from murder by the particular check that I'm testing on him. That's no easy task. Well, by no means. It will require an extensive search. But having found my men, I must then supply each with a motive. Greed, revenge, jealousy... I see, and, and your next step must be to give each man an opportunity. Precisely. An opportunity which precludes all checks but the one being tested. Well, not knowing what your checks are, I can't help you there. Well, that'll be relatively simple. And finally, I must supply an intended victim. And you'll ask this victim to face five men, each standing to profit handsomely by murdering him? Correct. His only chance of survival being the correctness of your theory of checks in all five instances? Yes. And do you imagine you'll discover a man with such utter confidence in your reckoning? There is one such man. Who? Myself. Bronson, this is folly. No, Moshe. I never hesitate to risk high stakes on a sure thing, not even my life. Now, look here, Bronson. You're a doctor yourself. You told me to speak to you like a Dutch uncle. Now, as your physician, I, I haven't advise... consulted my physician. But you will take precautions... Provide yourself for emergencies. I tell you, there's no danger. Oh, well, 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 well. Well, when will you begin your experiment? Well, I suppose in about... Well, why wait? Why don't we begin right now? Moshe, I invite you to kill me. What? There's a revolver right here in my desk, and I want you to take this revolver... Oh, you're, you're, you're joking, Bronson. Why, 
What possible motive could I have for murdering you? Motive? Uh, why, we're known to be associated rather closely in our work. You'll come naturally into my entire practice. I'll put that in writing. Why, it's, it's, it's preposterous. Why won't you kill me then, Mosher? Why, there are, there, there are dozens of reasons. In the first place, I'd go to the electric chair for it. Thank you, Dr. Mosher. You've given me an admirable illustration of the first and most obvious of the five checks in my theory. Man refrains from murdering his fellow being because he himself will be killed by law. Remember, Mosher? Remember how it began? That was more than a year ago. Yes, I've spent more than a year in selecting my other four subjects because the checks I wanted them to prove were not so simple. In selecting my people, it was necessary that I cultivate the friendship of each so that when the time should come to confront him with my proposition, I should be certain of how he would act. first of my four potential murders was a clerk named Totten. Totten was badly in debt, his wife in the hospital about to undergo an expensive operation, and he was a deeply religious man. We went to church together on Sunday evenings at St. Luke's, right around the corner from my apartment. One Sunday evening after the service, I asked him to come to my apartment, and we talked as we walked along. You know, Dr. Brunson, I was talking about you to my wife the other day, before they took her to the hospital. I was saying what a great comfort it was to be with you these Sunday nights. Now, come, Mr. Totten, you embarrass me. No, I mean it. In the world today, too many people seem to feel that they no longer need their God. Yes, but their lives are void of the great thing you have in your faith. The church is a great comfort to me, and I do need something to cling to in times like these. Mr. Totten, uh, you could make rather good use of $5,000, couldn't you? It isn't like you to make fun of my poverty. No, I'm quite sincere. You know what even $100 would mean to me? And at present, more than ever. Yes, with your wife's misfortune. Oh, isn't this your apartment we're passing? Oh, I want to go in the sideway. We shall be unobserved. Unobserved? Oh, you'll understand presently. Please, come into my study. Ah, here we are. And now if you'll take this chair opposite my desk. Ah, thank you. Mr. Totten... You said that even a hundred dollars would be a great help to you. Here in my desk, I have this package containing five thousand dollars. Well, what could I do for you that would be worth all that money? Let me explain. My doctor called on me yesterday and he told me... Well, to be quite frank with you, Mr. Totten, he said that I was slowly going mad. Oh, no, that couldn't be. I'm quite all right at present, but it's only a matter of time and I'd rather not have to face it. I believe you can understand that. But there must be something you can do knowing in advance. There is. And I want you to help me. I, I don't understand. Put on these gloves. Take them. But why? As soon as you have them on, I shall hand you this paper knife. Notice how very sharp it is. I grip it firmly, thus, and clearly impress my fingerprints on the handle. Finally, here on the desk, I am leaving this note explaining that I have committed suicide. Suicide? When the knife is in your hand, I want you to drive it into my heart. Then you may leave by the same way we came in. You'll be quite unnoticed, and with the $5,000 in your pocket. You can't mean this. But I do. You see, I don't have the nerve to... Well, I can't quite make the final move myself. You would greatly oblige me. 
And with the $5,000, you will be able to give your wife the treatment she needs. What do you say? You can't die yet. You're not ready. Would you have me wait until I've gone mad? You can't take the matter of life and death into your own hands. I'm not asking you to pass judgment upon my actions. Whether I wish to live or die is my own concern, and my mind is resolved. Is that clear? I'm sorry for you. I'm merely asking you to do something for which I will pay you very well. You will, of course, be killing me. But if you could realize what life would be like for me, otherwise I'm you... very sorry, but I can't oblige you. If it's the law you fear... No, it's not that. You seem to have arranged that perfectly. Then what is it? I'm an honest Christian, and I thought you were, Dr. Bronson. If you don't understand why I can't do this monstrous thing, I suggest you look up the Sixth Commandment. Good night. So, Moshe, my second point was proved. Man refrains from killing because it is against his religious principles. The hands of the clock now read 15 minutes to midnight. One quarter of an hour in which to complete this report. My third proposition called for an entirely different sort of man. In fact, the very reverse of Totten. A man who believed neither in heaven nor hell and also a man of little intelligence. It required careful search. For a number of nights, I frequented the rougher districts of the city. At first, I had no luck. Then one night, I came upon my man very unexpectedly. I was walking along one of the darker streets. There was no one in view. Oh! He was slumped down beside an ash can. He'd been shot in the chest and left arm, severing an artery. He was bleeding profusely. I tore off his shirt and made a tunic for his arm. Oh, no. Oddly, no one came into the alley to investigate. Never mind me. Get away. Was this a gang shooting? What do you think? I think you're going to the hospital. No. They'll blab to the cops. Come on, I'll help you to your feet. Uh, I ain't going. You'll die, man, if you're not treated quickly. I ain't going, I tell you. No cops gonna... No cops... They ain't gonna... Gonna... Uh. His name was Matt Doyle. I visited Doyle in the hospital almost every day. Several months later, I decided to put him to the test. I found Doyle in one of his hangouts and brought him to my apartment. Hey, this sure is a fancy roost you got yourself, Doc. <laughs> I find it very pleasant. Have a cigarette? Mm, thanks. Doyle, how many men have you killed? That's all right, Doyle, I understand. Now, suppose we get down to business. Yeah, I've been wondering what you want me for. I want you to do something for me. And I'm going to give you $5,000 to do it. Will you do what I ask you? For five grand? <laughs> Spell it. I want you to put on these gloves so there won't be any fingerprints. Then I'm going to hand you this knife and you're going to kill me with it. Huh? I've arranged everything so it will appear to be suicide. You're nuts. Not yet, but I will be before very long. That's why I want to die. All you have to do is stab me and slip out with this 5000 Is this on the level? Absolutely. This want of dough is mine if I kill you? That's right. And nobody will know I've done it? No one. These gloves is kind of big for me. That's all right. They'll do. Yeah. Yeah. Want me to put on the other one? It's safer. Yeah, I guess it is. Gee. What is it? I was just thinking. Five grand. Oh, the boss is going to pay me more next. I mean, I never got... I skip it. I want you to understand exactly what you're doing, Doyle. 
without any justifiable cause, merely for the sake of money, you are going to murder me. You understand that? Yeah. You've been hired to do this before? Yeah. I suppose it don't hurt to talk about it, now that you're going But you've never killed a friend, have you? Yeah, I have. Anyway, they watched my pals till they got in the boss's way, but when the bosses say slip it to a mat, then they was just another job to me. But there's a little difference in this case, Doyle. I saved your life. Yeah. I don't know. What? I don't know. Nope, I can't do it. But I thought you said that yeah, you... Yeah, take these gloves. Afraid of the law? No. What's the matter, then? Is it because I'm your friend? That's no, more than that. I can't bump you off, even if you want it. It would be an act of true friendship. I ain't so sure. When a cat has fits, you put it out of its misery, don't you? That's what I want. Oblivion. Peace. Sorry, Doc, I ain't the guy. It's like you said. You saved my life, so that's that. I'm sorry. I wish you could help me. Oh, me too, but not that. Now, if you got some other punk you want to <laughs> care of... There's no one. Thanks just the same. Oh, don't mention it. <laughs> There was my third proposition. A man will not kill fellow man if a sufficient degree of gratitude has been invoked. Even a professional killer and one of the lowest examples of human life, such as Doyle, could not bring himself to murder his benefactor. My next subject was altogether different in temperament. With Judith Ainsley, I used a special technique. I first encountered Judith Ainsley when I operated on Barrett Sheffield, the actor. You will recall that Sheffield was brought to the hospital with a lung abscess. As I prepared to do the rib resection, I noticed that the nurse standing beside me was greatly agitated. Retract us, doctor. Thank you. Doctor, do you think this is advisable? What? Is this when the air is more pronounced? Listen. Yes. Miss Ainsley, another hemostat, please. But he's getting blue. Doctor, do you think you really should? He's cyanotic. Miss Ainsley. I'm sorry, Doctor, but if... Doctor, Doctor. Quickly, quickly, caffeine. Quickly. Stethoscope. Here it is. That's that. Yes. Miss Ainsley, what's the matter with you? You've been acting strangely all through this operation. You killed him. You killed him. You shouldn't have gone ahead. You know that. I warned you. I shall see to it, Miss Ainsley, that you are never assigned to one of my cases again. What's the matter with you, anyway? Have you never seen a pulmonary before? Or does it upset you to see a handsome actor like Barrett Sheffield die? Yes, it did. Oh? Yes. We were going to be married next week. <laughs> I ever saw hate, cold, undying hate, it was in that girl's eyes as she turned and left the operating room that day. I had made the most implacable enemy of my life. As I come to my third check, dear Mosher, it suddenly occurred to me that Judith Ainsley was the perfect subject. One day at the hospital, I inquired about Miss Ainsley and learned that she had done four years of medical and was now interning at Cedars of Lebanon in hope of picking up a resident fellowship. I went down to the hospital and sat in the doctor's lounge, waiting for her. 
Presently, she came in with another intern. I stood up. She turned and looked at me. I saw again in her eyes that inexorable hate. She had never forgiven me for what she felt was my negligence in the death of the man she loved. I walked toward her. Excuse me, please. I see you remember me, Miss Ainsley. Yes, will you excuse me, uh, Miss please? Miss Ainsley, you may not believe this, but I've come here especially to talk to you today. To talk to me, Dr. Bronson? Yes. Come along with me, please. In this treatment room, please. We can talk privately. Dr. Bronson, I don't think there could be anything you and I can say to each other. Well, now, Miss Ainsley, that all depends. That all depends. Sit down, won't you? Um, Miss Ainsley... Dr. I... Ainsley, if you please. Oh, yes, of course. Doctor, I have a little proposition to make to you. First of all, there are two facts I'd like to be sure of. A, you are unable to set up your own practice because you don't have the money to get started. Is that right? I don't see what business that is of yours. But it happens to be true. Fine. Fact B. You still hate me and feel a strong desire to be revenged for the wrong which you consider I have done you. Yes, I'm afraid that's true, Dr. Bronson. Good. Good? Yes. You see, I want to pay someone to murder me. And I think you'd enjoy it more than anyone. And you need the money, too. Dr. Bronson, I'm very busy. There's a patient in 302. Will you... Please... Wait a moment, Dr. Ainsley. I'm perfectly serious. Absolutely serious. You want to die? Yes. You see, I'm going mad. I can't face it. I wish to end my life immediately. You're smiling. Good, you're interested then. You're going mental, Dr. Paresis? Yes, hopeless. I've been to five or six men about it. Are you far gone? Hallucinations? Delusions of grandeur? Yes, advanced stages. Agony. Yes, it must be quite a temptation to get it over with. I wonder what I would do if it happened to me. I want you to understand, Doctor, that I'm not asking you to perform a crude murder. This would uh, look like a simple error, unavoidable. There would not be the slightest aspect of homicidal intent. Really? That's most interesting, Doctor. Go on. Uh, my heart. I've had considerable damage. Coronary occlusion. Had to spend some six weeks on my back. Just got up last week. Naturally, I was given digitalis. Oh, I see, Doctor. You've been heavily digitalized, and if someone were to give you an injection of calcium gluconate, you would have an immediate heart block, dead within a few minutes. Exactly. <sighs> I must compliment you, Dr. Ainsley. You've learned a great deal. What a pity you can't have your own practice. And that, of course, reminds me... Ah, another inducement? Of course. I plan to pay you the sum of $5,000 for your professional services in this matter. And I think, unless times have changed greatly since I've been in practice myself, you ought to be able to set up handsomely with that. My own practice. You'd better be careful, Doctor. You may tempt me a little bit too far. I thought you'd find it an attractive proposition. It will be only an error. I will say that I'm feeling badly again, a recurrence of my pericardial pains. I'll go back to bed and ask that you be assigned to my case. The rest is simple. No one would ever expect you to know that I'd been digitalized. Still, if I were on my toes, I would naturally go over your case history before giving medication of any kind. Well, yes, I suppose that's true. Professional people might think you had been a little lax. Might not have the highest regard for a new doctor who launched her career with such an unprofessional incident. Just a slight stain on your reputation for just a short while. You're very clever, doctor. You knew that would do it, didn't you? I want to thank you. You've done me a great service. You mean you'll do it? You've reminded me that nothing, no money, revenge, nothing, can be worth the slightest suspicion in a doctor's career. 
I've worked too hard. I've waited too long for my practice. When I get it, it won't be soiled by any single act of carelessness. They'll never say that I lost any patient because of an error in judgment. You see, I once knew a doctor who did. There, Moshe, is my fourth check. Man, or in this case, woman, refrains from killing because of the fear of loss of reputation. Now I come to the testing of my fifth subject. A man who would not murder because he couldn't bear the sight of blood, much less the responsibility for shedding it. Ladern was my man, and I found him shortly after my search began. On that day, I saw him turn a ghastly white as a fast-moving car almost ran over a small dog which had run into the street. It wasn't a particularly frightening sight, but Ladern clutched at his throat and fell in a dead faint. I, of course, made it my business to become acquainted with him. I hadn't seen him for more than four months until tonight. He's changed, I noticed, as he took his place at my desk. He's thinner. His dark eyes seem blacker than ever. Laderne, I want you to do me a favor. It's a little peculiar, but I'm perfectly sincere about it. Well? Circumstances require that my life be ended, but I can't quite reach the point to kill myself. I've arranged everything necessary to give the appearance of a suicide. Here is the farewell note which I've written. I see. And here is the knife with which, apparently, I shall have killed myself. Notice I am carefully putting my fingerprints on it. Yes. Here are the gloves for you to wear. And here is $5,000 for you if you will drive this knife into my heart. What do you say? You've arranged everything? Everything. No one knows I'm here? No one. And uh, you want me to kill you? I... Yes. Of course, it will be a bit messy. When a person is stabbed, his blood usually splurts out. But if you keep to one side, I don't think much will get on you. Why do you want to die? My doctor says that I'm going insane and that I haven't got much longer. <laughs> That's strange. <laughs> About going mad? About him saying that you're going mad. Oh, yes. It was a shock. No, I don't mean that. What do you mean? That's the same thing they told me. Oh, that's strange. They what? They told me over a year ago that I was going mad. <laughs> I only laughed at them. Over a year? Well, uh, do you... Have you noticed any change? Not much, at least no change for the worse. Oh, that's good. In fact, I, I'm really much better. I've been having fewer and fewer of those sick spells. You remember how I was the day that dog was almost run over? You've gotten over those sick spells? I haven't had one in three months. Then there isn't any check. Check? What check? Uh, nothing. Oh. Uh, well, this is going to be a pretty messy business. We might as well get it over with. Nice gloves you've got here. Nice and smooth on my hand. Then you're going through with it? Yes, can't let you down. Oh, never mind the knife. I've got my gun right here. Look, 38. Beauty, isn't it? Yes. Then if you'll give me back the knife... No, I... no, no, I'll keep it for you. <laughs> yeah, I've used this gun a lot in the past three months. I've bumped off about 50 dogs. You've done what? It's very interesting. I, I do it after midnight. It's fun watching the dogs. 
You have to know just where to hit them. <laughs> and it kills them instantly. But the noise in here, aren't you afraid that somebody no, will hear? Silence, though, look. I don't like to wake people up when I kill their mutts. But they'll find the bullet. They'll trace to your gun. They're sure to get you. In a suicide, the weapon stays right beside the body where it falls. Suicide? Who says this is suicide? It's murder. I'm going to murder you. That's what you asked me to do. Look here, Laderne. This has gone far enough. I, I was only joking. I don't want you to kill me. Five thousand, eh? All here. Listen to me. I was only joking. You ready? Laderne. Shall I shoot now? No, wait. You want it through the heart or brain? Uh, can't you wait? Just a little while. Wait? What for? Uh, well, I've been conducting a little experiment. I'd like to write an account of it before I go. Well, what, what sort of an experiment? I don't think you'd understand. Oh, okay. I'll wait till midnight. <laughs> then I've got to go. There's a German police dog I've been wanting to get. A big, ugly brute. <laughs> It'll be fun. Yes, I'll wait. Thank you. The clock says ten minutes past eleven. Yes, you've got fifty minutes. I'll wait by the window. And so, Moshe, my experiment has ended. As you predicted, I have finally placed myself in a position beyond your power to aid. <laughs> Strange, isn't it? But the one thing I didn't count on was the choosing of a subject who would not respond to my checks. Who in fact had no checks at all. For insanity knows no restraint. Ronson, midnight. Oh yes, Laderne, I'm hurrying. He is still at the window. And he is sure to shoot me. There is nothing I can do to say or stop him. I know that. I'm beginning to understand exactly what is going on in his twisted mind. I wonder why. Now I shall sign my name for the last time and lay down my pen. Then I shall look up and say, All right, Laderne. All right, Laderne. closes the last letter of Dr. Bronson, tonight's tale of suspense. In our Hollywood cast tonight, Laird Kriegar played Dr. Bronson. Walter Kingsford played Dr. Mosier. Ian Wolfe was Mr. Totten. Harold Huber played Doyle. Helen Vinson was Nurse Ainsley. And George Coloris played Laderne. This is your narrator, the man in black, who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us again next week when Robert Young will star in an adaptation of a story by James Thurber called A Friend to Alexander. The producer of these broadcasts is William Spear, who with Robert Louis Cheon, guest director, Richard Paulette Craig, author, Bud Gluskin and Lucian Marowick, conductor and composer, collaborated on tonight's Suspense. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.
With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Suspense. This is the man in black, here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. Tonight from Hollywood, we bring you two of America's most artful and distinguished stars. From the Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Studios comes Mr. Robert Young, and from Warner Brothers... Miss Geraldine Fitzgerald. Mr. Young and Miss Fitzgerald are with us to play in an unusual tale by the unusual James Thurber. An excerpt from the book, My World and Welcome to It, called A Friend to Alexander, adapted for radio by Freya Howard, is tonight's study in suspense. If you've been with us before, you will know that suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion and dangerous adventure. In this series are tales calculated to intrigue you, to stir your nerves, to offer you a precarious situation, and then withhold the solution until the last possible moment. And so it is with Mr. Thurber's poignant and strange story and the performances of Robert Young as the man who was a friend to Alexander and of Geraldine Fitzgerald as his wife, Bess, who relates these events to us. We again hope to keep you in... Suspense. was a laughing, happy-go-lucky fellow before he began to have those dreams. I guess he was pretty much like dozens of other men who go to work every morning, settle down in soft chairs with their newspapers after dinner, 
and like a weekend in the country now and then. He was fond of easy living and good times. Like everyone else, he talked of the war, rationing tires and his golf scores. Until, until those nightmares began to plague him. At first, I was amused. You know, I've been dreaming about Aaron Burr every night. What for? Well, how do I know what for? <laughs> Aaron Burr is a funny person to be dreaming about nowadays. Why? I mean, with all the countries in the world at war with each other. What's so funny about dreaming? Maybe you're upset. Well, everybody dreams, don't they? I don't see why you'd see Aaron Burr in your dreams. Well, I do. Where do you see him? Oh, places. In Washington Square or Bowling Green or on Broadway. Even here on 55th Street? Mostly downtown. I'll be talking to a woman in a Victoria. A woman holding a white lace parasol. Oh. And suddenly there will be Aaron Burr. Bowing and smiling and smelling like a carnation. Telling his stories about France and getting off his insults. Who is the woman in the Victoria? Hmm? What? The woman. Who is she? Well, how do I know? You know about people in dreams, don't you? They're nobody at all. Or everybody. Ah, but you see Aaron Burr plainly enough, though. I mean, he isn't anybody or nobody. Or everybody. All right, all right. You have me there, but I, I don't know who the woman is. Are you sure? What's more, I don't care. Maybe it's Madame Jumel or Mittens Willett or a girl I knew in high school. Who's Mittens Willett? She was a famous New York actress in her day, 50 years ago or so. She's buried in an old cemetery on 2nd Avenue. I've seen the tombstone. That's very sad. Why is it? Oh, I mean, she, she probably died young. Almost all women did in those days. He's a vile, cynical cad. I was standing and talking to Alexander Hamilton when Burr stepped up and slapped him in the face. When I looked at Hamilton, who do you suppose it was? <laughs> I don't know. Who? My brother, Walter one I've told you about. The one who was killed by that drunk in the cemetery. Harry, I never could get that story straight. I've told you about it a dozen times. This drunk came up to him when his back was turned and... What was he doing in the cemetery? That's not the point. He was killed. That's what's important. And I loved him very much. I don't understand what... What's you... the use of telling you every time I mention it? You start asking the same questions. I understand now, dear. When you looked at Hamilton, he was your brother Walter. Yes. Harry, maybe... Maybe we ought to go to the country for more weekends. Weekends? Yes. I'm going to bed. For a time that evening, I worried about Harry. Not about his dream. Why shouldn't he dream? But I wondered about his health. He looked so, so worried somehow, so unlike himself. I was glad when he went to bed. A good night's sleep was just what he needed, I thought. How could I know? The next morning, we were quietly eating our grapefruit when Harry flung down his spoon. I wish he'd go back to France and stay there, him and his la-la. Who, dear? <laughs> oh, you mean Aaron Burr. Did you dream about him again? Yes, he said la-la to me. Why should he say la-la? I was at the tavern and we were drinking ale and I said something funny. I don't remember what it was. Something amusing about what uh, Ben Franklin had said to Washington once. One of those things, you know. No, I don't. Have some, have some more coffee, dear. I don't want any coffee. I made this remark and everyone laughed. Everyone but Burr, that is. He sort of sniffed. And then he said, la la. Well, why not? I mean, is there anything wrong about him saying la la? It was the way he said it. He was sneering at me. 
They all noticed it. Who, dear? Who noticed The it? others, all of them. And Hamilton. I was there with Hamilton. It was swell until Burr came in. Aaron Burr. I don't see why you dream about him all the time. Don't you think you should take some luminal? I'm not sick, I tell you. I know what I'm dreaming. I just thought, well, it's always Burr, and that seems odd. Well, why? Why shouldn't I dream about Burr if I want to? But you don't want to. No, but I can't help it. Everywhere I go with Alexander, sooner or later Burr shows up and makes those nasty remarks. Last night he elbowed Alexander out of his way, did it deliberately. Alexander? Hamilton. Oh, Alexander Hamilton. Yes, goodness knows I'm familiar enough with him by this time to call him by his first name. Uh, Harry, you know, we might go to the old Drover's Inn this weekend. You like it there. Hamilton has become not only my brother, Walter, but practically every other guy I've ever liked. Don't you like the old Drover's Inn anymore? Isn't it natural that Hamilton should represent my brother and guys I like? That's natural, isn't it? Yes, I suppose it is. Well, then why are you looking at me like that? You know, dear, I, I wish you'd go and see Dr. Fox. I don't want to see Dr. Fox. I want Aaron Burr to stop sneering at me in my clothes. He looks at me and his lips curl up and he says, La la, Mr. Andrews, what odd taste you have. Mm. I wish you'd go and see Dr. Fox. I'm going to the zoo and feed popcorn to the rhinoceros. That makes thing, things seem right. For a little while, anyway. I thought he'd forgotten all about that ancient pistol duel. Because for two days after that, he lost his haggard, tired look and actually seemed cheerful. But one night, about five in the morning, he came into my room in pajamas and bare feet. His hair disheveled and his eyes wild. He got him. He got him. The rotter got him. Alexander fired in the air and smiled at him. Just like Walter must have smiled. Like Walter? Oh, yes, dear. Your brother Walter, who was killed in a cemetery. This was at Weehawken in New Jersey. What? Your brother? No, Hamilton and Burr. The duel. Hamilton had a white ruff around his neck. Burr was in black tights. French clothes. Alexander lifted his pistol and fired in the air and then smiled at Burr. And then that fiend from hell took deliberate aim. He took so long. He meant to take his time about it. I saw him grin. And then he pointed his pistol at Alexander and fired. He killed him in cold blood, the foul scum. Oh, darling. <laughs> Don't, darling. Here. Here, dear. Take some of these pills. I don't want any. Oh, take it. You'll feel better. I don't want any, I tell you. Here, darling. Swallow. Please, Swallow. All right. There. That's better. The cad. The rotten, sneaking cad. He grinned just as he fired. And Alexander clutched himself at the stomach. Then shook his head and uh, tried to walk forward. And he fell. With his mouth open as though he wanted to say something. And Burr stood there. Grinning. He was better after that, but I kept urging him to see Dr. Fox. At first he refused, but later he decided to humor me. <laughs> he was humoring me by this time, and Dr. Fox, too. How you been feeling, Doc? 
Oh, fairly well, Mr. Andrews. My pulse has been a step... <clears throat> now, uh, just what seems to be the trouble? Nothing. Nothing wrong with me. He has nightmares. Mm, you look a little underweight. Uh, perhaps your diet. Oh, I'm not underweight. Overweight, maybe, but not underweight. Uh-huh. Uh, getting enough exercise? Same as usual. He's... He's worried about something. He always has this same dream. Aha, a dream, eh? What kind of a dream? Just a plain old dream. Aha. No, it isn't. It's about his brother Walter, who was killed in a cemetery by a drunken man. Only it isn't really about him. Really? Why, very few people are actually killed in cemeteries. Ah, it's an interesting coincidence, if I may say so. You mean, you know somebody who was killed in a cemetery, too? Is that the coincidence? No, I... I meant your brother being killed in a cemetery. You know, uh, dead in a cemetery. A sort of, uh... Do you follow me? No. I think you should go see Dr. Fox, Dr. Fox. Hmm. Interesting. Yes, very interesting. I, uh... I wonder if you'd mind stepping into the next room, Mr. Andrews. I want to give you a thorough examination. Uh, right in here, sir, and we'll just have a look at you. you're satisfied. You heard what he said. There's nothing the matter with me at all. I'm glad your heart is so fine. He said so, you know. He said your heart is fine. Sure it's fine. My heart's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> and you know, you know what I was thinking? No, what? I was just thinking that now that Alexander Hamilton is dead, why, you won't see any more of Aaron Burr. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right. I was wrong. Aaron Burr did not leave my husband to sweeter or more peaceful dreams. Harry said nothing about it for several mornings, but I could tell he was still being tortured by those ghosts. He brooded over his breakfast. He didn't answer me when I spoke to him. I dropped my butter knife, and he jumped. What was that? Only my knife. Oh. Harry... Are you still dreaming about that man? Oh, I wish I hadn't told you about it. Forget it, will you? I can't forget it with you going on this way. Can't you forget I mentioned it? Maybe you should see a psychiatrist. Oh, bosh. What, what does he do now? What does who do? Aaron Burr. I don't see why he keeps coming into your dreams now. He goes around bragging that he did it with his eyes closed. Says he didn't even look. Didn't look when? When he killed Alexander in that duel. Well, what... He claims he can hit the ace of spades at 30 paces blindfolded. Furthermore, since you ask what he does, he... He jostles me at parties now. I think you should stay out of this, Harry. It wasn't any business of yours anyway. And it happened so long ago. I'm not getting into anything. It's getting into me. Can't you see that? I see that we've got to get you away from here. Oh, maybe if you slept someplace else for a few nights, you wouldn't dream about him anymore. I don't know. Let's go to the country tomorrow. We'll stay at the Limelock Lodge. Uh, Bess, why can't we visit the Crowleys? They live in the country. All right, fine. Bob has a pistol, and we could do a little target shooting. What do you want a pistol for? Plenty of open space. I think you'd want to get away from shooting. Yes. Sure, dear. <laughs> The vacation seemed a success at first. 
When we arrived at the Crowley's house in the cab, I thought I'd left my suitcase at the railroad station. Harry laughed his old normal laugh for the first time in many days as he found the bag and handed it to me. And then he leaned over and kissed me. Good old Kennedy. Oh, Harry, this is wonderful. <laughs> oh, we'll have a grand time, Ben. Yes, dear. Hello, Matt. Hi, Harry. Here they come. Good old Bob. Remind me to tell him that rabbit joke. Mm, hello, Madison. I'll take your bags, Mr. Andrews. Thank sir. you, Madison. Good to see you. Uh, thank you, sir. Hello there. Fizz, what a wonderful Well, day. Bob, I how's the old country squire? <laughs> oh, fine. How have you been? Never better. Boy, it's good to be here. Hello, Alice. Well, you too. I'm so glad you've come. Gets kind of dull here in the hinterland. Oh, I'm glad, too. <laughs> Say, wait till you get one of our extra special cold martinis into you. Mm. You'll feel ship shape. Still know how to mix them, huh? Better never. Get lots of practice these long country winters. <laughs> oh, it was grand, seeing Harry's face relaxed and smiling over his cocktail glass. When I went to bed that night, I felt that at last that nasty old business of the dream was over. And I was happy. But when I awoke the next morning, when I awoke, I saw my husband lying rigid on his back, staring at the ceiling. One Henry Andrews, an architect. What's the matter, dear? Nothing. Oh, why don't you go back to sleep, Harry? It's only eight o'clock and this is the country. One Henry Andrews, an architect. What are you talking That's about? That's what he calls me. Calls you who? One Henry Andrews, an architect, he keeps saying in his nasty little sneering voice... One Henry Andrews! Harry, Harry, please don't yell. You'll wake the whole house. It's early. People want to sleep. I'm beneath him. I'm just anybody. I'm a man in a gray suit. Be on your good behavior, my good man, he says to me. Or I shall have one of my lackeys give you a taste of the riding crop. Why should he say that to you? You ask me why. He wasn't such a great man, was he? I mean, didn't he try to sell Louisiana to the French or something behind Washington's back? He was a traitor. Then why worry what he says? He was a scoundrel but a very brilliant mind. I was in hopes you, you weren't going to dream about him anymore. I thought if we came up here... It's him or me. I can't stand this forever. Neither can I. As I had expected, Harry spent most of the afternoon with Bob shooting at targets. At first, they just aimed at the paper squares... It all seemed to be good-natured and in fun. After a while, Harry stood with his back to the dead tree trunk on which the targets were nailed. Then he walked 30 paces ahead in a stiff-legged manner, and his face was set in stern lines. His revolver was at arm's length above his head when he turned suddenly and fired. Bob dropped to the ground, scared. Hey, what's the big idea, Harry? But Harry didn't answer. He started to walk back to that dead tree trunk again. Then, with his back to the target, he began marking off the 30 paces. Bob called to him. I think they kept their arms hanging straight down. I don't think they stuck them up in the air. But my husband continued to count off. At the 30th step, he lowered his arm, wheeled about suddenly, and fired from his hip. Hey there, watch out! Two of the shots missed the tree, but the last one hit it. Like a mechanical man or someone in a trance, Harry began to walk back to the tree again without a word his lips tight, his eyes bright, his breathing coming fast. And look, it's my turn! But Harry about-faced and stalked on. This time when he fired, his eyes were closed. <laughs> Poor Bob didn't know what to make of this strange behavior. Hey, good heavens, man, give me that gun, will you? Without a protest, Harry let him have it. For the first time, he spoke. 
I... I need a lot more practice, I guess. Well, not with me standing around. Come on, let's get back to the house and shake up a drink. Gee, I've got the jumps. I need a lot more practice. I guess I must have slept soundly that night because I didn't hear him leave the room. He must have crawled out of bed, dressed silently and crept out of the room. The sun was just coming up and the light was hard and the air was cold. Then I heard the shot. I threw on a dressing gown and ran downstairs. The Crowleys were in the hall. Oh, good heavens, Bess. Is Harry all right? It sounds like it. Where is he? What's he doing? It sounds as though he's out behind the studio shooting. Alice. Oh, no, no. Take it easy, Bess. Bob will go out and get him. Maybe maybe he had a nightmare or walked in his sleep. No, no. He never walks in his sleep. He's awake all right. Let's go down and get some coffee. He'll need some. Yes, I'll need some, too. Hey, what the dickens is the matter with him, anyway? I don't know. I'm so sorry. Bob, to... you go get him. At your service, madam. Alive or dead. Bob, stop it. Okay. I'll do my best. Come on, Bess. We'll go to the kitchen. What's that noise? Where? In the kitchen. <coughs> oh. Oh, it's you, Madison. Uh, yes, ma'am. Well, you're shaking. I, I was just wondering, ma'am. No, I... no, no. It's all right, Madison. You go on back to bed. Uh, Clothita was scared, ma'am, and I oh, thought... Well, you tell Clothita that it's all right. Mr. Andrews is uh, shooting a little. He couldn't sleep. Uh, yes, ma'am. Yes. I, I don't know what to do, Alice. <laughs> I guess the Crowleys were relieved when the cab came to drive us to the station early that day. Their maid had threatened to leave. The neighbors were complaining about the early morning disturbance, and their own nerves were ragged. Boy, I'll need a drink after that. Yes, and make mine a stiff one. Gee, I'm sure glad he's gone. Well, it was either he or Clotheda. You can't afford to lose a good cook these days. Say, what do you think's the matter with him? I don't know. It's what Clotheda would call the shoots, I guess. You know, he said a funny thing when I went out and got him this morning. Well, let's have it. I could stand a funny thing. I asked him what the deuce he was doing out there in that freezing air with only his pants and shirt and shoes on, and you know what he said? What? I'll get him one of these nights. That's just what he said. By this time, I was really frightened. When we returned to the city, Harry was a picture of gloom. Our first night back, I looked at him as he lay on the chaise long in my bedroom in his blue dressing gown, smoking a cigarette. He was haggard and tired and he kept biting his lower lip. I mixed a scotch and water nightcap for him. No thanks, no liquor. I need a steady hand. Watch my hand. Does it tremble? No. Is it steady? Yes, very. That's good. That's very good. You need a steady hand, you know. For what, dear? Oh, things. Harry, will you sleep in my room tonight? No, you'd keep shaking me all night to keep me awake. You're afraid to let me meet him. Are you still on that? Why do you think everybody's better than I? I can outshoot him the best day he ever lived. Oh, of course, In the dear. Whisk, right next to the middle button. 
He has three big pearl buttons on his waistcoat. Came from France. Why don't you dream about somebody else? Anybody else, please. You'd like that, wouldn't you? You'd like to have me dream about somebody who wouldn't hurt a fly. Somebody like that. Because you'd know I'd never get in a duel with him. A duel? You're dreaming of a duel now? Ever since Hamilton died. Burr knows I hate him. It's nearly over now. Harry. It's him or me. I'll get him, the rotter. But Harry... I know I'll get him. See, I have a modern pistol. He has to use an old-fashioned single-shot muzzle loader. <laughs> Is that quite fair? Fair? What do I care if it's fair or not? Was it fair the way he shot Alexander? Was it? Don't be mad with me, Harry. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, darling. I'm very unhappy. I'm sorry, darling. And I'm worried sick. Well, I'm sorry, darling. Don't cry. Please don't cry. It upsets me when you cry. And I mustn't be upset. I must be very calm and rested. My hand must be steady tonight. Especially tonight. I'm so worried, Harry. Don't worry about me. I'll be all right. I'll be fine. My hand is like a rock. Later, when I kissed him goodnight, I knew it was really goodbye. He didn't say anything, and neither did I. It's just that he seemed so far away, in, in another world. And each moment, I felt that he was becoming more and more remote. Something told me he wasn't coming back. I couldn't sleep. After an hour of tossing and turning, I went to Harry's room. He was sleeping peacefully. I sat down in his chair and watched over him for a long while. Then, finally, I must have fallen asleep. A beautiful morning. It was about five in the morning when I awoke. Harry was talking in his sleep. Ah, yes, the doctor. Good of you to come, doctor. Yes, often misty at this hour. Harry. Are they loaded? Splendid. Yes, I'm perfectly ready. Is Mr. Burr? He is good. Shall we proceed? No, I do not care to make a statement. Very well. Yes, I understand perfectly. Ten paces. Turn and fire at the dropping of the handkerchief. Yes, ten paces. Harry, Thank Harry. you for acting as my second, Mr. J. Of course, extremely good of you. Very well, then I'm quite ready. One, Harry. two... Three, Harry, four, Harry, please. Five, Don't, Harry. Six, seven, Harry. eight, nine, ten. <gasps> Harry. Harry, dear. Harry. <laughs> Dr. Fox was puzzled when he examined Harry the next morning. Hmm. Extraordinary. His heart was as sound as a dollar when I saw him the other day. He seemed to be fine, Dr. Fox. I can't understand it. What? Why his heart stopped as if he'd been shot. Shot? Yes. Of course, there are no gunshot wounds and no... Shot. Now, Mrs. Andrews. That's it. Shot. Now, now, you'll have to calm yourself. You can't help him now. I should have known it would happen. I kept staring at Harry's right hand. The three fingers next to the index finger were closed stiffly on the palm, as if gripping the handle of a pestle. The taut thumb was doing its part to hold that invisible handle tightly and unwaveringly. 
but it was the index finger which held my eye the longest. I looked carefully to make sure I was right. Yes, yes, it was so. That index finger was curved inward slightly, as if it were about to press the trigger of a pistol. So there had been a duel after all. Perhaps there was no gunshot wound, but Harry had been shot as surely as he was dead. Dr. Fox saw me staring and spoke to me. What are you looking at, Mrs. Andrews? Harry never even fired a shot. Aaron Burr killed him the way he killed Hamilton. Well, what are you talking about? Aaron Burr shot him through the heart. I knew he would. Yes, but there's no evidence. To... I knew he would. Then Dr. Fox put an arm around me. He looked at me gently and, and a bit frightened, the way I used to look at Harry when he told me about his dreams. He led me to his assistant and whispered something. He thought I didn't hear him, but I did. She's crazy. Stark, raving crazy. I let the assistant take me away. Maybe he thought I was crazy, too. But now, I knew. Aaron Burr got Harry. Just as he had killed Hamilton in that old quarrel long ago. closes A Friend to Alexander, starring Robert Young and Geraldine Fitzgerald, the James Thurber story which was tonight's tale of Suspense. The producer of these broadcasts is William Spear, who with Robert Louis Sheehan, guest director, Freya Howard, author, and Bernard Herman and Lucien Marowick, conductor and composer, collaborated in presenting A Friend to Alexander. Now CBS is pleased to announce that beginning August 17th at 10 to 10.30 Eastern War Time, Mr. Robert Young, whom you've heard as star of tonight's suspense, will begin a brand new CBS series entitled Passport for Hunter. Passport for Hunter will bring you each week the adventures of an American newspaper reporter among the people of the United Nations. Next week's broadcast will be written and directed by Norman Corwin with music by Bernard Herman. And the stars, we have said, will be Robert Young. This is your narrator, the man in black, inviting you to be with us next week at this same time when with Miss Agnes Moorhead and with a repeat performance by popular request of the play called Sorry, Wrong Number, we again hope to keep you in... Suspense. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the extraordinary with Auditory Anthology, a podcast series where science fiction short stories come alive. Narrated by me, your voice of weird darkness, and curated by Keith Conrad, each episode is a journey into imagination. Explore cosmic wonders and futuristic tales, and dive into a universe of stories where the impossible is possible. Auditory Anthology, available at auditoryanthology.com and on Apple, Spotify, or your podcast player of choice. Here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. Tonight, in one of her rare radio appearances, we bring you one of Hollywood's most idolized personalities, Miss Dolores Costello. With such noteworthy and distinguished players as Mr. Martin Koslick, Mr. George Succo, and Mr. Eon Wolf, Miss Costello appears in a story of today played against the background of the new order in Europe. The story of an oppressed people who use strange and effective methods in dealing with their oppressors and with traitors. The story tonight is called The King's Birthday and was written by Corporal Louis Pelletier, AUS. And with the performances of Dolores Costello as the Danish Countess Elsa, of Martin Koslick as the Nazi Goliter, Reitman, of George Succo as Dr. Erickson, and of Ian Wolfe as old Peter of Cronwald Castle, we again hope to keep you in suspense. They come to the castle almost every day now, the Gestapo, trying to question me. But it seems I'm very stupid. Somehow, I don't give the right answer. Perhaps it's my advanced age. When they question me about the night of the king's birthday, I get confused. I ramble on in the fashion of old people. Gentlemen, Cronwall Castle is 300 years old. For all those years, Cronwall has been a symbol of Danish liberty. Gentlemen, the sea waves beat against the rocks of Cronwall. The sea is deep. Ah, the sea knows everything. Ask her. Stop babbling nonsense, you old fool. Ask him my question. Did you know about those notes? But of course, Herr Lieutenant. Everybody in the district knows about them. The notes said Count Victor would kill himself on the night of the king's birthday. Did you see the notes? Oh, no, Herr Lieutenant. But the notes said that Count Victor would kill himself because of his great shame. Uh, that I do know. And the notes said the exact time... Twelve midnight. So, so you know the exact time. Yes, yes, I'm fond of clocks, you see. 
My father had a clock that told the time with a bird jumping out. The bird whistled, like this. Stop that insane chirping. Uh, yes, Sir Lieutenant. I'll take care of you later. Perhaps I'll have something that will improve your memory. Stay there till I call you. Yes, Sir Lieutenant. <laughs> There's nothing the matter with my memory. I could tell them a thing or two if I wanted. I could tell them how it all happened. It began two days before the king's birthday. That was the day the new Nazi Gauleiter, Herr Reichmann, came to the castle to see the Countess Elsa. I was told to show him to the library. It was cold and gray, and the sea was pounding on the rocks, very angry, like it always is in November. The new Gauleiter sat by the fireplace and warmed his hands and called for a glass of brandy. And bring some soda, too, please. Yes, Herr Reichmann. How soon did your mistress say she would see me? In a few minutes, Herr Reichmann. You told her it was most urgent. Yes, yes, I told her. She'll be with you soon. I doubt it. Most women's idea of soon is the best part of an hour. In my country, we train our women to... Uh, the brandy, Herr Reichmann. Oh, well, thank you. Yes, in Germany we... Hmm, Courvoisier. Where did you get brandy like this? Count Victor can get many things that are forbidden to his countrymen, Herr Reichmann. Count Victor's cellar is well stocked. Is it really? Yes. Yes, we have meat at the castle. Nobody in Denmark has meat. Only Cronwald Castle. You're lucky. So they say. Shall I leave the brandy, sir? Yes. But you stay here a minute. Tell me, what's your name? Peter, sir. Ah, yes, Peter. You have been at Cronwald since you were a child. Sixty-three years. Am I correct? Why... Why, yes. How did you know? It's my business to know a lot of things, Peter. You don't approve of Count Victor, do you? It's not my place, sir, to... Three days ago in the marketplace, you were heard to make an indiscreet remark concerning Count Victor's collaboration with Berlin. I think a word very close to traitor was used. Was it, sir? What do you think? I think, Herr Reichman, the fire is in need of some more wood. If you'll excuse me, I'll get some. Do, by all means. And Peter. Yes, sir? Tell your mistress that I do not intend to spend all afternoon here. My business is urgent, and I... You may tell the countess yourself, sir. Yeah, right, Countess Elsa, excuse me, I was just saying... That's quite all right here, Reichman. Sit down, please. Thank you. Peter told me your business was urgent. I hope I haven't kept you. Oh, not at all. My business is urgent. But as a new gauleiter of this district, I might combine social pleasure with business and... Oh, that's very kind of you. I had hoped that my wife, Frau Reichmann... Oh, of course. You must ask her to call sometime. Yes, I will. Although I've never had the pleasure of meeting Count Victor, it would be a great honor if we may call as soon as he returns from Berlin. You certainly, Herr Reichmann. Thank you. And this urgent business? Yes, we come to that. Uh, do you mind if I smoke? Not at all. A good cigar always makes unpleasant things easier to tell. It sounds almost as if you had rehearsed that line on the way to the castle, Herr Reichmann. I did. And since it was ineffective, I'll be blunt, Countess. I prefer it. Three days ago, Countess, to be exact, on the day I arrived at Kronwald to begin my duties as Gauleiter of this district, I found this note on my desk. Read it, please. 
Count Victor of Gronwald will kill himself on the night of the king's birthday. That note was on my desk in the morning. At noon, I found this one. Read it, please. Count Victor of Gronwald will repudiate his Nazi collaborators. He will choose the night of the king's birthday for his death. I thought at first it was some crank, but the notes kept coming. Then I heard that everybody in the district believed what the note said. In every house and shop and farm, they are saying that Count Victor is going to kill himself. You will see why I said my business was urgent. Uh, yes, yes, I see. It's not that I have the slightest fear for the Count's safety, but the writer of these notes must be found and treated with the severest penalties. Certainly no anonymous letter writer could force a Count to take his own life. Hmm, I wonder. What do you mean? You wish me to be frank with you? Naturally. You know that my husband is hated by the whole countryside. What of it? People here are too stupid to know what's good for them. <laughs> Perhaps. But the writer of these notes seems to be a little less than stupid. You think so? If you knew Danish history here, Reichman, you might agree. For hundreds of years, the night of the king's birthday has been a special occasion at Gronwald. On that night, the castle renews its pledge of loyalty to the king and to Denmark's freedom. Hmm. A very theatrical gesture. Mm, quite. But if anyone wished to remind Count Victor... Uh... If someone wished to remind the Count that he had chosen our glorious Führer for his leader... Yes. The night of the king's birthday would be, shall we say, the psychologically correct time to do it. You reason well, Countess. I know my countrymen. Evidently. I can see how these notes would inflame their imagination... If Count Victor were to take his own life as a public repudiation of his present political bonds, the whole country would be stirred to its depths. I see. You seem to view the possibility of your husband's death rather calmly, Countess. <laughs> like you, Herr Reichman. I have no fear for his safety. I am only presenting the political possibilities. Quite so. And since you grasp the full significance of the notes, you understand that I must take certain liberties in order to track down the writer. Liberties? Yes. I shall ask your permission to talk with Dr. Erickson. Oh, Dr. Erickson? Well, I'm told he lives here at the castle. Yes, but... I should like to talk with Dr. Erickson. As you wish. Peter will show you to the doctor's study. However, I assure My you... My time is short, Countess. I understand that Dr. Erickson is one of your country's able psychiatrists. I understand that Dr. Erickson is an authority on mass suggestion. His help should be invaluable. Dr. Erickson. Yes, Peter. Show the gentleman in. Uh, sit down here, Reichman. Don't be alarmed about these mice. I'll remove them just as soon as Herman here gets through the maze. <laughs> Watch him. He's really quite clever. I've been trying him on liver extract and... Ah, he made it. Good night, Herman. Now, off to bed. I've been expecting you, Herr Reichman. Please sit down. Thank you. You've come to see me about the notes, am I right? Yes, you're right, Doctor. When I first heard about them, I said to myself, the new go light of woman my theory concerning the type of mind which would be prompted to write such notes. 
I'll tell you my theory, Herr Reichman. I don't want your theory, Doctor. I want you to answer some questions. Oh, so it's like that. And perhaps you want a sample of my handwriting, too. I'm not a fool, Doctor. That's very possible. How long have you been treating Count Victor for a certain nervous disorder? Five years. What would you say is his condition now? You've never met Count Victor, have you, Herr Reichman? No. When you talk with him, you'll see no outward sign of his malady. It manifests itself only during periods of despondency. In the last few years, I am happy to say that these periods have been infrequent. Count Victor depends a good deal on you, doesn't he, Doctor? Perhaps I've almost cured him. In return, he's given me this laboratory and money for my experiments. But you do have a great deal of influence on his mental processes. Yes, Herr Reichman, I do. In fact, if I decided to, shall we say, liquidate Count Victor, I would have written the notes exactly as the people say they are written. Like all nervous people, the Count would be highly susceptible to such mental attack. That's what you wanted me to say, isn't it? Yes. We know then where we stand. Almost. One thing more I'll ask you, Doctor. Count Victor had a brother who left Kronberg when Denmark was occupied by our troops. That brother, Christian, is now known to be working with the Danish underground. Formerly, he was one of your students at the university. Is that right? Christian was one of my most brilliant students. Do you know where he is now? No, I don't. And neither does your Gestapo. That's the only thing we share in common. You are a very outspoken man, Doctor. I find it the best form of deception. Do you think it wise to try to deceive the lawful government of your country? Lawful government? You have a quaint sense of humor, Herr Reichman. You may not find it so quaint if Count Victor ever removes his protection from you. He won't. When you've informed him of his impending suicide, as I presume you will, you'll see he needs me more than ever. You do intend to show the notes to the Count, don't you? Yes. I will present myself to His Excellency tonight on his return from Berlin. As his reactions to the notes will be most interesting. Would it inconvenience you if I would be present on the occasion? Oh, not at all, Doctor. I'd be delighted. Your own reactions should be most interesting, too. <laughs> That's what the people think, hey? They think they can kill me with words? They can't do that to me, can they, Doctor? Easy, Count Victor, easy. Look at this childish note. Count Victor will kill himself on the night of the king's birthday. Because of his great shame here, I'll great shame them, all right. They'll see that... (laughs) Doctor. Doctor, a little of the brandy, please. Yes, of course, Count Victor. Now, you mustn't upset yourself. Who's upset? The whole thing is completely nonsensical, completely. Of course it is. Ask Herr Reichman. His police have practically caught the writer of the notes, haven't they, Herr Reichman? Practically, Doctor. You have nothing to worry about, Count Victor. You see? Doctor, tonight, if I need a sedative... Certainly, Count Victor. I'll show them. I'll give them a dinner here on the night of the king's birthday. Everyone will hear about it. They'll see who's afraid. I'll give a dinner. Herr Reichman... Will you be my guest at dinner? With pleasure, Count Victor. I'll light up this whole castle like a like a Christmas tree. And Elsa, you'll wear that gown you wore at the palace and your jewels. You understand? You'll wear all your jewels. Yes, Victor. Kill me with words, eh? If it's words there after, I'll give them words. Herr Rackman, I'll I'll make a statement to your newspapers on the night of the king's birthday. I'll stuff words down the people's throat. Yes. And there's someone in particular who'll read what I have to say. My brother Christian. I want him especially to read it. Herr Rackman, 
Have you ever seen my brother? No, Convictor. His picture was in that empty frame up there next to mine. I destroyed his picture. Victor, you're getting excited. Dr. Erickson. Yes, you're right, Elsa. Sometimes the strain of my work is too much. Dr. Erickson, you'll... You'll talk to me for a while before I go to bed, won't you? Of course. Talk to you, Convictor? Yes, the doctor has a way of calming my nerves. It's... Slightly hypnotic, isn't that it, Doctor? You might call it that, Count Victor. Count Victor, I'd strongly advise... No, no, it's the only thing that helps me. I just go quietly to sleep while the doctor talks. But, Count Victor... Good night, Herr Reichman. I'll expect you here for dinner on the night of the King's birthday. Of course, Count Victor. Elsa? Yes, Victor? They can't hurt me with words, can they? No, Victor. They can't hurt me if I don't listen, can they? If I shut my ears, I'll be all right. That's it. Shut my ears. I won't listen. 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 Herr Gauleiter. Yes, Lieutenant? While you were out to lunch... You needn't tell me. It's another note. Yes, Herr Gauleiter. Where did you find it this time? I... I hesitate to... Speak up! Speak up! I found it, Herr Gauleiter, in the pocket of my own tunic when I was about to go on duty. Never mind the details. I found one of them under my pillow this morning. Count Victor called me and said there was one delivered with his morning paper. A farmer came in here at 8 o'clock. He found one nailed to his door. Lieutenant, it has got to stop. Yes, Herr Gauleiter. Just as our Führer says, if you tell a lie often enough, everybody believes it. That's true, Herr Gauleiter. Is it? Well, as the Gauleiter says... Uh, do you believe Count Victor will kill himself? Oh, no, Herr Gauleiter. Neither do I. But the Countess was right about one thing. If he did kill himself after all these notes, the effect on the people would be electrifying. But you just said that... Uh, I'm talking about effects, Lieutenant. From what I've seen of the Count, he is too much of a coward to take his own life. But if someone else killed him and... Made it look like suicide. Yes, yes, it could be done, but uh, how? How, I don't know. There will be four of us at dinner. I have ordered 50 guards to patrol the grounds. Four guards will be stationed in the dining room while we eat. No one can get near the Count. It's impossible to kill him. But in this strange country, you can't even trust the impossible. They say the castle is guarded tonight. Fifty soldiers. They say the Count locked himself in his room all day writing. A message to the people, they say. They say the Gauleiter has five Gestapo men at the castle besides the soldiers. One Gestapo man is watching the food for poison. Wait a minute, you. Taste that wine before you bring it into the dining room. Uh, what did you say, sir? I said taste that wine. Oh, oh, taste it. Why, of course. Ah, it's very good, sir. Uh, did you doubt its quality? Don't be insolent. All right. You may take it in. Thank you, sir. And if there's any left after they're through... Oh, I'll take care of you, sir. Ah, more wine. Good boy, Peter. Set it right here. We'll drink another toast to the king. Oh, uh, Victor, I think we've drunk enough to... Oh, drink. nonsense. This is the king's birthday dinner. We've got to drink to the king. Oh, Peter. Yes, sir? Did they make you taste that wine before you brought it in? Yes, doctor, they did. What's this? What's this about tasting wine? A simple precaution of mine, Count Victor. I hope you don't mind. Mind? No, no, I don't mind, but 
You don't think that... Now, Victor, don't get upset. Oh, Elsa, for the love of heaven, stop repeating that inane phrase. I've been saying that all through dinner. I'm not upset, not upset. I just want to know what's going on. What have I got to be upset about? I, uh, you, you're more nervous than I am. I can understand the Countess's feeling that this is the first dinner I've ever had with four soldiers observing my digestive processes. Don't you think, Herr Reichman? I must insist, Doctor, that the soldiers remain. Well, at least ask them to sit down. Gefreiter. Yes, Herr Gauleiter. Your men may be seated. Thank you, Herr Gauleiter. Yes, uh, and Peter. Peter, uh, go get some wine for the soldiers. Yes, sir. Yes. Everyone will have more wine, Peter. We're, we're going to toast the king. The... What time is it, Doctor? Five minutes to twelve, Count Victor. <laughs> and I'm still alive. Peter, it's, it's five minutes to twelve, and I'm still alive. Go get the wine, Peter. Yes, sir. You know, you know, Peter, Peter tells me everything they say down at the village. The people say I have five minutes to live. So, Peter tells you the village gossip. Oh, yes. He knows everything. It was Peter who discovered most of the notes and brought them to me. He brought you the notes? Oh, yes. And the last one said that the... Now, what did it say? Victor, can't we talk about something else? Why? Ask the doctor. He and I discuss it for hours. Well, the doctor told me about some sect over in the West Indies that disposes of an enemy by simply writing the victim's name on a piece of paper and sending it to him. Same sort of nonsense being tried on me. Isn't that your theory, Doctor? Well, I... Uh, Dr. Erickson, in view of the Count's nervous condition, don't you Herr think... Herr Gauleiter, my private life is my own affair. When you work for the Reich, Count Victor, you have no private life. I repeat, Dr. Erickson, in view of the Count's nervous disorder... As the Count's personal physician, I prescribe my own remedies. To know the truth about occult practices is the best way to guard against them. But surely you don't think that... In hiety, Herr Reichman, I saw a man die after receiving a note with his name on it. I don't explain it. I tell you a fact. <laughs> you see? It's possible. It's a fact. Well, I could be murdered with pen and ink. It could be done in exactly three minutes if my watch is right. Yes. Three minutes to live. Where's Peter with that wine? Victor, if you will excuse me, I have a headache. You stay here, Elsa. No one leaves this room till midnight. Gefreiter? Yes, Herr Garleiter. Lock the door. Bolt all the windows. Yes, sir. Go later. Tune season. Yes. yes, that's right. Bolt everything. They won't come in here after me. They won't touch me. Victor, you're being absurd. I ask Countess, you. Countess, I think it best to comply with Count Victor's wishes. Humor me, my dear. Humor me. Now, you'd never forgive yourself if you treated me unkindly during the last two minutes of my life. Especially since you wished me dead so many times. Victor. It's the truth, isn't it? Count Victor. Two minutes to live, Doctor. This is a good time to hear Elsa's confession. If I may say a word. You may not. Elsa, it's the truth, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes, Victor. It's the truth. I wish you were dead. I hate every minute I live under your roof. I hate the thing you've become. A Nazi puppet. I hate your sniveling, goose-stepping mind, just as I loathe this fat specimen of the super race you've invited to dinner. Right, No, no, let her finish her goal, I her. Go on, Elsa. I despise you as a man. Your countrymen despise you. Even before the Nazis came, you were planning to sell us out. All that Kronwald has fought for down through the years. 
The Dane should be a proud and free people. You sold all that for a cast-iron Nazi cross. I wish you were dead, Victor. I wish your soul were rotting in the grave that's waiting for all these mad men of Europe. <sighs> Doctor. Listen. Twelve o'clock. May God grant wisdom to our king and freedom to our people. May Kronwald always keep the faith. Who turned out the lights? Who turned out the lights? Gefreiter! I hear a door opening. No, Herr Gauleiter. My hand is on the door. It is not moving. Victor! Yes? Gefreiter! Come, Victor Kronwald! I hear you. Who is speaking? Victor, this is your time. Are you ready? I am ready. Now you die like a soldier, Victor. But your name will live on. Victor! Don't do it, Victor! Goodbye, Elsa. Victor! say the body was washed out to sea, but yesterday on the rocks they found the Count's wristwatch and a handkerchief with the initial V on it. They'll never find the body. Say what you will, Count Victor was a brave man to take his own life. Yes, he showed those Nazis that Dane could die for honor. You know what the Nazis say? They say someone forced the Count to kill himself. Well, how could you force That's a man? That's what the Nazis say. And listen, they've arrested old Peter. They're trying to make old Peter talk. <laughs> Peter won't talk. But if he did, I bet he could tell them a thing or two. Yes, I could tell them a thing or two. I could tell them why they'll never find Count Victor's body. You know why? Because Count Victor didn't jump out of the window. How could he? Count Victor was dead six days before the king's birthday. No, I didn't kill him. He was shot through the head by his own brother Christian the night he came home unexpectedly from Berlin, six days before the king's birthday. Yes, I worked with the underground, and so did the countess and Dr. Erickson. That's why Christian came here to see us. When the count returned unexpectedly, Christian decided to try to reason with him. They quarreled and, well... Christian eliminated the slimiest traitor Denmark has ever known. It was then that Dr. Erickson got the idea for the notes. Christian, we've got to try it. This new Gauleiter has never seen Count Victor. You'll pose as the Count and we'll stage your suicide. The moral effect on the people will be tremendous. Christian agreed and we started sending the notes. The rest was easy. We all played our parts and Dr. Erickson coached us on the exact thing to do at 12 midnight. At the last stroke of 12, Peter will turn out the lights from downstairs. You've got that, Peter? Yes, Doctor. Then what do you do? I go through the passageway that leads to the hidden door in the dining room fireplace. I open the door and call out, Count Victor, this is your time. Are you ready? And you, Christian? I say, I am ready. 
I call out, Don't do it, Victor. Don't do it. Then I break one of the windows. And you, Christian? I go through the fireplace door and disappear. Yes. And Count Victor of Kronwald has died for his country. Well, that's how it was done. We planned it well, even to putting Count Victor's wristwatch and handkerchief on the rock where the Nazis would find them. Presently, the Garleiter will question me some more. But soon, soon there will be a note on his desk, and I can hear him saying, Lieutenant, Lieutenant, how did this note get on my desk? A note? I don't know, Herr Garleiter. What does it say? It says, says, remember the night of the king's birthday. Your turn is next, Herr Garleiter. Your turn is next. So closes The King's Birthday, starring Dolores Costello with Martin Kozlick, George Zuko, and Ian Wolfe. Tonight's tale of Suspense. The producer of these broadcasts is William Spear, who, with Ted Bliss, director, Lud Gluskin and Lucian Marowick, conductor and composer, and Corporal Louis Pelletier, radio author, collaborated on tonight's Suspense. This is your narrator, the man in black, who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us again next week. Suspense will be heard at a new time, Thursdays at 10.30 Eastern War Time and 7.30 Pacific War Time. Perhaps you will want to note this down. The new time for suspense will be Thursdays beginning next Thursday at 10.30 Eastern War Time and 7.30 Pacific War Time. Our play next Thursday will be The Singing Walls based on a story by Cornell Woolrich. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Suspense. This is the Man in Black, here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. Tonight, in one of her rare radio appearances, we bring you a star who has occupied a unique place in the affections of moviegoers ever since the screen first became of age, Miss Lillian Gish. Appearing with Miss Gish are two distinguished players, Mr. Ray Collins of the Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Fold, whose current release is Thousands Cheer, and Mr. Bramwell Fletcher, who has ornamented many a stage and film success. There are only three players in Marry for Murder, which is tonight's tale of suspense. Only three characters in this story whose beginning and end are shrouded in a dense down-east fog. A story of slow terror and swift death planned by a brilliant murderer. And so were the performances of Lillian Gish as Letty Hawthorne, a frightened neurotic creature who seemed destined to be a perfect victim. Of Bramwell Fletcher as Mark Taylor, so handsome and attentive and of Ray Collins as the lawyer, Philip Alden, who relates these events to us. We again hope to keep you in... Suspense.
I used to love the sound of foghorns on the bay, especially at night when I sat before the fire, let their lonely wail weave a contrast between my snug comfort and the gray immensity outside. But I've lost my taste for them now, lost it on the night I heard them moan a dirge of death. hard enough to lose a friend. But to lose one as I lost Letty Hawthorne is the kind of blow you'll never quite forget. I remember the first time I met her. It had fogged up all of a sudden, as it does here on the Cape. But Anne Wentworth held her Sunday night supper as usual. Letty was the only stranger there, a newcomer to the Cape. I looked at her and thought, she'd be an attractive woman if she only didn't flutter so much. She was a trim, pretty woman of about my own age, which is 40. You're Philip Alden, the lawyer, aren't you? Oh, what a pleasure to meet so many nice people. There go those foghorns again. Yes, uh, Does one really get used to them in time? Well, I, I... I love the cape, but I can hardly bear that sound. So, so depressing, isn't it? So morbid. Well, to your first question, yes, uh, I'm Alden, an attorney. As for the foghorns, well, if you stay with us for a few years, you won't be able to live without them, Mrs. Hawthorne. Um, it is Mrs. Hawthorne, isn't it? <laughs> Anne never gets around to introducing people. It's her only fault. Oh, I never stand on ceremony. That's my fault if you consider it one. Besides, I knew you at once, you see, and you knew me. Don't you think that's a promising beginning? Um, I, I never thought of it that way. Oh, oh dearie me. There it goes again. It's... It makes me think of ghosts walking over my grave. How can you bear it? They uh, do serve a very important purpose, you know. Oh, I suppose they do, but they give me the shutters. As a matter of fact, I find them comforting. Mm -hmm. I made jo Jane Hart promise to stay with me tonight if the fog doesn't lift. I, I daren't be alone. You see, I'm still a bit nervous. Oh. I've been ill, you know, and the doctor prescribed complete rest and quiet. I see. That's why I came up here. Well, you'll find what you're looking for here, I'm sure. Oh, do you think so? I... I do hope I will. My nerves are simply shattered. Mr. Hawthorne's death, you see. Such a tragedy. I'm terribly sorry. You see, it happened so suddenly... I can't quite believe it. Can that. I get you some of Anne's cider cup? That's oh. one of her, our Sunday night features. Oh, thank you. That would be so nice. It's such a comfort to have a man take care of one uh, again. <laughs> you make me feel so, uh, so protected. I, I know we're going to be great friends, aren't we? I can tell you I worried a bit for a while after that first party. Letty Hawthorne was a charming woman, a bit fluttery, as I said, but still attractive and rather pathetic. I was afraid she was setting her cap for me. You see, I'm a crusty old bachelor, but even my friends were beginning to wonder. So it was with mingled relief and regret that I learned one day that Letty Hawthorne had transferred her attentions to another newcomer to the Cape, Mark Taylor. He was eight or ten years younger than she, a handsome fellow, but somewhat dissolute looking. I didn't like him. I may as well admit that from the start. But short of marrying her myself, there wasn't much I could do. Anyway, they seemed happy enough at first. One day after the wedding, Letty called me on a matter of business. I went down there after sundown. The three of us sat out on the beach in front of her cottage. 
glad you were able to come, Philip. You see, Mark and I were counting on you. Always glad to oblige you, Letty. As a matter of fact, Alden, we want you to attend to a legal matter for us. Yes? <laughs> yes, Philip. Mark wants to make a will. I told him I don't like wills. There's something so, well, so unhealthy about them. But Mark simply insists upon it. Very sensible, I'm sure. Oh, you men. You're all alive. It needn't be a very elaborate affair, Alden. Just a simple document stating that I leave all my property to Letty. Well, if he does that, Philip, I want you to make out a will for me, too. Leaving everything I have to Mark. But, Letty, that there's no, no need... No, I insist. Oh, well. Alden here is going to think I married you for your money. Money? Oh, why, I really don't know anything at all about my affairs. Really, I don't. Frank, uh, Mr. Hawthorne always used to say, Letty, I really think you know less about business than a child. I left the management of his estate entirely to his secretary, you know. Well, just some simple document that makes my intention clear. You know the form, Alden. And, of course, if Letty insists... But I do. We'll have twin wills. Hmm. It doesn't sound so frightening that way. The way Letty talks about wills, you can tell she has a secret vice, can't you? (laughs) A secret vice? My wife's a murder mystery fan, Alden. I didn't find out until it was too late. Oh, Mark, you silly. <laughs> when you say that, Taylor, smile. I'm a detective fan myself. <laughs> it's a busman's holiday, of course, but I always read the latest whodunits. If my father hadn't insisted that I follow in his footsteps, I, I'd have been a detective instead of a lawyer. Really? How mm-hmm. interesting. Tell us, Philip, do you ever get any cases like the ones we read about? Well, if you want my opinion, mm-hmm. the chief difference between fact and fiction is that the author of a novel wants you to see the pattern, and the author of a murder tries to hide it. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, take your case, for example. You and Letty are making out your wills. I heard her say that she wanted to leave her money to you. But how do I know the idea just sprang into her head of its own accord? How do I know that you didn't plant it there? Plant it? What do you mean? Why, what possible reason could I have? Well, as things stand now, there's no reason for me to ask if you planted the idea in her head. But... If Letty were found dead. Dead? Oh, Philip, how dreadful. How can you even think such thoughts? Mark, darling, how terrible for you. Philip, you're to apologize this minute. No, 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 Letty. Philip was just trying to explain. Well, I won't have him talking about such horrible well, things. Of course, I didn't mean you to. I was just using you as an example. Well, I didn't mean to be rude, Philip, but, well, you know my nerves, and it's getting dark. And... Oh, the bay is beautiful at night, of course, but. I've always been afraid of the water. That's why I've had such a time persuading her to come out for a sail. The Artemis has been tied up all summer, waiting. It's just silly, I know. And I will go with you, Mark. But let's do wait for a calm day. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Letty's idea of a sail is to sit becalmed half a mile offshore. My wife has perfect confidence in me, you see. Oh, Mark, it isn't that. You're making fun of me, aren't you? (laughs) Of course, I trust you completely, but... Well, I'm not very athletic. You're missing one of the treats of the Cape if you don't sail. But I shall. Of course I shall, and soon. And what's more, I'm going to get Mark to teach me to handle the Artemis. Well, I'll be looking forward to seeing your sails on the bay, then. Oh, Mark, a storm. I'd better be getting home before it breaks. Are you sure you'll be all right? Oh, I'm simply terrified of thunder. Wouldn't you rather stop with us? Oh, I can make it to town. Stop by tomorrow, won't you, Alden? Or as soon as you have those papers. Right. Now, you, you won't be nervous after our talk of wills and, and murders. <laughs> but of course you won't. I'm such a coward myself that I can never understand how other people can be so brave. You know, Philip, Letty's helplessness is one of her chief charms. Sometimes I suspect she exaggerates it 
just to make me feel important. Oh, Mark, you mustn't. <laughs> giving all my secrets away. Well, don't worry about me or the wills, Letty. Someday you will frighten yourself to death. Gradually, I found myself worrying about Letty and Mark. They didn't seem to be hitting it off. Oh, on the surface, everything was smooth. But I was haunted by a premonition of what I didn't know. It was only a, a nameless dread of something, some undercurrent of feeling. Letty's nerves were getting no better. In fact, she seemed more tense, more frightened than ever. Yet she was making an effort to meet Mark halfway. Many times I saw them out sailing. Only when Letty returned after a day on the water, she seemed pinched and white. While Mark appeared to be glowing with vitality, Letty grew paler and more distracted. I realized suddenly that she was a middle-aged woman. One day in town, I met them in the general store. Tell you, Mark, you're just imagining it. I hate to have that stuff around, as you very well know. You read all kinds of stories about, well, about the way it gets mixed up in food. Oh, nonsense. Well, I'm sure there aren't any rats around the boathouse. I'd know if there were. I'm simply terrified of them. But I, well, I can't bear thinking of having poison around. Why, I'd be worried all the time. Oh, Letty, for heaven's sake, stop being childish. I didn't put traps around because you didn't want them. Now that I'm trying to get rid of them in another way, you make a scene. I don't see why we have to go into a three-act tragedy just because I want to buy some rat poison. Hello, hello, you two. Oh, hello, Alden. Why, Philip, how nice to see you. Mark and I were just doing a little shopping. Philip, will you do me a favor? Hmm? Will you please reason with Letty and try to get some sense into her head? Say, wait a minute. This sounds serious. Well, it isn't really. But, Philip, you know my nerves and, and the way things upset me, and Mark just doesn't understand. Oh, I know I'm just a silly woman, but the doctor says I have to be humored. And now Mark is so unreasonable, and it's such a little thing. Of course it's a little thing, and that's why I can't understand your attitude. Now look here, Philip. The boathouse is infested with rats. Wouldn't you say the obvious course of action would be to get rid of them? Why, of course. But poison, rat poison. Oh, Philip, don't you see how horrible it is? I mean, accidents do happen. I've always hated to have anything like that around, just in case. I've heard of children eating this stuff by accident. But oh. you two people can take care of yourselves. Mm. Frankly, Letty, I think you're making a fuss over nothing. Yes, yes, that's oh, right, Philip. That's just what I told her. Well, very well, then. But if I'm found dead, I hope you realize you'll both be under suspicion. Seemed a foolish quarrel at the time. Yet when I left them, I kept hearing Letty's voice. Very well, then. But if I'm found dead... Very well, then. But if I'm found dead... Very well, then. But if I'm found dead... Suddenly, a monstrous idea occurred to me. I wondered if Letty had been trying to warn me. And then the horrible suspicion broke. All the trifling things began to add up. Letty's nervousness. 
her fear of sailing with Mark, her terror of having the poison in the house. But why? Why should she be afraid of Mark? What motive had he? And then I knew. I had helped to give him the motive when I drew up Letty's will. Yet my whole case was founded on thin air. Figment of a nervous imagination. I had to be sure. I had to keep an eye on them. I found myself making excuses. Excuses to drop by at their cottage. Who is it, Letty? Who's there? It's Philip. Oh, Philip. Well, well, well. Hello. You're almost getting to be a member of the family. Well, I just thought I'd ask you to help me eat the first bluefish of the season. There's too much here for an old bachelor like me. Why, Philip Alden, if you aren't the most thoughtful person, how perfectly sweet of you. Of course you'll stay to dinner. We'll have a real feast. Yes, yes, you might as well stay as long as you're here. Oh, thank you. If you're sure I won't be intruding. Intruding? Why, of course not. And you can help me get the dinner ready. Well, I'd be glad to, but... Won't I be in Anna's way? Anna's gone. Gone? Why, I, I thought you were well satisfied with her. And so we were, Philip. But Anna didn't seem to be satisfied with us. In fact, they've all gone. All? Yes. Anna and Elsie and Otto, the handyman. They just walked out and left us. Well, for heaven's sake. Uh, since the ship and engine place opened on the heights, nobody can keep a servant. Can't blame them myself. I wonder. I don't believe Anna'd take a job at the ship and engine. Anyhow, it does seem strange they all went at once, doesn't it? No. Letty, I do wish you'd stop dramatizing everything. Ship and engine just opened. And the call went out for help. I don't see any mystery in the servants answering. In fact, it's their patriotic duty. And it's our patriotic duty to get along without them. But it's so lonely here, especially at night. Now, Letty, you're not living here by yourself, you know. <laughs> no, of course not. But all the same, we are isolated. Just the two of us. And you know how tricky my nerves are. I always feel so much better if the servants are around. After all... If anything were to happen, and anything might happen... Letty, this isn't getting us any closer to our dinner. Oh, of course. <laughs> now, you boys wear these aprons. Oh. Philip, since it's your fish, you may have the honor of cooking it. All right, you asked for it. It'll be your funeral. And <laughs> uh, Now, uh, Philip... Uh, oh, uh, Mark, you hold the berries for the dessert. I'll do the vegetables and set the table. <laughs> For a seasoned bachelor, this dinner's a rare treat, Letty. Oh, I'm so glad you enjoyed it, Philip. Oh, I don't deserve the credit. That bluefish was simply delicious. How did you manage to catch it all by yourself? I always think men are so wonderful. Well, I'd be glad to take you both the next time I go fishing. It's good fun. Fresh air would be good for you, Letty. Oh, no, I couldn't. Well, I'm still just a wee bit nervous about the water. Though I tried terribly hard, haven't I, Mark? Yes, yes, yes. Mm, I've been good about the sailing. And you know I'm learning to manage the Artemis all by myself, well, aren't I, Mark? Mm -hmm. I don't write my name in the wake anymore, do I? Yes, Letty's a real hand at the tiller. She'll be a better sailor than I am soon, you see. <laughs> 
You'd have seen her take the Artemis into harbor the other day. You did, all right. Well, yes, she came through that channel with a breeze against her. <laughs> I wanted to take it over, afraid she'd run into the mudflats. But no, she coaxed it all the way, and we came in under sail. Yes, and I wanted to do it all by myself, even though I was terrified. Well, good for you. Why, that's really a splendid accomplishment. I've been negotiating the harbor for years, but I confess that I, I have trouble every now and then. <laughs> well, since nobody wants any more berries, I guess it's time to do the dishes. Now, I'll show you what a good hand I am as a dishwasher. Wait a minute, wait a minute. That's my job. Here. No, I'll clear it clean and wash. You two can dry, and you can dry. Letty, what is it? Well, you shouldn't have tried to carry that tray. No, it's not that. Why, Letty, what's happened to you? You look ghastly. I'm, I'm afraid I, something I ate. Here, better lie down. Oh, I'll carry her upstairs. Get a doctor, will you? I'm afraid, Ma. I'm afraid I've been poisoned. But great heavens, Philip, I I just can't believe it. Arsenic poisoning? Do you think Dr. Potter knows what he's talking about? I'm sure he does. Of course, we can't be sure till the tests are made, but I don't see. I, I don't understand. It's not very hard to understand. Letty ate arsenic. How or where she got it, we don't know, but it's not difficult to guess. But we all ate the same meal, you and I and she. Why? Good Lord, Philip. Do you think we are poisoned too? I feel perfectly all right. You appear to be comfortable. I think we'd feel it by now. But then how on Let's earth Let's be perfectly you... logical about it. We, we all ate the bluefish. Yes. I prepared it. We all had potatoes and string beans. Um, Letty cooked those. Yes, yes. Then we all ate strawberries. You prepared them. Why? Now, the fish and the vegetables were all served in large platters, and each one of us helped ourselves. Therefore, if any poison were in the food, we'd all be sick. But the strawberries, Mark. See here, Alden, are you suggesting... Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're just following this through logically. The strawberries were put on the table in separate dishes. The poison could have been slipped into Letty's plate in the kitchen. Alden, you have no right to accuse me of this. Why, you're fixing up a case against me. I'm doing nothing of the sort. In any event, I think you might worry less about your own skin and more about Letty. Thanks. I think I can take care of my own wife. Nevertheless, I suggest you get someone to help you. I'm perfectly well able to nurse her myself. If I were you, I'd have someone else as well. I'll send Mrs. Halstead over from town. She's an experienced, practical nurse. What I've always appreciated about you, Philip, is the way you mind your own business. I'll be going now. Mrs. Halstead will be along as soon as I can get her. When the doctor's analysis came, it was arsenic poisoning, all right. There were traces of arsenic in the sugar on Letty's dish. Letty was recovering. The dose wasn't large enough to kill her. Mrs. Halstead was installed as nurse and housekeeper. Just then, business called me to New York where I found myself worrying about Letty. I... I couldn't get her out of my mind. 
I was bothered by a few loose ends in Letty's problem. The sort of questions that would occur to a legal mind. So I decided to spend an evening in the reference room of the law library among the files, where I found out enough about Mark and Letty Taylor to send me racing back to the Cape. And I knew I had to hurry if I was to prevent a devilish murder. One of those dull gray afternoons when I arrived at the station. Fog was so thick over the bay that it seemed to cloud the whole town. Cold fear gripped me. Letty and Mark, I learned, had left at dawn for a weekend sail. I could picture them. Murderer and victim. Shrouded in the gray veils of the fog. Drifting. Waiting while the foghorns called a hoarse warning of murder. So, I was too late. The trap was sprung. With my newly gained insight into the affairs of Letty and Mark, I could have averted the tragedy, but I was too late. Or, or was I? If only they hadn't really left for that sale. I took the chance. Feeling my way along the Cape Road, I reached the Taylor Cottage. Nobody was there. Then I... I heard noises in the boathouse. I crept down the slope and listened. Alden will be sure you plan to murder me for my money. I saw the suspicion dawn in his mind that day we made out our twin wills. I saw it grow when I was seen in the general store and you brought the rat poison. And that night when I was taken ill, he was sure. Do you hear me? Sure! <laughs> you wanted to teach me to sail the Artemis. Thought I was afraid of the water. Well, Mark Taylor, when your body drifts to shore, Philip Alden will swear that only an accident prevented you from murdering me. <laughs> what fools you men are. Aren't you? Aren't you? Why wouldn't you like to answer me, Mark? Don't you wish you could talk to me again? To your helpless little Letty. But you can't. Can you? Dead men can't talk, can they? But they say that in the instant of dying, a man can understand many things. Did you understand, Mark? But how could you? You are really a stupid man, Mark. Didn't you ever wonder about my former husband and his tragic death? Didn't you ever want to know about Frank Hawthorne? He did. At the very end, he wondered about his predecessor, George Martin. Strange how both died in a yachting accident, isn't it? Frank died off the coast of California. And George was drowned in the Gulf of Mexico. And now you, Mark. Your body will be found someplace along the Cape here, I suppose. Oh, what bad luck I've had with my husband. But how thoughtful all of you were to leave me your property. 
Too bad I'm such an extravagant widow, isn't it? For I do run through money. I wasn't lying about that. Oh, dear, I wish I could... I wish you could help me get your body to the Artemis. If only you hadn't insisted on turning back when the fog rose. I could have killed you so much more neatly. A sudden gust of wind while I was at the wheel, and the Artemis jibes, and the boom catches you, and off you go to the bottom of the sea. But now, I've got to lug you back on board and pitch you overboard somewhere. It was really inconsiderate, Mark, to make me kill you in the boathouse here. You will have to drag the body aboard, Letty. Oh, Philip, I'm so glad you've come. Are you, Letty? Something dreadful's happened to Mark. I'm, I'm so upset, I hardly know how to tell you. Oh, Philip, I think I've... You needn't pull a phony faint this time, Letty. I fell for it before when you made me think that Mark had poisoned you. That is, almost. What? What do you mean, Philip? That was a little too smart, Letty, that poison scene. Because when I left you, I wondered about two things. Why anyone should be foolish enough to attempt that type of murder before an audience, and why, having attempted it, he should fail to make the dose large enough. I don't know what you're talking about. I think you do. You see, while I was in New York, I took the trouble to look up a few matters that were bothering me. And I found the newspaper clippings of your two previous, um, shall we say, accidents. Oh, Philip, isn't it dreadful? Still pretending. You're a clever woman, Letty, but I overheard you just now. You'll never prove anything. I think I will. You see, I found the motive, too. It was marry for money, marry for murder, wasn't it? I wouldn't try to run away, Letty. I brought a gun. You're coming with me to the police station. Don't wonder that you hate the sound of foghorns, Letty Taylor. You've spoiled them for me, too. So closes Marry for Murder, starring Lillian Gish with Ray Collins and Bramwell Fletcher. Tonight's tale of Suspense. This is your narrator, the man in black, who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us again next week, same time, when Virginia Bruce and John Loder will star in the Dorothy B. Hughes suspense thriller, The Cross-Eyed Bear. The producer of these broadcasts is William Spear, who with Ted Bliss, the director, Bernard Herman and Lucien Marowick, conductor and composer, and Walker T. Field, the author, collaborated on tonight's Suspense. (laughs) 
This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is the man in black, here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. From Hollywood, we bring you a star, Mr. Orson Welles, who this evening begins a four-week engagement as guest of these proceedings. In the interest of prime suspense, Mr. Wells and the producer of this series have scheduled four radio stories which they feel are particularly distinguished in our chosen field. The first of these is The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell. And so with the performance of Orson Wells in the character of General Zaroff and Keenan Wynne as Sanger Rainsford, who learned from Zaroff what was the most dangerous game, we again hope to keep you in suspense. may come in, and when he does, I'm going to kill him. It's him or me, and I'm going to do my best to make it him. Oh, maybe it sounds crazy to you. I guess it does. Would have sounded crazy to me a few days ago when I was with Whitney on the yacht. I was on a pleasure trip. Ha! A pleasure trip! How or I, how could I or anyone realize then the horror and torment I was to go through? How was I to know of Yvonne and the death swamp and the hounds? How was I to know of... Zaroff. Think of it. It was only four nights ago that the ship went down. We'd been talking about this island, Ship Trap Island, Whitney said it was called in the charts. He was sleepy and started on down below to turn in. I was mixing myself a nightcap when I looked up and saw it. A tremendous reef racing at us out of the fog. I screamed out a warning, but it was too late. We were right upon it. standing safe out on the prowl, but the force of the explosion hurled me into the blood-warm waters. Terrified at the suddenness and surprise, my stomach weak and sick at the thought of the others. The sea was eddying furiously around the sinking remnants of the ship, and a certain cool-headedness came to me and made me swim desperately away, or I might not have lived to go through the horror which was soon to come. I struck out to the right in the direction of the island about which Whitney had been telling me. I had no recollection of how long I swam, but all at once I heard the muttering and growling of the sea breaking on the rocky shore. With my remaining strength, I dragged myself from the swirling waters. All in, gasping, my hands raw, I at last reached a flat place at the top. I flung myself down at the jungle edge and tumbled headlong into the deepest sleep of my life. When I awoke, I was in a strange place, having no idea how I had done it. Well, Ivan, 
Our friend seems to be awakening. I... Where, where is this? Where am I? Do not Where's be alarmed, my friend. My man Ivan found you out on the cliff. He brought you here to be taken care of. Oh, well, thank God there's life on this island. I hardly believed. Few people do. Yes, you are quite safe here in my castle, Mr... Uh, Rainsford. Uh, yes. Rainsford. I'm Sanger Rainsford of New York. Rainsford? Sanger Rainsford? Yes. Well, it is indeed a very great pleasure and honor to welcome you, Mr. Sanger Rainsford. You're the celebrated hunter, are you not? Yes, yes. You know me? Uh, by reputation only. I've read your book about hunting snow leopards in Tibet, you see. My name is General Zaroff. I am not English, Mr. Rainsford, but I went to a good school. Perhaps you recognize the colors of my tie. Uh, no, it makes no difference. I've lived too long in the jungle to be a snob. Well, I... <laughs> Well, I can't tell you how happy I am to meet you, General. And I can't tell you how happy I am to meet you, Mr. Rainsford. But come, we shouldn't be chatting here. We can talk later. You must be hungry. Yes, I am, rather. <laughs> what? Uh, Ivan thought you'd like a robe. He's drying your clothes for you. Oh, thank you. Ivan's an incredibly strong fellow, but you mustn't mind his looks. His ears were cut off in battle, and he has the misfortune to be deaf and dumb. He is sensitive about his appearance. A simple fellow, really, but I'm afraid... A bit savage. Oh? He's been in our family for years. <laughs> Follow Ivan, if you please, Mr. Rainsford. I was about to have my luncheon just before you awoke. You can have it together now. Does the robe fit you all right? Oh, yes, yes, perfectly, thanks. I'm so glad. You uh, have quite a collection of heads here. Lions, tigers, mm. elephants, moose, bears. Oh, I don't believe I've ever seen a more perfect specimen. They are nice. I take great pride in them. You have good cause. Coming from you, Mr. Rainsford, that is a great compliment. And here we are. You sit over there. Thank you. Not at all. Right, Ivan. <laughs> we do our best to preserve the amenities of civilization here. Please forgive many lapses. Oh, of course. Yes. Well off the beaten track, you know. Uh, Shushu. 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 <laughs> this is my little pet, Mr. Rainsford. As a hunting falcon, Shushu is of no further usefulness in the field. But I'm fond of its company. Am I not, little sweetheart? <laughs> Patience, my darling. I know you're hungry, my dear. We hunt tonight. Your, uh... Your heads are really remarkable, General. Mm. That, uh... That Cape Buffalo is the largest I've ever seen. Ah, yes, that fellow. He's a monster. Mm. Did he charge you? Hurled me against a tree, fractured my skull, left me the scar... And I got the brute. <laughs> I've, uh, I've always thought the Cape Buffalo is the most dangerous of all games. Oh, uh, no, no, you're wrong. Wrong, sir. The Cape Buffalo is not the most dangerous game. Ivan, the wine. Uh, how does he understand you? He reads my lips. If you like this champagne, Mr. Rainsford, Ivan chills it expertly. Uh, no, no, the, the Cape Buffalo is not the most dangerous game. Here in my preserve on this island, I hunt more dangerous game. Oh, is there a big game on this island? The biggest. Oh, really? Oh, it isn't here naturally, of course. I have to stock the island. Uh, what have you imported, General? Uh, jaguars? Mm, jaguars. I hope you like filet mignon, Mr. Rainsford. I do very much, thank you. 
Uh, is it Jaguars, General? No, 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 no. Hunting Jaguars ceased to interest me some years ago. I exhausted their possibilities, you see. I... No thrill left in Jaguars, you understand? No real danger. I live for danger, Mr. Rainsford. <clears throat> we will have some capital hunting, you and I. I shall be most glad to have your company. Yes, but I'll tell you, you'll be amused, I know. I think you may say in all modesty that I've done a rare thing. Yes, I've invented a new sensation. May I pour you another glass of champagne, Mr. Rainsford? Thank you, General. God makes some men poets. Some he makes kings, some beggars. Me, he made a hunter. My hand was made for the trigger. My father once said that. Made for the trigger. My whole life has been one prolonged hunt. I've hunted every kind of game in every land. It'd be impossible for me to tell you how many animals I've killed. Grizzlies in your Rockies, crocodiles in the Ganges, rhinoceroses in East Africa. This is Africa, by the way. That Cape Buffalo hit me and laid me up for six months. Mm. As soon as I recovered, I started for the Amazon to hunt jaguars, for I'd heard they were unusually cunning. <laughs> they weren't. They were no match at all for a hunter with his wits about him. The high-powered rifle. I was bitterly disappointed. I was lying in my tent with a splitting headache one night. And a terrible thought pushed its way into my head. Hunting was beginning to bore me. And hunting, remember, had been my life. I've heard that in America, businessmen often go to pieces when they give up the business that's been their life. Yes, yes, that's uh, so. I, I had no wish to go to pieces. <laughs> oh, dear. I, I must do something. Uh, now, mine is an analytical mind, Mr. Rainsford. Doubtless, that is why I enjoy the problems of the chase. Oh, no doubt, General. So I asked myself why the hunt no longer fascinated me. You are much younger than I am, Mr. Rainsford, and have not hunted as much, but you perhaps can guess the answer. Well, what is it? Simply this. Hunting had ceased to be what you call a sporting proposition. It had become too easy. I always got my quarry. Always. No greater bore than perfection. Cigarette? No, thank you. Uh, no animal had a chance with me anymore. Not a chance. That is no boast. It is a mathematical certainty. The animal had nothing but his legs and his instinct. Instinct is no match for reason. When I thought of this, it was a tragic moment for me, I can tell you. It came to me as an inspiration. What I must do... And that was... I had to invent a new animal to hunt. A new animal? Oh, you're joking. Not at all. I never joke about hunting. I needed a new animal. I found one. So I bought this island, built this castle, and here I do my hunting. The island's perfect for my purposes. There are jungles with a maze of trails in them. Hills, swamps... Yes, but the animal... The animal generals are... It supplies me with the most exciting hunting in the world. No other hunting compares with it for an instant. Every day I hunt. I never grow bored now. For I have a quarry with which I can match my wits. Yes, but you still I haven't... I wanted the ideal animal to hunt, so I said, what are the attributes of an ideal quarry? And the answer was, of course, it must have courage, cunning, and above all, it must be able to reason. Well, no animal can My reason. My dear fellow, there is one that can. One? But 
You can't mean... And why not? Well, I... I can't believe you're serious, General Zarov. You're just joking. Joking? I'm quite serious. Speaking about hunting. Hunting? You're speaking about murder. Oh, dear me, that unpleasant word. I think I can show you that your scruples are quite ill-founded. Yes? I hunt the scum of the earth. Sailors from tramp ships, Laskars, Japs, mongrels, a thoroughbred horse, a hound is worth more than a squirrel. But these are men. Precisely, that is why I use them. It gives me pleasure. They can reason after a fashion, so they are dangerous. But where do you get them? Oh, we visit my training school. It is in the cellar. I have about a dozen pupils down there now. They're from the Spanish park San Lucar that had the bad luck to go to the rocks up there. A very inferior lot, I regret to say. Poor specimens, more accustomed to the deck than to the jungle. Another glass? No. It's a game, you see. It's a sort of game. I, I suggest to one of them that we go hunting. I give him a supply of food. And uh, an excellent hunting knife. I give him three hours start. I'm to follow, armed only with a pistol of the smallest caliber and range. If my quarry eludes me for three whole days, he wins the game. If I find him, he loses. Suppose he refuses to be hunted. Oh, I give him his choice, of course. He need not play that game if he does not wish to. If he does not wish to hunt, I turn him over to Ivan. Mm. Ivan once had the honor of serving as official knouter to my old king, and he has his own ideas of sport. Invariably, Mr. Rainsford, invariably they choose the hunt. And if they win? Uh, to date, I have not lost. I do not wish you to think me a braggart, Mr. Rainsford... Many of them afford only the most elementary sort of problem, I assure you. Occasionally, I strike a tartar. <laughs> Shushu remembers the tartar, don't you, darling? Yes. Yes, he almost did win. I eventually had to use the hounds. The hounds? Uh, yes, this way, please. I'll show you. You see? Wait a moment. I'll open the window. Hello, boys! <laughs> Rather good lot, I think. They're let out at seven every night. If anyone should try to get into my castle or out of it, something extremely regrettable would occur to me. Hmm. Oh, but enough of this. Come, I want to show you a collection of heads I'm quite sure you've never seen before. Join me in the library for coffee. I, uh, hope that you will excuse me tonight, General. Oh, I... I'm really not feeling well at all. Indeed. I know what it is. My old complaint. <laughs> Ennui, boredom. You need some excitement. Tonight we'll hunt. Hey, Mr. Rainsford. You and I. You're wrong, General. I won't hunt. I won't murder. As you wish, my friend. The choice rests entirely with you. But may I not venture to suggest that you will find my idea of sport... More diverting than Ivan's. You, my dear fellow. You don't mean that you plan to hunt me. My dear fellow. Have I not told you? I always mean what I say about hunting. 
This is really an inspiration. I drink to a foeman worthy of my steel at last. But I simply can't believe it. This must be some sort of dream. You'll find the game worth playing, Mr. Rainsford. Think of it, your brain against mine, your woodcraft against mine, your strength, your stamina against mine. Outdoor chess. <laughs> and the stake is not without value, eh? And if I win... I'll cheerfully acknowledge myself defeated if I do not find you by midnight of the third day. My sloop will place you on the mainland near a town. Oh, you can trust me. I give you my word as a gentleman and a sportsman. Of course, you in turn must agree to say nothing of your visit here. I will agree to nothing of the kind. Oh. Well, in that case... But why discuss that now? Uh, three days hence, we can discuss it over a bottle of Vufficot, unless... Uh... Well... Your choice, Mr. Rainsford. I'm a hunter. You know my choice. Mm-hmm. Ivan here will supply you with hunting clothes, food, and knife. I suggest you wear moccasins. They leave a poorer trail. I suggest, too, that you avoid the big swamp in the southeast corner of the island. We call it Death Swamp. This quicksand there. Well, I must beg you to excuse me now. We always take our siesta after our lunch. Don't we, Shushu? <laughs> yes. Come, my little pet. You'll hardly have time for a nap, I fear, Mr. Rainsford. Uh, you, you'll want to start, of course. I shall not follow till dusk. Hunting at night is so much more exciting than by day, don't you think? <clears throat> well, au revoir, Mr. Rainsford. I... I'd fought my way through the bush for two hours, repeating to myself over and over again, I must keep my nerve, I must keep my nerve. My whole idea at first was to put distance between myself and General Zarov. And at this end, I had plunged along through the thicket spurred on by the sharp rowls of something very much like panic. Now I had got a grip on myself. I'd stopped. I was taking stock of the situation. I saw that straight flight was futile. Inevitably, it would bring me face to face with the sea. Well, I'll give him a trail, I muttered. And I struck off from the rude path I had been following and into the trackless wilderness. I made a series of intricate loops. I doubled back on my trail again and again, recalling all the lore of the fox hunt, all the dodges of the fox. Night found me exhausted, my hands and face lashed by the branches on a thickly wooded ridge. My need for rest was imperative, and I thought, I played the fox, now I must play the cat of the fable. A big tree with a thick trunk and outspread branches was nearby, and taking care not to leave the slightest mark, I climbed up and stretched out on one of the broad limbs. Rest brought me new confidence and almost a feeling of security. Even so expert a hunter as General Zaroff cannot trace me here, I assured myself. An apprehensive night crawled slowly by, my mind keenly alert for any sound, any warning. Towards the dawn, an instinct I never knew existed, like an animal was possessed, impelled me to look far off in the distance in a westerly direction. Sure enough, following the trail with the sureness of a bloodhound came General Zaroff. Nothing escaped those searching black eyes, no crushed blade of grass, no bent twig, no mark, no matter how fine in the moss. My heart pounding furiously, I slid down quickly from the tree and struck off again into the woods. I knew I had to do something desperate. I knew that I had little time in which to do it. 300 yards from my hiding place, I stopped where a huge dead tree leaned precariously on a smaller living one. Throwing off my sack of food, I took my knife from its sheath and began to work with all my energy. The job was finished at last, and I threw myself down behind a fallen log 300 feet away. 
I did not have to wait long. sound of my voice, as I suppose you are, let me congratulate you. Not many men know how to make a Malay man-catcher. Luckily for me, I too have hunted in Malacca. You are proving interesting, Mr. Rainsford. Mm. Very interesting. The tree brushed my shoulders. I jumped back. I'm going to have a wound rest. Only slight. But I shall be back, Mr. Rainsford. I shall be back. It was flight now, a desperate, hopeless flight that carried me on for hours. I don't know where I got the strength. I kept telling myself over and over again that I must keep my nerve. That I was competing with a monster, a super huntsman. Dust came, then darkness, and still I managed to press on. The ground grew softer under my moccasins. The vegetation grew ranker, denser. Insects bit at me savagely. Suddenly, as I stepped forward, my foot sank into the ooze. I tried to wrench it back, but the muck sucked viciously at my foot like a giant leech. With a violent effort, I tore my foot loose. I knew where I was then. Death's swamp and its quicksand. But the softness of the earth had given me an idea. I stepped back from the quicksand a dozen feet or so and began to dig. When the pit was above my shoulders, I climbed out and from some hard saplings cut stakes and sharpened them to fine points. These stakes I planted in the bottom of the pit with the points sticking upwards. As fast as I could, I wove a rough carpet of weeds and branches and with it covered the mouth of the pit. Then wet with sweat and aching with tiredness, I crouched behind the stump of a lightning-charmed tree. Oh, I knew Zaroff was coming. I could hear the paddling sound of his feet on the soft earth. Zaroff was coming, and coming fast. He was not feeling his way along, foot by foot. Crouching there, I could neither see him nor see the pit. I lived a year and a minute, frozen, every muscle tensed. pit has claimed one of my finest towns. Again you score. I think, Mr. Rainsford, I'll see what you can do against my whole pack. I'm going back to get them now. Thank you for a most amusing evening. <laughs> daybreak, lying near the swamp, I was awakened by a sound that made me know I had new things to learn about fear. It was a distant sound, faint and wavering, but I knew it. 
was the baying of a pack of hounds. I could do one of two things. I could stay where I was and wait. That was suicide. I could flee. That was postponing the inevitable. I had put my very last hope into that tiger pit. For a moment, I stood there thinking. All at once, an idea that held a wild chance came to me, and tightening my belt, I headed away from the swamp. The baying of the hounds drew nearer. They would be on me any minute now. My mind worked frantically. I thought of a native trick I had learned in Uganda. I caught hold of a springy young sapling, and to it fastened my hunting knife with the blade pointing down the trail. With a bit of wild grapevine, I tied back the sapling. Then I ran for my life. raised their terrifying horses as they heard them and felt the fresh scent. I knew then how an animal at bay feels. At last, I had to stop to get my breath. The baying of the hounds stopped just as suddenly. And with it, my heart stopped too. They must have reached the knife. Excitedly, I shinned up a tree and looked back. My pursuers had stopped all right. But the hope that had been in my brain when I climbed died. For in the shallow valley, I saw that General Zaroff was still on his feet. But Ivan was not. Apparently, he had come along to hold the hounds. The knife, driven by the recoil of the springing tree, had splintered through his chest. I'd hardly tumbled to the ground when the pack took up the cry again. Nerve, 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 I panted as I dashed along. A blue gap showed between the trees dead ahead. The hounds were almost on top of me. I forced myself on towards that gap. I reached it. It was the shore of the sea. Across the cove, I could see the gloomy gray stone of the castle. Twenty feet below me, the sea rumbled and hissed. I hesitated. I heard the hounds. Then I leaped far out into the sea. He was good to me. And I'm here safe in the general's bedroom waiting for him. Three days are up, and I've eluded him. But now I must go further. In a moment, we will meet, he and I, and he will be unarmed. Only one of us is going to live. You understand that now. Uh, quiet, Shushu. Shushu! You must be patient, dear. Must forgive me. You're hungry, I know. <laughs> Shushu. Rainsford. General. Rainsford. How on earth did you get here? I swam. I found it easier and quicker than walking through the jungle. I congratulate you. Extraordinary. You've won the game. Oh, no, General. I'm still a beast at bay, here. Get ready, General Zaroff. Swords? Yes, two of them. I see. Oh, very good. Very good, Rainsford. One of us, then, is to furnish a repast for the hounds. The other will sleep in this... this very excellent bed. Huh. Excellent. On guard, Rainsford! Oh, 
Just as my late host said it would be. A very excellent bed. And so closes The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell, starring Orson Welles. Tonight's tale of... Suspense. Mr. Wells was General Zaroff and Keenan Wynn, Rainsford. This is your narrator, the man in black, who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense next week, same time, when Orson Welles will again be our star in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's story, The Lost Special. The producer of suspense is William Spear, who tonight also directed the broadcast. And who, with Bernard Herman, the conductor, Lucian Marowick, who composed the original score, and Private Jacques Anson Fink, the radio author, collaborated on tonight's Suspense. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Suspense. This is the man in black, here again to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. With us in Hollywood tonight as star is Mr. Gene Lockhart, whose remarkable characterizations on the screen have won him a notable following with American audiences. It is with rueful satisfaction, but with satisfaction nonetheless, that the genial Mr. Lockhart contemplates his reputation. Because of his cinematic misdoings, his numberless treacheries, betrayals, and cowardly villainies, he is one of the most hated men in the country today. Our story this evening by John Shaw is called Statement of Employee Henry Wilson. And so with the performance of Gene Lockhart, as he relates and relives the events of the climactic moment in Henry Wilson's life, we again hope to keep you in suspense. I... I was aware that I was trembling. I tried walking slowly back and forth in front of the desk... But even in motion, my knees felt weak and my whole body shook. Why was it always I who trembled and never this pompous insect sitting in front of me? His voice was cool and mocking. His voice was clear and hard. Well, I sympathize with you, of course, Wilson. But the error must be brought to Mr. Larkin's attention. There is quite a big mistake there, quite a costly mistake. Mr. Larkin must know. He wouldn't cover it up. I knew that. Two years ago, this man had come with the firm. For eight years before that, I had worked there, enjoying the work, liking the people. And then he had come there. Have you... Have you ever stood quietly by and watched someone rob your house and steal your pocketbook? I was helpless, 
He was ambitious. He was clever. He was fluent. And as of tonight, I was his subordinate. Two years against ten years. Around the office, I had a reputation of being casual and carefree. But I hated this man. Every inch of me hated this man. And it was not a new hatred. Of course, there was no question of your honesty. His voice was patronizing. The patient teacher and the unruly pupil. I hated him. He smiled up at me and waved his hand in dismissal. He almost brushed a small iron vase off the top of the desk with the gesture. I... I had seen that vase so often. But I had never seen it out of the eyes that I was looking at it with now. Good night, Wilson. Good night, I said. Good night, clever boy. I walked out into the corridor and rang for the elevator. A ah, terrible night, ain't it, Mr. Wilson? I heard the boy yes, sir, talking these elevators like he was yelling too. at me from some distant mountain. He was talking and I was answering. But what either one of us was saying, I didn't know. I was thinking of, of something else. I looked at my watch as I stepped out of the car. It was 11.30 already. I mentioned it. You've had a long day today, Mr. Wilson. Those were the first words of the boy that I heard. Heard clearly. Very clearly. Uh, yes, I told him. Oh, plenty of overtime this week. I stood and looked at him for a moment. Uh, Mr. Dodds is still in the office. You, you might drop in and see if he wants anything. I think he'd be very grateful. I will, sir. I certainly will. It'll help to pass the time, sir. I don't like to complain, but these nights pass awful slow sometimes. Uh, yes. Uh, go up and see if he wants anything. Go up and see. I walked out of the lobby and came back into the building again when the boy had gotten into the elevator. Four flights up. I took the stairs slowly. I was in no rush. I must let the boy get out of the room first. He said the nights passed slowly. This one wouldn't, and yet there would be an eternity compressed in it. When I got to the fourth floor, I stood at the top of the stairs and watched the door to Dodd's office. The elevator was parked at the floor, so I knew the boy was in the room. A short while later, he came out, and I crouched back in the shadows until he'd gone down in the car. And then I walked into the room, not in a crouch or moving my feet so that no sound would wake the stillness, but casually, honestly. There was a small waiting room to Mr. Dodd's office. In two years, he had a waiting room. In ten, I had none. I felt like laughing at the symbolism of that fact. Who's there? I called out my name and entered his office. Yes, what is it, Wilson? He was still sitting down, and the iron vase was still alongside of him, very close to him. I started to talk. I don't know what about business, things in general. I've quite forgotten. I reached across and picked up the iron vase casually, very casually. But his eyes went wild suddenly, and he jumped. And I hit him square on the top of the head with the vase. It wasn't a very good shot. I had no leverage. But he started to slump back in the chair. I hit him again hard. And again and again. And a red streak ran across his forehead and he lay still. I put my hand against his heart. For a moment, there was a soft beating. And then I could feel nothing. I was very calm and very warm. I was calmer than I'd ever been before. 
I wiped off the vase and put it back onto the desk. I ran through the papers that Dodds had been looking at until I found the one paper I was looking for. I ripped it into little bits and I put the pieces into my pocket. Outside the building, my first act would be to scatter the pieces. I'd cover my mistake myself. I moved slowly back to the door. I wiped the doorknob and looked once around the room before I opened the door and stepped out into the waiting room. And then... Going home, Mr. Wilson? I stood there, afraid to turn, afraid to think. I slammed the door shut behind me and stood in front of it. Are you all right, Mr. Wilson? I tried to talk, but the words got caught somewhere in my throat. It was the sweeper, Tom Higby, the night sweeper. I almost fainted. Everything had been set so nicely. I'd left the building. The elevator boy had come up and found Dodds in good health. Someone had stolen him later and killed him. That would be the elevator boy's story. If suspicion attached to anyone, it would be to the boy. I had left the building. I had left the building, but... But now, this. Are you all right, Mr. Wilson? I'm fine, Tom. A bit of a cold, that's all. A weakens one. Uh, how are the wife and kids? Fine, fine. The shock was wearing off. Uh, Mr. Dodds is in his room now, Tom. Working very late tonight. You'd better, you know, let his office go for this once. Well, if you say so, Mr. Wilson... I could give it a quick brush, though, sir. I wouldn't disturb him none. I stood firm in front of the door. For a moment, I wondered if he'd seen anything when I'd come out of the room. It was possible. He could have looked over my shoulder. Ah, no. No, he hadn't seen anything. He began to sweep the sitting room, and I stood and watched him. I couldn't let him get out of here. I'd go to the chair if he told me about being there. And I couldn't kill him, too. Oh, what a quick step it had been back to normal. I was nervous again, and I felt a sickness at the bottom of my stomach. I tried to talk, to talk, and I, I, I sounded stupid. Tom looked at me. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have to touch him. It, it would be his word against mine, and I had left the building. I opened the door quickly and went back into Dodd's office. I tried to keep my eyes away from, from that thing at the desk. I remember that, that he'd kept a bottle in one of the drawers. And I took it and brought it out to the sitting room with me. Oh, Tom, Mr. Dodds has a birthday tomorrow and he wonders if you'll drink his health with me. Well, I don't think I'd better take any tonight. Mr. Dodds has a birthday. Sometime tomorrow he'll be a day old in the next world. Tom was famous for his liquor habits, but he hesitated. Well, now... I, I poured the drinks. I, I don't think I'd better have... Up with it, Tom, and down with it. And here's to Mr. Dodds. Well, <laughs> all right, here's kind of... <laughs> He drank one. He drank another. He drank a third. And still I poured them into him. He got talkative and grew very gay. But he didn't pass out. I looked at my watch. It was almost half past twelve. One whole hour I'd wasted with him. I could stand no more. He was drunk. Any test would show that. His story tomorrow would be listed as a drunkard's babble. I had left the building an hour ago. <laughs> I couldn't afford to waste any more time. I walked behind him, and he was laughing. And I hit him as hard as I could on the back of the neck. He pitched forward off the chair onto the floor. I dragged him into Dodd's office. And I lifted him into the chair facing Dodd's. I brought the bottle in from the sitting room and put it on the desk in front of Dodd's. I took the iron vase and curled Tom's hands around it for the fingerprints. And I dropped it at his feet. A bottle, a fight, a killing... I was sweating. 
I went out into the sitting room again and almost fell to my knees. I was frightened. I had to get out of here. I got to the lobby and looked out of the shadows at the elevator. The boy was sitting on a chair outside the car, and he seemed asleep. I came out of the darkness and went quickly towards the street and began to walk rapidly. I wanted to get somewhere out of the world. Would I ever sleep again? <laughs> we, we murderers are not supposed to, and I wanted to rest. Ah, I had a sudden idea. I went into a cafeteria and used the telephone. I called the building and got the elevator boy on the phone. Hello there. Hello, Jim. Oh, um, this is Mr. Mr. Wilson, Jim. Uh, has Mr. Dodds left yet? The voice that answered me was sleepy, and the words were hard to make out. But I knew all the answers. Well, listen closely, Jim. Will you tell him that the address of the place we were talking about is uh, 144 Gray Street? Yes, one for... Uh, yes, that's right. Oh, he'll know what I mean. Will you go up and tell him now, Jim? All right. Uh, thanks a lot, Jim. I was sure the sweeper would be discovered in the room with Dodds. The address was a Turkish bath. It's logical. A man working all night might want to go to a Turkish bath afterwards. Uh, Jim, Jim would walk in now, and heaven only knew what came next. The sweeper would be caught like a rat in a trap, drunk, and with a murdered man sitting across from him. I walked home through streets that crushed me in their shadows, between walls that whispered at me as I passed. I sat up in my room for hours listening to the sounds Manhattan makes in the night. And finally, finally I fell asleep. And I sat and I slept and I dreamed until sunrise. Uh, I woke with a start. I was shaking like some miserable wet cur. I took a drink and tried breathing deeply. Somewhere I'd, I'd read that deep breathing killed the, that scared feeling. What in blazes was I frightened about? I was safe. I was completely safe. But when I left the house, I was still shaking. I walked all around the block that the building was on before I went inside. It looked like any other morning. On the floor where my office was, I... I saw a policeman. And then another. And then my world was surrounded by a ring of police and plainclothes men. I must watch my nerves. I must move carefully. Very carefully. None of them paid any more attention to me than they did to any of the others. They assembled all of us in the president's office, and then one of them, a sharp, alert young man, began to talk. Last night, please. Last night, an attempt was made on the life of one of your associates, Mr. Charles Dodds. A murmur ran around the room. I was talking with the rest, being surprised with the rest. But what did he, what did he mean, an attempt? Dodds had been dead. Or, or had he? Fortunately, however, the attack was not successful. <sighs> and Mr. Dodds has supplied us with some rather unbelievable information. Oh. Information I, which I we tried to hold myself. I felt faint suddenly. And then something happened inside me, and I did not break. It was a trick. It was a trick, I was sure of it. The detective stared at us, running his eyes across our faces, across my face, searching, staring. And then he... he shrugged his shoulders. Well, as a matter of fact, Mr. Dodds was killed. <sighs> and another man you might know also died last night. Mr. Thomas Higby, the night sweeper. Uh, Higby? Dead too? 
Again, that rustle of voices, that droning conversation that I was part of. Some of them had known Higby, liked him. I hadn't meant to kill him. Could there be some mistake? I wanted to ask one of these men, was there some mistake? I, I hadn't meant to kill him. Mr. Dodds was clubbed to death. The night sweeper died of a heart attack. Nothing more is known as yet about what happened here last night. You must all consider yourselves at the disposal of the police. Until you're told otherwise. Now, if you Blast them. Why didn't they say something? They were lying to these people. Nothing more was known. That's nonsense. Why, it was all there for them to see. It told its own story. Higby had killed Dodds. Poor, harmless little Higby had killed that big, famous executive. And now... Mr. Wilson, will you come this way, please? Just a little routine questioning, that's all. Everybody here will have to undergo it. I must watch myself. I must go very slowly. Uh, sit here, won't you, Mr. Wilson? Now, uh, do you remember what time you left the office last night? Yes, yes, it was 11.30. I, I remember mentioning it to the elevator boy. Uh-huh. And what time did you get home? Oh, somewhere about uh, half past 12, I guess. Yes, j just about that time. Is there anybody who would swear to that? Well, the... The elevator boy... Well, I don't mean that. Is there anyone who saw you go into your house at 12.30? I, I hardly think so. At that time, the, the streets aren't too well populated, you know, officer. And, and I live in a house where people mind their own business. I, I really don't know anybody in the house. And I doubt if anybody saw me go into it. But you can check with the elevator boy, though, as to my going home at 11.30. Because... Yes, uh, we have already. You weren't on the best of terms with Dodds, were you, Wilson? Oh, I... I was fond of him. Uh, but I don't know what right you have to say a thing like that. Well, he kind of did you out of a job around here, didn't he? Oh, he, he, he was a smart man. Mr. Dodds was an exceptionally smart man. It was not at all a disgrace to lose a position to him. When I left him last night, he was in excellent health. And if I killed a man every time I had a job taken away from me, I'd, I'd have quite a long line of victims behind me. Of course, I, I'm just joking, you know. You made a phone call to him last night, didn't you? Uh, yes, to, to the elevator boy. I remember uh, suggesting that uh, he go to a Turkish bath after he'd finished work to sort of tone up. Uh, they're very good, you know. And I mentioned that I knew a very good one that I could recommend. And then when he asked me the name of it, I, I couldn't think of the address of the place. And I, I thought of it later, though, and I phoned the building. Where'd you phone from? Uh, from? From a little place in the neighborhood. And about what time did you phone? Well, it was about 12.25, I guess. I was getting a little mixed up. It couldn't have been then. I was still in the building at 12.30. Ah, they were confusing me. You called at exactly 12.55. So you must have miscalculated the time of your arrival at home. However, that isn't important. None of us is expected to time ourselves from place to place, are we? When we find too good an alibi, we get kind of suspicious. <laughs> well, I don't think we'll have to bother you anymore, Mr. Wilson. Thank you. He asked me to send somebody in to see him as I went out. I, I forget who it was. I, I was thinking... Very hard. I went into my office and sat down. <laughs> so easy. Was it possible the whole thing was over? And so easily... Hello there, Wilson. Very sad, this business. Very sad. Oh, uh, good morning, Mr. Larkin. But we must go on. Mr. Dodds would want it that way. Uh, yes, sir, he would. It's a responsible job he had, Wilson. But you've been with us long enough to know that. Uh, yes, sir. Do you think you can handle it? Well, sir, I... I th yes, sir, I think I can. Good. Get your stuff together and take over Dodd's old office. You deserve this, Wilson, and I'm sure you'll reward our confidence in you. Well, thank you very much, sir. Of course, I hardly expected... On second thought, I think you'd better go into his office right away. 
and sort of straighten out some of the things on his desk. I'll have one of the boys bring your things in later. Very well, sir. Good luck. Thank you, sir. Uh, the fat, pompous pig. Why hadn't he said those things before last night? They were all in a spot now. They needed poor, stupid Wilson. They needed me to get them out of a hole. The further the thing went, the funnier it got. Books were wrong about virtue and good counting for anything. To get ahead, you either married the boss's daughter or killed the boss. I took a pencil and a small notebook and went out into the corridor. I stood for a moment outside Dodd's office, just like last night. And then I pushed the door open, slowly. The sitting room. And then the door to the office. I opened it and walked inside. I heard the door close softly behind me. And I stood there, smelling the death in the air. And then... And then... I saw it. I saw it. I tried to yell. But I couldn't get the words out. There. There in front of me, sitting in the chair, where I'd propped him last night, was Tom Higby. His eyes open, his expression blank and staring. And at his feet was the bottle and the vase. The same bottle, the same vase. Dodds was all that was missing. I turned and I bolted into the hall. Higby. Well, what's the matter, Wilson? You look like you'd seen a ghost. In the office. In the office. Higby. Higby? Why, Higby's dead, man. What's the matter? Uh, Mr. Larkin. Where's Mr. Larkin? Well, here I am, Wilson. What's the matter? In the office. In the office. What? Why, nothing's the matter in here. I don't... I walked in after him. There was nothing there. Nothing. No Higby. No bottle. No vase. But I saw them. I saw them. Oh, was I going crazy? Was I beginning to go bad? I felt Larkin's pat on my shoulder. He murmured something about everybody being a little touchy, a little jumpy. And then he left. And I was alone in the room. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. I stood. I stared at the desk and at the chair. No one was there. No one could have been there. I must watch myself. Uh, what? Oh, oh I beg your pardon. Oh, not at all. I seem to be in the wrong room. I'm Mrs. Charles Dodds. Oh. I'm looking for that young detective. He doesn't seem to be out here. Well, I believe he's in the end room uh, questioning the employees. Well, then I don't suppose he'll be able to see me for a little while. Do you mind if I wait here for you? Well, I... Uh... Thank you so much. Yeah, excuse me for a second. Uh, Charlie, will you tell the detective that Mrs. Dodds is waiting for him in... in my new office? Uh, oh, you've already seated yourself. I, I was going to suggest that perhaps uh, this seat might... She was sitting in his chair. There was blood in that chair. This is quite all right, thank you. Charles would have liked to see the way everybody's taking his death. Everyone is so kind to me. Mr. Dodds was a fine man, a fine man. You're Mr. Wilson, aren't you? He used to talk about you... Thought you were a very bright person. He seemed very fond of you. I, I, I don't know how I'll be able to go on without Mrs. him. Mrs. Dodds, you, you mustn't. You, you mustn't. I'm sorry. He wouldn't like to see me carrying on like this, would he? We were going to buy a home in Westchester this summer. Did he ever tell you that? Yes. Just outside Yonkers. We have two lovely little ones. Toby and little Mary. He loved the New York State countryside. We talked so much about it. 
On, on she rambled. He liked this. He didn't like that. The children, the children, Toby and little Mary. Toby and little Mary, she was driving me crazy. Stop it, I wanted to yell. Get out of here and leave me in peace. Get out of here, you witch. Get out, get out. Mrs. Dodds, Detective Lewis would like to see you now. Thank you for everything, Mr. Wilson. And goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. Goodbye and get out and leave me alone. I hadn't meant to do anything like that. I hadn't wanted to do any of the things I was doing. All I'd wanted to do was to kill Dodds. All these other things, they weren't mine. I hadn't killed Higby. He, he can't haunt me. His wife can't cry at me. Heart attack. That's it. Higby died of a heart attack. I beg your pardon, sir. Have you seen Mrs. Higby? The detective's looking for her. How would I see her? Am I everybody's guardian? How can anybody get lost in this office? Sorry, sir. Mrs. Higby. Mrs. Higby. Uh, stop it, you Mrs. fool. Mrs. Higby. You howling idiot. Can't you be looked for quietly? You will drag Higby from his grave with your yelling. Two widows. What? You manufacture widows, don't you, Mr. Wilson? Uh, widows and orphans. Uh, Tell me, Mr. Wilson, is it your life's work or is it just a hobby with you? Uh, Tell me, Mr. Wilson. Who is that? Who is that talking? Do they think they can make a fool of me? Ah, uh, uh, the office communication. Uh, it's off. Oh, stop it, Mr. Wilson. You'll go balmy. Oh. You've committed the perfect crime. Don't go crazy and spoil it. No. Perfection is instinctive with you, isn't it? Yes, yes. Not a plan that you make. Spontaneous perfection. Yes, yes. There aren't many could do that. Go on. Vo go on. Voices can't frighten me. They deserve to die. And that's why they're dead. Thou shalt not kill, Mr. Wilson. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not kill. Not Higby. I didn't kill him. His heart stopped. Do you hear me? That's all. I didn't kill him. Kill now you voices, Wilson. stop. Do you hear me? Stop it, I command. Stop it. Is something, uh, something wrong, Mr. Wilson? What do you mean, is there something wrong? Do you hear them too? Well, you mustn't listen. They lie. Do you hear me? They lie. Now get out. Get out. Get out. You must talk only to me. You understand me? Only to me. Not to these others. Don't say anything to them. Only to me. Only to me. Uh, well, what do you want? Well, I don't know. Uh, you think they'll say something bad about me, don't you? So you can carry me off to jail. That's what you're waiting for, isn't it? Well, you're going to be disappointed. You see, they're quiet. What's quiet? Yeah, who's quiet? Ah, uh, you think I'm going to tell you. They won't say anything unless I tell them to, and I'm not going to tell them to say anything. Not one little word. Last night. Last night you wanted to know all about last night. Uh, when you asked them, but they won't tell you. Look at the expression on that face. Oh, uh, look at him, Lieutenant. They were there. They saw me hit him. But they won't say anything. They were there, but they won't tell you a thing. Not one little word, not a He's single a thing. He's a gibbering idiot. Because I'm not oh, going to let you. I shouldn't him. let you they monkey around. No. We could have gotten it out of him some other way. You and your psychology. You know, you should leave that stuff in colleges. All I did was plant Higby in the office and route Mrs. Dodds in here and talked into the ventilating system. Yeah, those voices had me creepy, too. Incidentally, Dodds was single. What? That girl's my fiancée. She's an actress. Well, for... Good. Well, why did you tell him Higby was dead? No, maybe you better not explain. Psychology, huh? No, 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 well, what are we going to do with the confession uh, now? We should have pinched him the moment he walked in here. Maybe I'm lucky I never went to college. Uh, there's no use you waiting here. They won't tell you anything. They're mine, all mine. I tell them what to say. All right, get the wagon up here. I'm not going to walk this thing through the streets. I won't say a word. Henry Wilson, it's the judgment of this court that you be sent to the Hillview Mental Home and be kept there in close confinement until... Uh -huh. Uh -huh.
On the voice went. I had stopped listening to voices, all but the ones that I couldn't help hearing. But, but I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. I tell people that, and they look at me queerly. The stupid fools. The guards here have spread the lies that, that I have fits. <laughs> lies. Lies, I tell you. They say, every night when the moon comes up, I have fits. Loud, roaring fits. Well, they lie. Because it's then that I hear the voices. I hear Dodds and his wife and Toby and little Mary. And I sit quietly and I listen to them. Do you think I could have a fit in front of them? Do you now? No, I... I'd be ashamed. I tell you, I'm not crazy. And they lie when they tell you that. They lie, all of them. They lie. And they're lies. 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 And so closes Statement of Employee Henry Wilson, starring Gene Lockhart. Tonight's tale of... Suspense. This is the man in black who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us again next week, same time when our two distinguished stars will be Margot and Philip Dorn. They will appear in a suspense play by John Dixon Carr, entitled Cabin B-13. The producer and director of suspense is William Spear, who with Lud Gluskin and Lucian Morrowick, conductor and composer... And John Shaw, the author, collaborated on tonight's Suspense. Suspense fans, please note that this program will shortly move to a different day of the week. Suspense will come to listeners in Eastern and Central time zones on Thursdays, beginning December 2nd, and to Mountain and Pacific time zone listeners on Mondays, beginning December the 6th. Now remember Thursdays, beginning December the 2nd, in Eastern and Central Time Zones. And Mondays, beginning December 6th, in the Pacific and Mountain Time Zones for Suspense. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Suspense. This is the man in black here to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. In Hollywood this evening, our star is the young American actor who, within a single year, has become one of the most provocative of Hollywood's leading men, Mr. Gene Kelly. Mr. Kelly appears tonight as a gentleman named Art Kramer, a gentleman of most uncertain scruples, 
engaged with other gentlemen of similar disrespectability in distinctly unlawful practices. Our suspense play by Robert L. Richards is called Thieves Fall Out. And in it, in support of our star, you will hear Hans Conried as a racetrack devotee by name Kennelly, and William Johnstone as Sam Gross. And so with Thieves Fall Out and with the performance of Gene Kelly as Art Kramer, we again hope to keep you in suspense. ABC Enterprises. No, he's not in. No, I don't know where you can locate him. Hey, Rita. Yes, I'll tell him you called. ABC Enterprises, ABC Enterprises. Why does he give all these guys his phone number if he wants to keep this business so quiet? Yeah, you know, wants to do favors for people he meets in bars, brags how he can get things for him. You know. Sure, I know. And the next day I have to give him the brush off. He's going to brag to the wrong guy someday. Hi, Yachty. Hello. Hello, Arthur. Hiya, babe. Where you been the last couple of days? Uh, ducking all the guys I owe money to. What time is Sam getting the boys together? In about a half an hour, down at the warehouse. You better start down there pretty soon. What's the difference? I won't get enough out of it to buy a round trip to Coney Island. Any calls? Yeah, Canelli called a little while ago. That punk. Another guy who wants dough I haven't got. Just stall him? I tried, but he said he was coming up anyway. Oh, what'd you let him do that for? You know I don't want to see that guy. I couldn't help it. He knows the way here. Okay, okay. Anything else? No. Arthur, if you're not going down right away, can I talk to you for a minute? What about? Oh, something. Joe, watch this switchboard for me, will you, while I talk to Arthur in the next room? What's he got that I haven't got? No cracks out of you. Please, Arthur? All right, but make it snappy. Now what? Oh, Arthur, what, what's the matter lately? You know what's been the matter, everything. Me too. Oh, don't start that again. Read it's no use. Look, you're a good kid, but it's no use. You didn't used to say that. All right. So now I owe nearly ten grand around this town. And there's some plenty tough monkeys. If I don't get it up pretty soon, it's going to be too bad. Top of that, I had a loaded truck and a trailer hijacked last week, and there goes my take for the month and more. And you want to know what's the matter. Oh, Arthur, honey, why don't you quit? Why don't you get out while you still can? Why don't I quit? What are you talking about? Oh, you used to have a decent business, Arthur. Sure, sure, and I didn't eat. Well, what about now? It's making a wreck of you. It's, it's dangerous. You know what's going to happen. This whole black market thing's going to crack pretty soon. And when it does, ah, you... Ah, don't be silly. Yeah? Canelli's outside to see Artie. That punk. All right, let him come in. What's one more? Okay. Uh, better let me talk to him alone, baby. All right, but think about I, what I said, will you? Sure. Oh, hi, Artie. I thought I might catch you. Yeah, I'll bet. Close the door. Sure. Hey, listen, Arthur. I need that dough. Well, I haven't got it. I told you that. Uh, no, 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 look. I don't want there should be no trouble. There's not going to be any trouble. Take it easy. I didn't mean that. But I took them bets from you on my own, and now my boss is after me. If I don't get that dough by Monday, I'm going to be in trouble. Well, I haven't got it, and I won't have it for another month. Can't you get it from Sam? No, I'm into him as far as I can be now. What do you mean? Sam must have plenty sold it down in some safe deposit vault by now. It huh? isn't in a vault. 
It's up at his place in Connecticut. Anyway, he won't give me any more. Connecticut, huh? I didn't know he had a place in Connecticut. Yeah, near Riverside. It's a hideout, way away from everything. Oh. McPhail has one, too, about five miles away. When's he go there? He's hardly ever there. Nobody's there. What do you care? You're thinking of the days when you used to climb through second-story windows? Oh, you should know how to say that, Art. I don't even know where the joint is. No, I was kidding. Anyway, listen, I'm, I'm sorry about the dough, but you'll have to wait. Uh, Art, you don't know the spot I'm in. You... You'll get it from me when I've got it. I'm uh, leaving. Uh, Art, listen. You coming? Where you going? Down to the warehouse to watch my share of last month's take go down the drain. Okay. You late? Yeah, I stopped in at the office. Hi, McPhail. Hi, Mo. You uh, weren't waiting just for me to hand out the chips, were you? You're right. We weren't. I just wanted you to know how it worked out. It was a good month out. Except for you. I know, I know. Come on, Sam. Come on. Pass around the sugar. Let's get it over with. Well, here it is. Cash. Total take was 53 grand. 17 goes to you, McPhail. I got the figures all here if you want to see. I know you wouldn't double-cross me, Sam. I wouldn't double-cross anybody. And don't forget it. Here's your dough. Mo, yeah. oh, yours is six. You understand you didn't bring in as much business as McPhail. I ain't complaining. And I get 21. Part of that is paying expenses. The rest is my percentage. Don't I get anything? What? Your cut would have been nine grand. But there was that truck and trailer. Those things cost dough, you know. To say nothing of a whole load of prime meat. Do you have to take it all out now? I already have. I'll give you 500 to keep going on. Oh, that's fine. 500. Listen, Sam, I need dough. You always need dough and never have none. Listen, you... He's right, Art. You've got to get yourself straightened out. If I give you any more, it'll just go to the bookies and gambling joints like the rest of us. Listen, Sam, I tell you, I gotta have it. The guy's after me. I think he's yellow, Sam. You keep your big mouth out of this. Yeah. I was a respectable businessman when you were running a lousy clip joint on Sands. Yeah, yeah, and you're starved. And you're still starving. Because you haven't the guts to keep a couple of mugs from hijacking your stuff. Why, you... Cut it out now. Cut it out. There's not gonna be any trouble in this organization. There's plenty for everybody. Now, listen, Art. Yeah? Why don't you go up to my place in Connecticut for a few days? Take it easy. And let me talk to these guys who are looking for you. I know who they are. They don't want any more talk. Anyway, I go nuts up there in the country. Go on. Pick up my car at the station. No, thanks. Well, I'm going. I'm going out to the country and tend to my victory garden. Your victory garden? Yeah. I see you about Tuesday. <laughs> okay. Uh, hey, Mac. Yeah? Uh, wait a minute. So long, Art. Uh, so long. Uh, say, uh, Mac, uh, I'm sorry I made any cracks. <laughs> Forget it. Uh, Mac, you uh, going up to the country? Yeah, bet your life. Going down and get on the 520 right now. Say, uh, you know, uh, I think I'll take Mac up. Uh, Mac, I, uh, well, I kind of need a rest. I, I, yeah, I think... yeah, you need something. Uh, do you mind if I ride up on the train with you? Why not? Why not? It's a public train. Oh, you know, uh, Mac, I was sorry about Say, that. Say, Artie, Artie. Yeah? Don't mind me. I talk a lot. And I don't mean it. Ah, oh, forget it, Mac. I know. Say, you want to see my victory garden? Are you kidding? No, no, I got a garden. It's a beaut, too. 
Want to see it? Sure. Sure I would. I, I always like gardens. Well, well, in that case, you'll have to stop over at my place on your, on your way to Sam's, huh? It'll be a pleasure. Come on in, Artie. I want to put this dough in the safe, and then I'll... Then I'll show you around. Sure. <laughs> ah, when the war's over and I'm legitimate, I'm going to build onto it. Have a lot of lawn. Gardener. Real country gentleman. Uh, what's this, your office? I do a little business here once in a while. Keep my dough in a safe there until I bank it. <laughs> know anything about safes? No. Huh. It's good. It's good. Not that I don't trust you, Artie. Yeah. There she is. Put him up, Mac. What? You heard me. I'm not a movie. A stick-up, huh? Why, you yellow little rat. You don't think you can pull this on me and live, do you? It's not a stick-up, Mac. I just want you to do me a little favor, and I want to be sure you do it. Yeah? Yeah, get on that phone. This had better be a gag. It won't be unless you do exactly what I tell you. What? Call Reed in town. Ask her what Sam has lined up for Tuesday. Say you called me over at Sam's house just now and talked to me, but I didn't know. Come on, get going. Atwater 3, 5562. Listen, Art, I'm no guy to kid around with, and I don't like this. Talk. Uh, Rita, this is Mac. What's Sam got lined up for Tuesday? I just talked to Artie over at Sam's place. Yeah, yeah, up here in the country. He said he didn't know him to call you. Oh, I see. Cut it short. No, no, no. Never mind. Okay. All right. Now what's the gag? You never were very smart, were you, Mac? Eh? That's my alibi. You just told Rita you talked to me at Sam's place. You get it? Why, you... Neatly done, Art Kramer. Virtually a perfect alibi. And $17,000 in cold cash. But there was someone else who thought he had a perfect setup, too. Canelli, the little bookie, whose former occupations were even less savory. It wasn't hard for Canelli to find where Sam's place was in Connecticut, in New York's underground of petty crime find out anything. And it wasn't hard to jimmy a window. Done that often enough. Ah, and then to find the money. There was a wad of money here at Sam's place somewhere. Art Kramer had said so. Probably in a safe. But that wouldn't be any trouble either. Not in the living room, of course. Yes, maybe this room. An office, a desk and phone. And the safe there in the wall. And just as he'd thought, old-fashioned, easy to crack. <laughs> First to drill a little hole, then the soup. There'd be a quick, neat little explosion, and the safe would fall apart in his hands. Huh? But wait, what's that? A car driving up, stopping. Who? Art Kramer had said nobody ever came up here. Mm. But it was leaving now, driving away. Probably just a mistake. No, no, steps outside. Somebody coming in. 
do? Escape cut off. Hide. Here in the office behind the door. Hide the bag of tools, quick. He's coming in here. Hello, operator. I want New York City. At water three five five six two. Yeah, that's right. Hello, Rita. Sam. Listen, Rita, get a hold of everybody. Artie, Mac, Moore, everybody you can. I've got a tip off. There's going to be a raid. Yeah, cops. Tell the boys to duck. Lay low until they hear from me. Find out where they're going to be and call me right back as soon as you contact everybody. Got it? Yeah? Oh, okay. I'll get hold of Mac myself as long as he's up here. Artie, too? Well, I'm calling from my place now. I don't see him anywhere. Well, he must have changed his mind. I didn't look in the garage. He came by cab. He's probably around someplace, yeah. Well, I'll wait for your call, then. Okay, Rita. Make it snappy now. Hey, Connelly, what are you no, doing listen, here? listen, Sam, I just... The safe. Why are you... No, 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 Hit him too hard. Murder. That's a lot different from housebreaking. Murder. The phone. Somebody calling Sam. Fear. Blind, unreasoning fear. Smash it. Rip it out of the wall. Though whoever was on the other end could actually hear, actually see what was in this room. Murder and a murderer. There. Why, oh, why had he done that? Foolish. Just nerves. You've got to get hold of yourself. Think, think, think. What now? The money. Yes, have to have the money now. Make a getaway. Mexico, South America. Maybe Sam. Yes, the body. He to even touch him. But turn him over. There, the wallet. Empty. That's funny. Other pockets. No, no, nothing. The safe, then. Finish the job quick. Then get out. Find the drill again. Hurry. Again, somebody coming. Who? Never mind. Not going to be caught this time. Can't be a murderer. Close the door. Lock it quick. Pocket key. Hide. Maybe whoever it is will go away. Then come back and get the money later. Here he is. Hide quickly. The kitchen. Get out the back window again if you have to. But wait, wait. He's not following. Wonder who it is. Just have a look. Do the crack of the door. Careful. There. Art. Art Kramer. The suitcase must be going to stay. But wait, why not? Art wouldn't know anything. Couldn't with the office door locked. Give him a plausible story. Stay overnight and get the money when he's asleep. A chance, but have to take it. Have to have the money now. Why not tell Art he'd come looking for Sam to borrow? Then looking through the house for him, call him. Yes, make it look natural. He can't answer now. Call him. Sam. Sam. Hello, anybody here? Hello. Who is it? Who is it yourself? I'm looking for Mr. Gross, Sam Gross. Well, what are you doing here? Hello, Arthur. I was looking for Sam. I thought you didn't know where this place was. Oh, I found out. Yeah? What made you think Sam was going to be up here? Why... I heard a tip in town. There might be some trouble. I figured he might come up here to duck out. 
What kind of trouble? Cops? Yeah? I didn't hear anything. I don't know, but I'd do something. You know, I'd need dough the worst way. I figured Sam might let me have a little. He paid off today, didn't he? That's right. Odd. Did you get any? Me? Well, if you did, I don't like to keep asking you, but I need it, Odd. Why, uh... Why, uh, look, uh, Canelli. Huh? You know, I meant to get in touch with you about that. I wanted to talk to you this afternoon. You mean you got something? Uh, come on inside, I'll tell you. Oh, sure, sure. I, uh, got an idea. An idea. It came like a flash to Art Kramer. Frame Canelli for the murder of McPhail. Plant some of McPhail's money on him as evidence. And who would ever believe Canelli's word, a man with a criminal record against Art's? Why, Rita would swear that McPhail himself had said Art was at Sam's place, simply denied that he'd ever seen Canelli, and Canelli would be McPhail's murderer, and Art Kramer would be safe forever. Now, uh, about that money. Yeah. Uh... As a matter of fact, I did get some. Not much, understand. Well, even a little would help. I... Uh, how much do I owe you all together? Nearly 4000 huh? Well, uh, suppose I gave you two. I shouldn't give you that much the way I'm fixed. Well, it ain't what I need, but it would help. Okay, uh, here's two grand on account. Oh. You know, it uh, doesn't leave me with much. I appreciate it, Art, really. Say, uh, you're uh, really on a spot, huh? Yeah. How much more do you need? Oh, not a four, five, anyway. Oh, oh well, uh, you know, I just thought I know where you can get it if you work it right. You do? Yeah. You uh, know McPhail? Oh, I know him. Not well. Well, I do. He took in plenty this month. What good does that do me? I tell you, I know the guy. He's the softest touch in the world. He'd give the shirt off his back to anybody if they told him the right story. Yeah? How come you don't put the bite on him? He doesn't like me, but anyone else. (laughs) You mean, uh, I just ask you? Sure. You get anything you want. I'm not kidding. If you ask for 10, even 20, you'd get it if he had it. No four. Sure. He's up here in the country now, too. Right up the same back road, four and a half miles. Hey, uh, how do I recognize the place? It's a big place on the right. The only house for a mile. You can't miss it. Say, I'd, I'd run up there if I were you. Yeah. Maybe I will, huh? Maybe I will. A break. The kind of break Canelli had prayed for. Get the money from McPhail. Yes, quicker and safer than trying to get back in that room with a dead body on the floor. Get it from McPhail and have a good head start. Art won't find Sam's body in there for at least a day or two. The door's locked and Canelli has the key. He can be on a plane with McPhail's money and be out of the country by tomorrow. A break, the perfect break. Well, uh, well thanks for the tip, Art. You sure McPhail's up there, huh? Sure, he's always there, every weekend. He's got a garden, a victory garden. <laughs> That's a lie. Well, I guess I better get going, huh? Yeah, look around the grounds for him first. If sure. he isn't outside, just walk right in. Uh, the door's always open. He's a simple guy. Trust anybody. Uh, okay. Uh, thanks, Arthur. Skip it. Maybe someday you can do the same for me. Yeah. Yeah, maybe someday I can. Well, so long. So long. <laughs> And now, Art has a job to finish. Phone the cops. From here? No, better not. They might trace it. The gas station at the crossroad. Plenty of time. Canelli will be there five or ten minutes before he finds what he'll find as the cops find him. 
How easy he fell for it. But never mind that now. The gas station. The phone. Hello. I want the police. Uh, hurry, please. Hello. Uh, Riverside Police? Uh, listen... I was just driving down Nine Mile Road. I was going by the old McPhail place. You know the place I mean? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. I, I was going slow and I heard something. It sounded like someone was being killed. Yeah, yes, a murder. There were shots and somebody screaming and more shots. A man's voice. Oh, it was terrible. You better get up there right away. Oh, never mind who I am. I don't want to get in any trouble. No, but get up there. Yes, murder. Get your call, all right, sir? Yeah, thanks. ABC Enterprises. Yes, did you locate him yet? Oh, well, keep trying and call me back. Joe, I'm worried. Eh, don't worry about him. If you can't find Mo, neither can the cops. I'm not thinking about him. I'm worried about Sam and, and Arthur. Maybe they went out. Sam said he'd wait for my call. It isn't that. It's, the phone's dead. I've got to get in touch with him somehow. Can't it wait? You know it can't. Not with the cops raiding the warehouse and arresting everyone in sight. Well, how about a telegram? Oh, too slow. I hate to send anyone around to the house, but Sam will understand this time. What are you going to do? Get the telephone company to help. Hello? I want the Riverside, Connecticut traffic operator, please. Yes. You know, it's funny about that phone. It rang two or three times, and then suddenly it went dead. I... Oh, hello, traffic operator? Have you a phone listed under the name of Gross? Samuel Gross. Well, there's something wrong with it, and it's very important that I get in touch with Mr. Gross right away. I'm a secretary. Will you send a man up right away? Thanks. And would you tell Mr. Gross that I've been trying to reach him? Thank you. Oh, see? When Sam finds out there's something wrong with his phone, he can phone me from outside. You're a pretty smart girl sometimes, Rita. Yeah. Don't you believe me? I just wish I was smart enough to get some sense across to that guy, Art Kramer, once in a while. You kind of like him, don't you? Cut it out. Eh, don't worry about Artie. He'll be all right. Sure, I suppose. I suppose he'll be all right. <laughs> Mr. Gross, I'm from the telephone company. Mr. Gross isn't here. Oh. Well, we just got word from New York that his secretary's been trying to reach him, but his phone is out of order. I was sent up to look at it. Sure, go right ahead. I'm a friend of Mr. Gross. I know he'd want you to fix it. Okay. Where is it? First order, you're right. Well, looks like we've got more visitors. Yeah, cops. Well, I better get after this phone here. Uh, I'm sorry to trouble you. I wonder if we could use your phone. Well, it's out of order, I'm afraid. There's a man here fixing it now. What's the matter, officer? Trouble? Yeah, a little killing up the road. We didn't want to handle the phone there. Might be fingerprints on it. A uh, murder? That's right. Up at the old McPhail place. Caught the guy red-handed. Murder and robbery. We even found the dough on him. Yeah? Who did it? Says his name is Canelli from New York. I wouldn't tell you all this, except it's an open-and-shut case. Couldn't explain what he was doing there or how he got the money or anything. Well, you'll read about it in the papers tomorrow. You, uh, have him outside now? Yep. Well, we better be going. Say, mister, that door you got, you got it's locked. You got a key? Why, 
No. Well, what's the matter? You lost a key someplace? Well, I, I, I must have. The, the, the room with the phone in it. Oh, well, maybe I can help you out. I got a little gimmick here that might open it. Well, thanks. Yeah, we got to have things like that in this line of business, you know. Uh, this the door? Yeah, that's it. There you are. Oh, thanks. You uh, don't need me in there for anything, do you? No, sir. Well, good night. Good night. Hey, say, officer. Yeah? You better come in here a minute. Uh, wait a second, will you, Jim? Uh, sure. What's the matter? Hey, mister. You've been here all day? That's right. Why? Nobody else been here all afternoon? No, sir. Oh, what's this? You find something wrong in there? You said it, mister. Put up your hands. Hey, what's the idea? You don't know, huh? Jim, take a look at what we got here. Yeah. Well, well. Cover him, Jim. Okay. Oh, what is... Hey, let me see that. Sure. Sam. No. Robbery, too. Been through his wallet and started on the safe. Just like the other guy. Let's frisk him. No. No, I didn't do this, I tell you. I didn't do it, I tell you. Uh, here's the dough, all right. A roll big enough to choke a horse. Look, you guys. I tell you, I didn't do this. Yeah. Kind of interrupted you, didn't we? Come on. Look. I didn't do this, I tell you. I didn't. I didn't do this. I did I did I didn't do And the story ends with a newspaper clipping. I'll read it to you. Bridgeport, Connecticut. Arthur Kramer and George Kennelly were executed here today within ten minutes of each other to bring to a fitting conclusion one of the strangest series of coincidences in the criminal records of this state. Both men committed the same crime, murder and robbery, within a few miles of each other on the same day and at almost the same time. Both victims were operators in the New York black market. Kramer was convicted of the murder of Samuel Gross. Kennelly killed Edward McPhail. Both killers were caught on the scene of the crime, were arrested by the same officers, taken together in the same police car to the same jail. Both proclaimed their innocence, yet pleaded guilty in the face of the overwhelming evidence against them. A curious factor in the case was that though both men denied knowing the other... They tried repeatedly to attack each other in the prison yard until guards were forced to keep them out of sight of each other at all times. Police have always believed there was some connection between the two crimes, but have never been able to find out what it was. And so closes Thieves Fall Out, starring Gene Kelly. Tonight's tale of Suspense. Appearing with Gene Kelly, who is to be seen currently in Metro-Golden-Mayer's Technicolor musical Thousands Cheer, were Hans Conried as Kennelly and William Johnstone as Sam Gross. This is the man in black who conveys to you Columbia's invitation to spend this half hour in suspense with us again next week, same time, when our star will be Mr. Vincent Price... Mr. Price will be heard in a suspense play by E. Jack Newman, dealing with the Gestapo and called The Strange Death of Charles Umberstein. The producer and director of suspense is William Spear, who with Lud Gluskin and Lucian Marowick, conductor and composer, and Robert L. Richards, the author, collaborated on tonight's 
Suspense. Don't miss Suspense when this series moves to a new day and time. The day, Thursdays, beginning December the 2nd. The time, 8 p.m. Eastern Wartime and 7 p.m. Central Wartime. In the Mountain and Pacific time zones, listeners will hear Suspense on Mondays, beginning December the 6th at 9 p.m. Pacific Wartime. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is the man in black, here to introduce Columbia's program, Suspense. Heading our Hollywood cast tonight is the distinguished American actor, the star of the Broadway suspense drama, Angel Street, who has recently returned to this coast to resume his film career, Mr. Vincent Price. Tonight's suspense play, which presents Mr. Price, and which is produced and directed by William Spear, relates an episode of recent years in the unfriendly Nazi capital of Berlin. The strange death of Charles Umberstein by E. Jack Newman is tonight's tale of suspense. If you have been with us before, you will know that suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion and dangerous adventure. In this series are tales calculated to intrigue you, to stir your nerves, to offer you a precarious situation and then withhold the solution until the last possible moment. And so, with the strange death of Charles Umberstein, and with the performance of Vincent Price, we again hope to keep you in... Suspense! I was infuriated to think I had been trapped. thought that someone had discovered my intentions maddened me to the breaking point. Nothing had slipped. Everything had run smoothly as I had planned. No evidence, not the slightest trace, nothing. And yet, I was trapped. Trapped. But why? How? Let me see. Papers in my briefcase. Train ticket. Information forwarded safely to my office. And he knew. How? 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 But he did know. I stood quietly in my room watching him, watching him, watching me, waiting for me, standing by the lamppost beneath my window, knowing, knowing he had trapped me, waiting for me. I recognized him almost immediately, Captain von Heint. Once before, I had seen him briefly in Herr Miller's office. I had been working on some corrections. Herr Miller was escorting him through the plant on an inspection tour. They stopped for a moment outside my office. I glanced up as Herr Miller gestured my way through the partially open door. Well, here it was. They were talking about me. My heart stopped. He was explaining how I had been recommended by the Führer himself, my qualification. They continued on their tour. Herr Miller ex explained later when I went to his office. Aha, Umberstein, there you are. Herr Miller, you sent for me? Yes, Umberstein. This morning when Captain von Hind and myself passed by your office, I knew it was you. You knew it was me? Yeah. 
Captain von Hind is head of Gestapo intelligence in this area. He was conducting a routine inspection this morning, and it was he who suggested that... What? I, well, uh, since your recommendations were by the Führer himself... And yes. Your work here has been excellent. I knew you were the man when I passed by today. My work? Huh? Oh, <laughs> no, 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 of course, not that. Uh, why, you have become one of our best men. Oh, thank you, Herr Müller. No, this is it. Yes, Herr Müller. Through various posts, we are releasing more prints on munitions areas in this country uh, and other countries. Huh? <laughs> you are to be in complete charge of their release from the war. I understand, Herr Müller. As a citizen of the Reich, I am greatly honored that I have been given such an opportunity. An opportunity to show your loyalty. An honor. I will give you the combinations. You will see that no other person enters the war. Of course, Herr Müller. Uh -huh. uh, one moment, Umberstein. Uh, yes? I think I should tell you that a few months ago in one of the neighboring plants, the Gestapo apprehended a spy. Yes? He was working for an enemy espionage service, found in possession of certain vital documents which he had access to in his work. And uh, what did they learn from him? Oh, many things. He was reluctant to speak at first, but it's difficult to hold out indefinitely. <laughs> well, he finally gave them enough information to locate other agents who had filtered in. It was well he was detected then. Oh, yes. The uh, Gestapo is still on the alert for some of his co-workers still expected to arrive. Of course, they are ignorant of his confession and his faith. So, Herr Umberstein, I must warn you to take all the necessary steps against the possibility of espionage. We cannot be too careful. I shall be careful. In you, Umberstein, is exemplified the efficiency of the Third Reich. my suitcase and looked down on the street. I watched him standing there. I kept asking myself, how, 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 how could he know? This Captain von Hind, how could he know? The plan was perfect, the best yet, and yet I was discovered, trapped. It was a late Saturday afternoon, and the silence of the day hung heavy in the room. Outside it was cold, very cold, but in my room it was warm, stuffy. The radiator hissed and spewed as though it were the judge of the events to come. I was almost angry at it. <laughs> a radiator. It was still light enough that he might see me if I crossed to raise the window. He wasn't aware that I was in the room. I hadn't turned on the lights. Now he stood there, waiting for me to return. I lay down on the bed, smoking. My thoughts troubled by the one question, how? How? How had he discovered me? Safely, I had avoided all connections with anyone who might have a chance to spy on my work. There was not the least cause for suspicion. An established citizen of the Reich, well-recommended, pure Aryan, employed as an architect in one of the country's largest munitions plants, certainly there was no reason for him to suspect me, the Gestapo, this Captain von Hind, waiting to take me. Fräulein Keller. Fräulein Keller. Oh, of course not. Not she. But could you ever trust a woman? Fräulein Keller. Did I give her any reason? Any reason at all? 
Good morning, Fräulein. Oh, good morning. My name is Charles Umberstein, and I am to be at the munitions factory near here. I wish to take a room. Oh? One facing the outer street, Fräulein, if you can accommodate me. Oh, I think so. Oh. We have one. It is on the second floor. Overlooks the street corner. Oh, fine. I'm glad. It, it looks comfortable here. Small and comfortable. Oh, yes. You will like it, I'm sure. Uh, I am the owner and manager here. Fräulein. Sign here, please. Yes, of course. There you are. Oh, thank you. Otto, would you show Herr Umberstein to his room? Yes. Yes, who is it? It's I, Fräulein Keller. Oh, just a moment. Yes, Fräulein? I I have brought you some extra blankets. Oh. You may be cold. Oh, that's very thoughtful of you, Fräulein. And uh, Herr Umberstein, down the street, a little cafe. You may find nice meals and a little music, too. Oh, wonderful. I am indebted to you, Fräulein. Oh, but you are my charge. I look after my guests. It is my job. Oh, that is most kind, Fräulein. Uh, Herr Umberstein, yes. I, I also dine at a little cafe. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Here's to you, Fräulein, oh, for yes. your wonderful hospitality. Oh, to you, Herr Umberstein. <laughs> oh, Fräulein, it's growing late. I must be off. I have a great many things to do tomorrow. Oh, and so do I. Oh, it has been a wonderful evening. Wonderful. Yes, wonderful. Here's your coat. Hi, Growing colder now, isn't it? Oh, yes, the winter will be here soon. Too soon. Yes, but I won't be... Eh? Uh, you won't be? Oh, nothing, Fräulein, nothing. You will be here long. Certainly, Fräulein. Certainly, I was just uh, wishing. Wishing? For what? Now I had done it. I would started to thinking... Perhaps she could... For what? Oh, nothing, Fräulein. Nothing important. Only the hopes of every man... They become so near sometimes. They're almost reality. So? What else could I do? I had to lead her thoughts away somehow. She took the lead. You mean a woman? Yes. Yes, Fräulein. You. Oh, but we have known each other for such a short time. Only two weeks. That's I... true, but I've been aware of you for a longer time, though I've just met you. Oh, oh Herr Umberstein, I... <sighs> Charles. Oh, Charles. At first I was uneasy about the whole affair. Then after a while I, I did grow rather fond of her. She was so accommodating and we dined together each evening and I, I played my role to the letter. Never once did she mention my work. Oh. Fräulein Keller, what are you doing in my room? Well, I was... I, Anna. I was... You've been looking through my papers. Why? I was looking for something. But what right have you? What are you looking for? I was... Well, I well, was looking for a letter. For? A letter? What letter? One that you haven't got. I thought perhaps you might have it. Now, out with it. A letter from a woman. Very well, Charles. If you must know, I, I suspect you have nothing guilty. She I was can't... actually looking for a letter from some woman. Any woman. She didn't trust me. She didn't trust her child. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, it couldn't have been Fräulein Keller. 
Who then could it have been? I walked over to the window and looked down at the figure who so patiently kept his vigil there. Captain von Heinz, waiting. Why? There had been something wrong with the passport, but no, that was perfect, not the passport. All passengers will report to the train master for passport examination. Yeah, all in order. All you can take your luggage to Berlin. Yeah, this way. Next. Uh, Next. Here you are. Name? Charles Umberstein. Residence? Berlin. Nationality? German. Hmm. Mm-hmm. All in order. Picture, luggage, all in order. Thank you, train master. You must be careful, you know. Uh, when may I catch my train for Berlin? It should be by any moment. Next. As I stood there in the shadows waiting for my train, I, I examined my passport again as I had done a hundred times before. No one would have any reason to doubt anything so genuine as that. Our passengers for Berlin! Our passengers for Berlin! Guard! Guard, must we stand passport inspection again? Uh, yeah. The Army intelligence will accommodate you on the train. Jawohl. Three stops, my passport was inspected. A good test? If the passport had been suspected or investigated, it would only prove that I was Charles Umberstein. I had come by the passport through Hans. At the time, Hans was employed as an Austrian customs inspector. This gave him access to many such passports. According to Hans, there had been a person named Charles Umberstein who had suddenly disappeared in 1936. Since there had been no friends or relatives to make an inquest, well, you can see. No. No, I was Charles Umberstein. Why, I even resembled the badly scarred photograph on the identification card. From the front view, he was evidently a large man, big shoulders, large head, wore a short Prussian haircut. Yes, I certainly looked enough like the photograph. Passport was flawless. He couldn't have discovered me through that. Von Hind. Something else. What else? The plans? No, 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 of course not. They couldn't have discovered that. I merely made copies and left the originals. No, 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 not the plans. Why, Hans and I... Hans. Oh, no, no, not Hans. Never. We'd worked so well together. Oh, no, no, not Hans. A strange, silent boy, perhaps, but surely... That night in 1936, when he gave me the passport, he was our man in Austria, but strange things happen, even to the most loyal. All set, Charles. Then I will not see you again, Hans. Until... Until I arrive, eh? I will be attached to an army ordnance division in the city. You will receive additional information on the first day of each month. From you? Yes. There's a hotel not far from the factory... Here is the address. Fräulein Keller runs this hotel. Now, on the second floor in one corner sits a mahogany table. On it are a set of silver candlesticks. Four of them. Beneath the candlestick nearest the right. You may find your information on the first day of each month. It will be written in code? Naturally. Be very careful when you pick it up. I see. And make no effort to contact me in any other way. And can I leave anything I might learn in the same place? Is it safe? Yes. Now, remember, sooner or later we are bound to be introduced, you and I. My duties with the Ordnance Division will, of so course... near and yet so far kind of thing, eh? Yeah, very far. 
Once inside the city, I'm Oberleutnant Hans Neumann of Army Ordnance, understand? And I am Herr Charles Umberstein, architect. Right. Well, time grows short. I must go. Everything checked. Your passport? Perfect. I even resemble the photograph of the Kanzler, you think so? Yes, not bad. <laughs> Very considerate of Umberstein to have looked this way. Tickets? Right here, through to Berlin. I report to Franz Miller in the munitions factory, produce my credentials. He's been expecting me. I haggle a little about the salary, then I accept. At first opportunity, become acquainted with MB plans. And I will see that you are highly recommended from a reliable source. Just as a matter of curiosity, Hans, who will recommend me? Oh, you needn't worry, Herr Umberstein. It'll be good, I assure you. Then goodbye, Hans. Oberleutnant Neumann, if you please. Oberleutnant Hans Neumann. Well, then, my Herr Charles Umberstein, auf Wiedersehen. Wiedersehen. <laughs> Heil Hitler. <laughs> Heil Hitler. Yes, everything Hans had said came about. I picked up my information each month at the little hotel. I left an occasional report for Hans. It was the only way we ever communicated. And then Oberleutnant Hans Neumann began to appear in Franz Müller's office. And eventually Müller introduced us. In fact, Hans was with Müller quite frequently and they dined together regularly. Hans played his part well. But one day, something was worrying him. I will wait here for you, Müller. I'll be with you in a moment. Ah, Herr Umberstein. It's good to see you again. Uh, Lieutenant Neumann. And Miller speaks very highly of your work here. Thank you. Be very careful of this Captain Van Hind. There's something wrong. I don't know what it is. He looks at me very strangely. And there is something I recognize about the man. The eyes oh, are... Yes, yes, yes. We were just chatting a moment. Uh... I've seen Van Hind somewhere before. Be very careful. And don't come with us in case they ask you. Well, well, well. You are ready? Why, yes, of course. Umberstein. Uh, would you care to join us oh. at luncheon? No, no, thank you. I, I have some work to do. Oh. Always working. Eh? Yes. <laughs> well, then, let's go, Hans, yeah? Yeah, certainly. Oh, by the way, will Captain Van Hind be joining us today? Oh, Von Hind sends his regrets. Something is delayed. Oh, that's too bad. Von Hind, a remarkable man. No one like him in the service. No one like him. Goodbye, Lieutenant. Von Hind. Such a brief warning. Curt and sinister. Hans was frightened. He would never have taken the chance to speak to me if he had not been frightened. Something that he recognized about von Hind. Saturday was the first of the month, and there was no information at the hotel. Hans didn't appear again to lunch with Herr Müller. Something was wrong. Something had happened to Hans. Today I found out. Uh, we will enjoy ourselves today, eh, Umberstein? Yes, we should lunch together more often, you and I. I like good company when I eat. Good food, good company, good digestion, Emily. <laughs> this is a wonderful restaurant that we are going to. You know, they serve Norwegian smoked salmon. That is exquisite. And, and, and cheap, too. <laughs> Nothing like these new foods we are getting from Norway. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of Norwegian salmon. Uh, and this is the best. <laughs> you and Oberleutnant Neumann dine here often, don't you? Hans Neumann, oh, yeah. we came here often, yeah. Hans Neumann will not come here for a long, long time again, I'm afraid. I, I don't understand. Uh, yeah, you don't. You remember Captain von Hein? Oh, oh, yes, the Gestapo man who was inspecting our factory a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. most efficient man. 
He has apparently been observing Hans Neumann for some time. Oh? Oberleutnant Neumann is being detained by Captain von Hein, no? Was he... He was a spy. A spy? How do you know? Von Hein arrests only spies. And von Hein never makes a mistake. The man is incredible. Was there something suspicious about Hans? There's something suspicious about everyone to von Hein. He himself asked me to cultivate Oberleutnant Neumann so that he could better observe his actions. Yes, I, I noticed that you two lunched together very often. Uh, we lunched together at this very same restaurant you and I are going to now. That made it easy for von Hein. Easy? Well, to study the man in leisure. Von Hein always wants to be certain of his quarry. And uh, where is Hans now? Who knows? Who knows what happens when Captain von Hein takes a man? Don't you admire such efficiency, Umberstein? Well, of course. Yeah, well, the captain did indicate that there were others to be rounded up, too. Well, here we are. Oh, look, look, you see them in the window? Norwegian salmon. Oh, they are beautiful, so red, so delicious. Are you hungry, Umberstein? What? Oh, yes, yes. Oh, they, they do look delicious. <laughs> Captain von Heinz. I looked at him out of the window again. I could see his breath now. It was growing very cold. He was well-dressed in a neatly tailored overcoat and dark hat. It was too dark to tell the exact color. The only thing I was sure of were the hands and the gloves on the hands. Heavy, thick, powerfully mounted prongs encased in a gray, tightly fitting material. Style, lines running across the back. I noticed when he lifted them to light a cigarette. What beautiful weapons. His back was to me. I couldn't help but admire the fine breadth of his shoulders and the thick, closely barbered neck. He stood quietly by the lamppost, smoking, watching his breath and the smoke battle for existence in the icy air. Once when he turned to look up at my window, the single eyeglass he wore caught the reflection of the light. I wondered how much he weighed. Carefully, I retraced each step over again in my mind. I couldn't find the flaw that made me a marked man. The absurdly easy way I had gone through Mueller's office carrying an innocent-looking bundle of blueprints. Then to the vault, the, super, the superstition of copies. No one could suspect what I had done. No one had any reason to. Why? Why then was I trapped? Of course he was after me, waiting down there. I wondered why he didn't come up and wait in my room. Surely he didn't know I was in the room. Perhaps he had searched my room one day while I was out. But what could he find? Nothing, absolutely nothing. A passport proving I was Charles Umberstein. A monogram suitcase bearing the initials C.U. A few letters and old papers. Nothing, nothing at all. I had never talked. I had never known anyone else in service except Hans. Franz Müller was too stupid to suspect anything. Fräulein Keller? No. The passport? Perfect. Only one other way. Only one other way. Could he possibly know? For an instant, the possible answer flashed through my brain. For a full five minutes, I watched him, 
watched him very discerningly. Could it be? Could it possibly be? The stillness of the street below was broken from time to time by the blare of an occasional horn and the rattle of armored cars carrying soldiers to different parts of the city. Turning from the window, I groped about in the darkness of my room, searching for the automatic I had concealed in the slit compartment of my traveling bag. When I found it, I tested the chamber. It was loaded. I jammed it in my coat pocket, and putting on my hat, I stood there by the window, watching him. He seemed very ominous, very assured, waiting for me. He must have been getting anxious with his long vigil. I watched him signal to an accomplice across the street. Walking back and forth under the streetlight, I noticed something familiar. Very familiar. A bolt from off the bed, tied to a piece of cord attached to the light switch. Ah, near the radiator pipe, room enough to pass it through, the weighted end dragging the string to the lobby below. I picked up my suitcase and stepped out of the door. The hall was dark and quiet. I walked down the stairs. The lobby was empty, deserted. At the bottom of the stairs, I placed the suitcase by the door, and I crossed the desk. Hastily, I jammed a few bills in an envelope and addressed it to Fräulein Keller. Now, as I picked up my suitcase, I could see him very plainly on the corner. He was only a few feet from the entrance. The cord with its weighted end had fallen just short of the door. I stood there quietly. He looked up at my room. I pulled the cord. He was startled when the light went on upstairs, searching the window for a view of the occupant. I walked to the door. As I opened it, he looked at me, looked my way, gazed at me, point blank, seemed surprised. Then assuring himself, he took a step toward me. Herr Umberstein! Herr Umberstein! Oh, you are... You are Charles Umberstein? Why, yes, I... Charles Umberstein, who entered Germany in 1936 from Austria? Here's my passport. Your passport, yes. I have always wanted to meet you, Charles Umberstein. I have always wanted to meet you face to face. You know who I am? Why, yes, you are. <laughs> I wonder... You know the others I have had my men pick up. But you, I wanted to attend to personally. It's because you are Charles Umberstein. Now we will uh, just... I'm sorry, oh. my friend. He sat down hard on the curb. He looked up at me, mumbled strangely, then fell over with his head in the gutter. Hat fell off, and I saw that his hair was closely cropped. There were other people on the streets. I ran till I was out of breath. The next day, I picked up a Berlin paper on the railroad station. On the second page, I read the headline Gestapo official murdered. Saturday, January 25th, Captain Charles von Hind, high-ranking official of the Gestapo Intelligence Service, was instantly killed last night by the bullets of an unknown assailant whom he was attempting to arrest on charges of espionage. Captain von Hind had been connected with the Gestapo since 
1936. Prior to his affiliation with the Gestapo intelligence, he had been known by his real name, Charles Umberstein. His entry into such dangerous work made necessary a complete retirement from all public life. The Reich will long honor the memory of Charles Umberstein. I wired flowers from Geneva with a card marked Sympathy, signed C.U. And so closes The Strange Death of Charles Umberstein by E. Jack Newman, starring Vincent Price. Tonight's tale of Suspense. Vincent Price will soon be seen in the 20th Century Fox production, Song of Bernadette. The producer and director of Suspense is William Spear. Music was composed by Lucian Marowick and conducted by Lud Gluskin. This is the man in black who would like to draw your attention to the new day in time for Suspense, beginning next week, when Cary Grant will be our star. Beginning next week, listeners in the Eastern and Central time zones will hear Suspense on Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Wartime and 7 p.m. Central Wartime. Listeners in the Mountain and Pacific time zones will be brought their next story of Suspense on Monday, December the 6th, and each Monday thereafter at 9 p.m. Pacific Wartime. Don't forget Suspense on Thursdays, beginning December the 2nd, if you live in Eastern and Central time zones, and Mondays beginning December the 6th for listeners in the Mountain and Pacific time zones with Cary Grant, our opening guest star. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Thanks for listening to Retro Radio, old-time radio in the dark. If you haven't done so yet, be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast so you don't miss future episodes, where I post single episodes as well as marathons like you just heard, several days per week. You can find the podcast at WeirdDarkness.com slash Retro Radio. That's WeirdDarkness.com slash Retro Radio. And if you like the show, please share it with someone you know who also loves old-time radio and pulp audio. If you want to hear even more, drop an email to WeirdDarkness at RadioArchives.com and you'll get an instant reply with links to download full-length pulp audiobooks, pulp ebooks, and old-time radio shows absolutely free. That's WeirdDarkness at RadioArchives.com. Weird Darkness is a registered trademark. Copyright Weird Darkness. I'm Darren Marlar, and I'll see you next time for Weird Darkness's Retro Radio, old-time radio in the dark. <laughs>